Harper Audio presents Flashman in the Great Game by George MacDonald Fraser, read by Colin Mace. The following piece was found in the author's study in 2013 by the estate of George MacDonald Fraser. How did I get the idea of Flashman? How did you get the idea of Flashman and when are we going to get his US Civil War memoirs are questions which I have ducked more often than I can count. To the second, my invariable response is, oh, one of these days, followed when the inquirer is an impatient American, by the gentle reminder that to an old British soldier like Flashman, the unpleasantness between the states is not quite the most important event of the 19th century, but rather a sideshow, compared to the mutiny or Crimea. Before they can get indignant, I add hastily that his Civil War itinerary is already mapped out. This is the only way of preventing them from telling me what it ought to be. To the question, how did I get the idea, I simply reply that I don't know. Who ever knows? Anthony Hope conceived the prisoner of Zender on a walk from Westminster to the Temple, but I doubt if he could have said, after the calendar month it took him to write the book, what triggered the idea. In my case, Flashman came thundering out of the mists of forty years living and dreaming, and while I can list the ingredients that went to his making, heaven only knows how and when they combined. One thing is sure. The Flashman papers would never have been written if my fellow clansman Hugh Fraser, Lord Allender, had confirmed me as editor of the Glasgow Herald in 1966. But he didn't, the canny little bandit, and I won't say he was wrong. I wouldn't have lasted in the job, for I'd been trained in a journalistic school where editors were gods, and in three months as acting chief, my attitude to management, front office and directors had been that of a seigneur to his serfs. I had even put Fraser's entry to the House of Lords on an inside page, assuring him that it was not for the Herald, his own paper, to flaunt his elevation, and that a two-column picture of him was quite big enough. How cavalier can you get? And doubtless I had other editorial shortcomings. In any event, faced with twenty years as deputy editor, which means doing all the work without getting to the big dinners, I promised my wife I would write us out of it. In a few weeks of thrashing the typewriter at the kitchen table in the small hours, Flashman was half-finished, and likely to stay that way, for I fell down a waterfall, broke my arm, and lost interest, until my wife asked to read what I had written. Her reaction galvanised me into finishing it. One draft, no revisions, and for the next two years it rebounded from publisher after publisher, British and American. I can't blame them. The purported memoir of an unregenerate blackguard, bully and coward, resurrected from a Victorian school story, is a pretty eccentric subject. By 1968 I was ready to call it a day, but thanks to my wife's insistence and George Greenfield's matchless knowledge of the publishing scene, it found a home at last with Herbert Jenkins. The manuscript looking, to quote Christopher McLeos, as though it had been round the world twice. It damn nearly had. They published it as it stood, with, to me, bewildering results. It wasn't a bestseller in the blockbuster sense, but the reviewers were enthusiastic. Foreign rights, starting with Finland, were sold, and when it appeared in the USA, one-third of forty-odd critics accepted it as a genuine historical memoir to the undisguised glee of the New York Times, which wickedly assembled their reviews. The most important discovery since the Boswell Papers.
is the one that haunts me still, for if I was human enough to feel my lower ribs parting under the strain, I was appalled, sort of. You see, while I had written a straightforward introduction describing the discovery of the papers in a sale room in Ashby de la Zouche, that ought to have warned them, and larded it with editorial footnotes, there had been no intent to deceive. For one thing, while I'd done my best to write first-person in Victorian style, I'd never imagined that it would fool anybody. Nor did Herbert Jenkins, and fifty British critics had recognised it as a conceit. The only one who was half doubtful was my old chief sub on the Herald, called on to review it for another paper. He demanded of the Herald's literary editor, This book of Geordie's isn't it true, is it? And on being assured that it wasn't, exclaimed, The conniving bastard, which I still regard as a high compliment. With the exception of one left-wing journal which hailed it as a scathing attack on British imperialism, the press and public took Flashman, quite rightly, at face value, as an adventure story dressed up as the memoirs of an unrepentant old cad who, despite his cowardice, depravity and deceit, had managed to emerge from fearful ordeals and perils an acclaimed hero, his only redeeming qualities being his humour and shameless honesty as a memorialist. I was gratified, if slightly puzzled, to learn that the great American publisher, Alfred Knopf, had said of the book, I haven't heard this voice in fifty years, and that the Commissioner of Metropolitan Police was recommending it to his subordinates. My interest increased as I wrote more Flashman books and noted the reactions. I was, several critics agreed, a satirist. Taking revenge on the nineteenth century on behalf of the twentieth, said one. Waging war on Victorian hypocrisy, said another. Plainly under the influence of Conrad, said yet another. A full-page review in a German paper took me flat aback when my eye fell on the word Proust in the middle of it. I don't read German, so for all I know the reviewer may have been maintaining that Proust was a better stand-off half than I was or used more semicolons, but there it was, and it makes you think. And a few years ago a highly respected religious journal said that the Flashman papers deserved recognition as the work of a sensitive moralist and spoke of service not only to literature and history, but to the study of ethics. My instant reaction to this was to paraphrase Poins. God send me no worse fortune, but I never said so. While feeling delighted that someone else had said it, and then reflecting solemnly that this was a far cry from long nights with cold tea and cigarettes scheming to get Flashman into the passionate embrace of the Empress of China or out of the toils of a demented dwarf on the edge of a snake pit, but... Now, beyond remarking that the anti-imperial left-winger was sadly off the mark, that the Victorians were mere amateurs in hypocrisy compared to our own brainwashed, sanctimonious, self-censoring and terrified generation, and that I hadn't read a word of Conrad by 1966, and my interest in him since has been confined to under-Western eyes, in the hope that I might persuade Dick Lester to film it as only he could. I have no comments to offer on opinions of my work. I know what I'm doing, at least I think I do, and the aim is to entertain myself, for a start, while being true to history, to let Flashman comment on human and inhuman nature, and devil take the romantics and the politically correct revisionist both. But my job is writing, not explaining what I've written, and I'm well content and grateful to have others find in Flashy whatever they will. I've even had letters psychoanalyzing the brute, 
and return to the question with which I began this article. A lifelong love affair with British imperial adventure, fed on Tuppany Bloods, the Wolf of Kabul, and Lionheart Logan. Where are they now? The Barrack Room Ballards, films like Lives of a Bengal Lancer and The Four Feathers, and the stout-hearted stories for boys which my father won as school prizes in the 1890s. The discovery, through Scott and Sabatini and Macaulay, that history is one tremendous adventure story, soldiering in Burma and seeing the twilight of the Raj in all its splendour, a newspaper-trained lust for finding the truth behind the received opinion, being a Highlander from a family that would rather spin yarns than eat. I suppose Flashman was born out of all these things, and from reading Tom Brown's school days as a child, and having a wayward cast of mind. Thanks to that contrary streak, I always half-hoped that Rathburn would kill Flynn, confounding convention and turning the story upside down, Basil gets Olivia, Claude Rains triumphs, wow. I recognised Flashman on sight as the star of Hughes's book. Fag-roasting rotter and poltroon he might be, he was nevertheless plainly box-office, for he had the looks, swagger and style, big and strong, a bluff off-hand manner, and considerable powers of being pleasant, according to his creator, which never failed to cast a glamour on villainy. I suspect Hughes knew it too, and got rid of him before he could take over the book, which loses all its spirit and zest once Flashy has made his disgraced and drunken exit. He was, by the way, a real person. This I learned only recently. A letter exists from one of Hughes's rugby contemporaries, which is definite on the point, but tactfully does not identify him. I have sometimes speculated about one boy who was at rugby in Hughes's day, and who later became a distinguished soldier and something of a ruffian, but since I haven't a shred of evidence to back up the speculation, I keep it to myself. What became of him after rugby seemed to me an obvious question, which probably first occurred to me when I was about nine and then waited thirty years for an answer. The army, inevitably, and since Hughes had given me a starting point by expelling him in the late 1830s when Lord Cardigan was in full haw-haw and the Afghan war was impending, just so. I began with no idea of where the story might take me, but with Victorian history to point the way, and that has been my method ever since, choose an incident or campaign, dig into every contemporary source available, letters, diaries, histories, reports, eyewitness, trivia, and fictions, which, like the early punch, are mines of detail, find the milestones for Flashy to follow, more or less, get impatient to be writing, and turn him loose with the research incomplete, digging for it as I go, and changing course as history dictates or fancy suggests. In short, letting history do the work, with an eye open for the unexpected nuggets and coincidences that emerge in the mining process, for example, that the Cabinet were plastered when they took their final resolve on the Crimea, that Pinkerton, the detective, had been a trade union agitator in the very place where Flashman was stationed in the first book, that Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King had a factual basis, or that Bismarck and Lola Montez were in London in the same week of 1842, if memory serves, which it often doesn't. Whenever Flashman has been a subject on Mastermind, I have invariably scored less than the contestants. Visiting the scenes helps. I'd not have missed Little Bighorn, the Borneo Jungle Rivers, Bent's Fort or the scruffy, wonderful Gold Road to Samarkand for anything. Seeking out is half the fun, which is one reason why I decline all offers of help with research from America mostly. But the main reason is that I'm a soloist. 
giving no hints beforehand even to publishers and permitting no editorial interference afterwards. It may be tripe, but it's my tripe, and I do strongly urge authors to resist encroachments on their brain children and trust their own judgment rather than that of some zealous meddler with a diploma in creative punctuation who is just dying to get into the act. One of the great rewards of writing about my old ruffian has been getting and answering letters and marvelling at the kindness of readers who take the trouble to let me know they have enjoyed his adventures or that he has cheered them up or turned them to history. Sitting on the stairs at 4am talking to a group of students who have phoned from the American Midwest is as gratifying as learning from a university lecturer that he is using Flashman as a teaching aid. Even those who want to write the books for you or complain that he's a racist, of course he is. Why should he be different from the rest of humanity, or insist that he isn't a coward at all, but just modest, and they're in love with him, are compensated by the stalwarts who've named pubs after him in Monte Carlo and somewhere in South Africa, I'm told, or have formed societies in his honour. They're out there, believe me. The Gandamac Delopers of Oklahoma, and Rowbottom's Moss Troopers, and the Royal Society of Upper Canada with appropriate T-shirts. I have discovered that when you create, or in my case, adopt and develop a fictional character and take him through a series of books, an odd thing happens. He assumes, in a strange way, a life of his own. I don't mean that he takes you over, far from it. He tends to hive off on his own. At any rate, you find that you're not just writing about him, you are becoming responsible for him. You're not just his chronicler, you are also his manager, trainer and public relations man. It's your own fault, my own fault, for pretending that he's real, for presenting his adventures as though they were his memoirs, putting him in historical situations, giving him footnotes and appendices, and inviting the reader to accept him as a historical character. The result is that about half the letters I get treat him as though he were a person in his own right. Of course, people who write to me know that he's nothing of the sort. Well, most of them realise it. I occasionally get indignant letters from people complaining that they can't find him in the army list or the DNB, but nearly all of them know his fiction, and when they pretend that he isn't, they're just playing the game. I started it, so I can't complain. When Hughes axed Flashman from Tom Brown's school days brutally and suddenly, on page 170, if I remember rightly, it seemed a pretty callous act to abandon him with all his sins upon him just at the stage of adolescence when a young fellow needs all the help and understanding he can get. So I adopted him, not from any charitable motives, but because I realised that there was good stuff in the lad, and that with proper care and guidance something could be made out of him. And I have to say that with all his faults, what am I saying, because of his faults, young Flashy has justified the faith I showed in him. Over the years, he and I have gone through several campaigns and assorted adventures, and I can say unhesitatingly that coward, scoundrel, toady, lecher and dissembler though he may be, he is a good man to go into the jungle with. George MacDonald Fraser Explanatory Note One of the most encouraging things about editing the first four volumes of the Flashman Papers has been the generous response from readers and students of history in many parts of the world. Since the discovery of Flashman's remarkable manuscript in a Leicestershire sale-room in 1965, when it was realised that it was the hitherto unsuspected autobiographical memoir of the notorious bully of Tom Brown's school days, letters have reached the editor from such diverse places as Ascension Island, a G.I. rest camp in Vietnam, 
university faculties and campuses in Britain and America, a modern caravanserai of the Khyber Pass Road, a police station cell in southern Australia, and many others. What has been especially gratifying has been not only the interest in Flashman himself, but the close historical knowledge which correspondents have shown of the periods and incidents with which his memoirs have dealt so far. The First Afghan War, the solution of the Schleiswig-Holstein question, involving as it did Count Bismarck and Lola Montez, the Afro-American slave trade, and the Crimean War. Many have contributed interesting observations, and one or two have detected curious discrepancies in Flashman's recollections, which, regrettably, escaped his editor. A lady in Athens and a gentleman in Flint, Michigan, have pointed out that Flashman apparently saw the Duchess of Wellington at a London theatre some years after her death, and a letter on Foreign Office notepaper has remarked on his careless reference to a British ambassador in Washington in 1848, when, in fact, Her Majesty's representative in the American capital held a less exalted diplomatic title. Such lapses are understandable, if not excusable, in a hard-living octogenarian. Equally interesting have been such communications as those from a gentleman in New Orleans who claims to be Flashman's illegitimate great-grandson, as the result of a liaison in a military hospital at Richmond, Virginia, during the U.S. Civil War, and from a British-serving officer who asserts that his grandfather lent fifty dollars and a horse to Flashman during the same campaign. Neither, apparently, was returned. It is possible that these and other matters of interest will be resolved when the later papers are edited. The present volume deals with Flashman's adventures in the Indian Mutiny, where he witnessed many of the dramatic moments of that terrible struggle and encountered numerous Victorian celebrities, monarchs, statesmen and generals among them. As in previous volumes, his narrative tallies closely with accepted historical fact, as well as furnishing much new information and there has been little for his editor to do except correct his spelling, deplore his conduct, and provide the usual notes and appendices. G.M.F. They don't invite me to Balmoral nowadays, which is a blessing. Those damned tartan carpets always put me off my food, to say nothing of the endless pictures of German royalty and that unspeakable statue of the Prince Consort standing knock-kneed in a kilt. King Teddy's company is something I'd sooner avoid than not, anyway, for he's no better than an upper-class hooligan. Of course, he's been pretty leery of me for forty-odd years, ever since I misguided his youthful footsteps into an actress's bed, in fact, and brought Papa Albert's divine wrath down on his fat head. And when he finally wheezed his way onto the throne, I gather he thought of dropping me altogether, said something about my being Falstaff to his Prince Hal. Falstaff, mark you, from a man with piggy eyes and a belly like a Constoga wagon cover. Vile taste in cigars he has, too. In the old Queen's time, of course, I was at Balmoral a great deal. She always fancied me from when she was a chit of a girl and pinned the Afghan medal on my manly breast, and after I had ridden herd on that same precious teddy through the Tramby-Croft affair and saved him from the worst consequences of his own folly, she couldn't do enough for me. Each September after that, regular as clockwork, there would come a command for Dear General Flashman to take the train north to Kailyard Castle, and there would be my own room with a bowl of late roses on the windowsill and a bottle of brandy on the side-table with a discreet napkin over it. They knew my style. So I put up with it, 
She was all right, little Vicky, as long as you gave her your arm to lean on and let her prattle on endlessly, and the rations were adequate, but even then I never cottoned to the place. Not only, as I said, was it furnished in a taste that would have offended the sensibilities of a nigger costermonger, it had the most awful highland gloom about it, all drizzle and mist and draughts under the door and holy melancholy. Even the billiard-room had a print on the wall of a dreadful ancient Scotch couple glowering devoutly, praying, I don't doubt, for me to be snookered. But I think what really turns me against Balmoral in my old age is its memories. It was there that the great mutiny began for me, and on my rare excursions north nowadays there's a point on the line where the rhythm of the wheels changes, and in my imagination they begin to sing Mira, Janzi, Dengne, Mira, Janzi, Dengne, over and over, and in a moment the years have dropped away, and I'm remembering how I first came to Balmoral half a century ago, aye, and what it led to. The stifling heat of the parade-ground at Mirut, with the fettering hammers clanging, the bite of the muzzle of the nine-pounder jammed into my body and my own blood, steaming on the sun-scorched iron. Old Wheeler, bawling hoarsely as the black cavalry sabres come thundering across the maiden towards our flimsy rampart. No surrender! One last volley, damn em, And aim at the horses! The burning bungalows, a skeleton hand in the dust... Colin Campbell scratching his grizzled head, the crimson stain spreading in the filthy water below sooty gut, a huge glittering pile of silver and gold and jewels and ivory bigger than anything you've ever seen, and two great brown liquid eyes shadowed with coal, a single pearl resting on the satin skin above them, open red lips trembling, and blast him. Here's the stationmaster, beaming and knuckling his hat and starting me out of the only delightful part of that waking nightmare, with his cry of, "'Welcome back to Deeside, Sir Harry! Here we are again, then!' And as he hands me down to the platform, you may be sure the local folk are all on hand, bringing their brats to stare and giggle at the big old buffer in his tweed cape and monstrous white whiskers. "'There he is, the V.C. man!' "'Sir Harry Flashman! Ay, old Flashy! "'Him that charged with the Light Brigade "'and killed all the niggers at Carbool! "'Good, but isn't he the old yin? "'Hip, hurry!' "'So I acknowledge the cheers with a wave, "'bluff and hearty as I step into the dog-cart, "'stepping briskly to escape the inevitable "'bemeddled veteran who comes shuffling after me, "'hoping I'll slip him sixpence for a dram "'when he assures me that... We once stood together in the Highlander's line at Balaclava. Lying old bastard. He was probably skulking in bed. Not that I'd blame him if he was, Mark you. Given the chance, I'd have sulked in mine. And not just at Balaclava, neither, but at every battle and skirmish I've sweated and scampered through during fifty inglorious years of unwilling soldiery. Leastways... I know they were inglorious, but the country don't, thank heaven, which is why they've rewarded me with general rank and the knighthood and a double row of medals on my left tit, which shows you what cowardice and roguery can do, given a stalwart appearance, long legs, and a thumping slice of luck. Aye, well, whip up, driver. We mustn't keep royalty waiting. But to return to the point, which is the mutiny, and that terrible, incredible journey that began at Balmoral. Well, it was as ghastly a road as any living man travelled in my time. I've seen a deal of war, and agree with Sherman that it's hell. 
but the mutiny was the seventh circle under the pit. Of course, it had its compensations. For one, I came through it, pretty whole, which is more than Havelock and Harry East and John Nicholson did, enterprising lads that they were. What's the use of a campaign if you don't survive it? I did, and it brought me my greatest honour. Totally undeserved, I needn't tell you. And a tidy enough slab of loot which bought and maintains my present place in Leicestershire. I reckon the plunder's better employed keeping me and my tenants in drink than it was decorating a nigger temple for the edification of a gang of blood-sucking priests. And along the mutiny road I met and loved that gorgeous, wicked witch, Lakshmibai. There were others, too, naturally, but she was the prime piece. One other thing about the mutiny before I get down to cases. I reckon it must be about the only one of my campaigns that I was pitched into through no fault of my own. On other occasions, I'll own I've been to blame. For a man with a white liver a yard wide, I've had a most unhappy knack of landing myself neck deep in the slaughter through my various follies, to wit, talking too much. That got me into the Afghan debacle of 41. Playing the fool in pool rooms, the Crimea, believing everything Abraham Lincoln told me, the American Civil War, inviting a half-breed hunk-papa whore to a regimental ball, the Sioux Rising of 76, and so on. The list's as long as my arm, but my involvement in the mutiny was all Palmerston's doing. What disaster of the fifties wasn't? It came out of as clear and untroubled a sky as you could wish. A few months after my return from the Crimea, where, as you may know, I'd won fresh laurels through my terrified inability to avoid the most gruelling actions, I had stood petrified in the thin red streak, charged with the heavies and lights, been taken prisoner by the Russians, and after a most deplorable series of adventures, in which I was employed as chief stud to a nobleman's daughter, was pursued by hordes of wolves and Cossacks, and finally was caught up in a private war between Asian bandits and a rusky army bound for India. It's all in my memoirs somewhere. Had emerged breathless and lousy at Peshawar. There, as if I hadn't had enough trouble, I was restoring my powers by squandering them on one of those stately, hungry Afghan Amazons, and she must have been a long sight better at coupling than cooking, for something on her menu gave me the cholera. I was on the broad of my back for months, and it took a slow, restful voyage home before I was my own man again, in prime fettle, for the reunion with my loving Elspeth, and to enjoy the role of a returned hero about town. And I may add, a retired hero. Oxen and wain-ropes weren't going to drag Flashy back to the front again. I've made the same resolve a score of times, and by God, I've meant it, but you can't fight fate, especially when he's called Palmerston. However, there I was in the summer of 56, safely content on half-pay as a staff colonel, with not so much as a sniff of war in sight except the Persian farce, and that didn't matter. I was comfortably settled with Elsbeth and little Havy the first fruit of our union, a guzzling lout of seven, in a fine house off Berkeley Square, which Elspeth's inheritance maintained in lavish style, dropping by occasionally at horse guards, leading the social life, clubbing and turfing, whoring here and there as an occasional change from my lawful brainless beauty, and being lionised by all London. Well, I'd stood at Armageddon, and battled for the Lord, ostensibly, hadn't I? 
and enough had leaked out about my subsequent secret exploits in Central Asia, though government was damned cagey about them on account of our delicate peace negotiations with Russia, to suggest that Flashy had surpassed all his former heroics. So, with the country in a patriotic fever about its returning braves, I was ace-high in popular esteem. There was even talk that I'd get one of the new Victoria Crosses, for what that was worth, but it's my belief that Airy and Cardigan scotched it between them, jealous bastards. I suspect that Airy, who had been Chief of Staff to Raglan in Crimea, hadn't forgotten my minor dereliction of duty at the Alma, when the Queen's randy little cousin, Billy, got his full head blown off while under my care. And Cardigan loathed me, not least because I'd once emerged drunk in the nick of time from a wardrobe to prevent him cocking his lustful leg over my loving Elspeth. She was no better than I was, you know. And since coming home, I hadn't given him cause to love me any better. You see, there was a deal of fine malicious tittle-tattle going about that summer over Cardigan's part in the Light Brigade fiasco. Not so much about his responsibility for the disaster, which was debatable, if you ask me, but for his personal behaviour at the guns. He'd been at the head of the charge, right enough, with me alongside on a bolting horse, farting my fearful soul out, but after we'd reached the battery... He'd barely paused to exchange a cut or two with the rusky gunners before heading for home and safety again. Shocking bad form in a commander, says I, who was trying to hide under a gun limber at the time. Not that I think for a moment that he was funking it. He hadn't the brains to be frightened. Our Lord Haw Haw. But he had retreated without undue delay, and since he was never short of enemies eager to believe the worst, the gossips were having a field day now. There were angry letters in the press, and even a lawsuit, and since I'd been in the thick of the action, it was natural that I should be asked about it. In fact, it was George Paget, who'd commanded the Fourth Lights in the charge, who put the thing to me point-blank in the card-room at White's. Can't imagine what I was doing there. Must have been somebody's guest. In front of a number of people, civilians mostly, but I know Spotswood was there, and old Scarlet of the Heavies, I think. "'You were neck and neck with Cardigan,' says Paget and in the battery before anyone else. Now, God knows he's not my soulmate, but all this talk's getting a shade raw. Did you see him in the battery or not? Well, I had, but I wasn't saying so. Far be it from me to clear his lordship's reputation when there was a chance of damaging it. So I said offhand, Don't ask me, George. I was too busy hunting for your cigars, which caused a guffaw. No gammon, Flash! says he, looking grim, and asked again in his tactful way, Did Cardigan cut out or not? There were one or two shocked murmurs, and I shuffled a pack, frowning, before I answered. There are more ways than one of damning a man's credit, and I wanted to give Cardigan of my best, so I looked uncomfortable, and then growled, slapped the pack down as I rose, looked Paget in the eye, and said, It's all by and done with now, ain't it? Let's drop it, George, shall we? and I went out then and there, leaving behind the impression that bluff, gallant, flashy didn't want to talk about it, which convinced them all that Cardigan had shirked. Better than if I'd said so straight out or called him a coward to his face. I had a chance to do that too, a bare two hours later, when the man himself came raging up to me with a couple of his toadies in tow, just as Spotswood and I were coming out of the guards' club. The hall was full of fellows goggling at the sensation. Flashman! "'You there, sir!' he croaked. They were absolutely the first words between us since the charge, nearly two years before. 
He was breathing frantically like a man who has been running, his beaky face all mottled and his grey whiskers quaking with fury. Flashman, this is intolerable. My honour is impugned. Scandalous lies, sir. And they tell me that you don't deny them. Well, sir, well, ha, ha. I tilted back my tire with a forefinger and looked him up and down, from his bald head and pop eyes to his stamping foot. He looked on the edge of apoplexy, a delightful sight. "'What lies are these, my lord?' says I, very steady. "'You know very well,' he cried. "'Bawakwaba, sir! The storming of the battleway! Word George Paget has asked you in public whether you saw me at the guns, and you have the affrontery to tell him you don't know. Damnation, sir! And one of my own officers, too. A former member of your regiment, my lord. I admit the fact. Blast your impudence, he roared, frothing at me. Will you give me the lie? Will you say I was not at the guns? I settled my hat and pulled on my gloves while he mouthed. My lord, says I, speaking deliberately clear. I saw you in the advance. In the battery itself, I was otherwise engaged and had no leisure nor inclination to look about me to see who was where. For that matter, I did not see Lord George himself until he pulled me to my feet. I assumed, and I bore on the word ever so slightly, that you were on hand at the head of your command, but I do not know, and frankly I do not care. Good day to you, my lord. And with a little nod, I turned to the door. His voice pursued me, crackling with rage. Colonel Freshman, he cried, you are a viper. I turned at that, making myself go red in the face in righteous wrath. But I knew what I was about. He was getting no blow or challenge from me. He shot too damn straight for that. Indeed, my lord, says I, yet I don't wriggle and turn. And I left him gargling, well pleased with myself. But as I said, probably cost me the B.C. at the time. For all the rumours, he was still a power at horse guards and well insinuated at court, too. However, our little exchange did nothing to diminish my popularity at large. A few nights later I got a tremendous cheer at the guards' dinner at Surrey Gardens, with chaps standing on the table shouting, Huzzah for Flash Harry! and singing Gary Owen and tumbling down drunk. How they did it on a third of a bottle of bubbly beat me. Cardigan wasn't there, sensible fellow. They'd have hooted him out of the kingdom. As it was, Punch carried a nasty little dig about his absence and wondered that he hadn't sent along his spurs since he'd made such good use of them in retiring from the battery. Of course, Lord Haw Haw wasn't the only general to come under the public lash that summer. The rest of them, like Lucan and Airy, got it too for the way they'd botched the campaign. So while we gallant underlings enjoyed roses and laurels all the way, our idiot commanders were gainfully employed exchanging recriminations, writing furious letters to the papers saying twasn't their fault, but some other fellows, and there had even been a commission set up to investigate their misconduct of the war. Unfortunately, government picked the wrong men to do the investigating, McNeil and Tullock, for they turned out to be honest and reported that, indeed, our high command hadn't been fit to dig latrines or words to that effect. Well, that plainly wouldn't do, so another commission had to be hurriedly formed to investigate afresh, and this time get the right answer and no nonsense about it. Well, they did, 
and exonerated everybody, hip-hip-hurrah, and rule Britannia, which was what you'd have expected any half-competent government to stage-manage in the first place, but Palmerston was in the saddle by then, and he wasn't really good at politics, you know. To crown it all, in the middle of the scandal, the Queen herself had words about it with Hardinge, the Commander-in-Chief, at the Aldershot Review, and poor old Hardinge fell down paralysed and never smiled again. It's true. I was there myself, getting soaked through, and Hardinge went down like a Shanghai sailor, with all his faculties gone, not that he had many to start with. Some said it was a judgment on the army and government corruption, so there. All of which mattered rather less to me than the width of Elsbeth's crinolines. But if I've digressed, it is merely to show you how things were in England then, and also because I can never resist a temptation to blackguard Cardigan as he deserves. Meanwhile, I was going happily about my business, helping my dear wife spend her cash, which she did like a clipper hand in port, I'm bound to say, and you would have said we were a blissful young couple turning a blind eye to each other's infidelities and galloping in harness when we felt like it, which was frequent, for if anything she got more bedable with the passing years. And then came the invitation to Balmoral, which reduced Ellsworth to a state of nervous exultation close to hysterics and took me clean aback. I'd have imagined that if the royal family ever thought of me at all, it was as the chap who'd been remiss enough to lose one of the Queen's cousins. But, mind you, she had so many of them she probably didn't notice, or, if she did, hadn't heard that I was to blame for it. No, I've puzzled over it sometimes, and can only conclude that the reason we were bidden to Balmoral that September was that Russia was still very much the topic of the day, what with the new Tsar's coronation and the recent peace, and I was one of the most senior men to have been a prisoner in Russia's hands. I didn't have leisure to speculate at the time, though for Ellsworth's frenzy at the thought of being in attendance, as she chose to call it, claimed everyone's attention within a mile of Berkeley Square. Being a Scotch tradesman's daughter, my darling was one degree more snobbish than a penniless Spanish duke, and in the days before we went north her condescension to her middle-class friends would have turned your stomach. Between gloating and babbling about how she and the Queen would discuss dressmaking while Albert and I boozed in the gun-room— she had a marvellous notion of court life, you see. She went into declines at the thought that she would come out in spots or have her drawers fall down when being presented. You must have endured the sort of thing yourself. Oh, Harry, Jane's speedy cut will be green. You and I, guests of Her Majesty, it will be the finest thing. And I have my new French dresses, the ivory, the beige silk, the lilac satin, and the lovely, lovely green, which old Admiral Lawson so admired. If you think it is not a little low for the Queen. And my parish for Sunday. Will there be members of the nobility staying also? Will there be ladies whose husbands are of lower rank than you? Ellen Parkin, Lady Parkin, indeed, was consumed with spite when I told her, Oh, and I must have another maid who can manage my hair, for Sarah is too maladroit for words, although she is very passable with dresses. What shall I wear to picnics? For we shall be bound to walk in the lovely highland countryside. Oh, Harry, what do you suppose the Queen reads? And shall I call the Prince Highness or Sir? I was glad, I can tell you, when we finally reached Abergeldy, where we had rooms in the castle, where guests were put up, for Balmoral was very new then, and Albert was still busy having the finishing touches put to it. Ellsworth by this time was too nervous even to talk, but her first glimpse of our royal hosts reduced her awe a trifle, I think. 
we took a stroll the first afternoon in the direction of Balmoral, and on the road encountered what seemed to be a family of tinkers led by a small washerwoman and an usher who had evidently pinched his headmaster's clothes. Fortunately, I recognised them as Victoria and Albert out with their brood, and knew enough simply to raise my hat as we passed, for they loathed to be treated as royalty when they were playing at being commoners. Elsbeth didn't even suspect who it was until we were past, and when I told her she swooned by the roadside. I revived her by threatening to carry her into the bushes and molest her, and on the way back she observed that really Her Majesty had looked quite royal, but in a common sort of way. By the time we were presented at Balmoral, though, the next day, she was high up the scale again, and the fact that we shared the waiting-room beforehand with some lord or other and his beak-nosed lady, who looked at us as though we were riff-raff, reduced my poor little scatterbrain to quaking terror. I'd met the royals before, of course, and tried to reassure her, whispering that she looked a stunner, which was true, and not to be put out by Lord and Lady Puffbuttock, who were now ignoring us with that icy incivility which is the stamp of our lower-class aristocracy. I know I'm one myself. It was quite handy that our companions kept their noses in the air, though, for it gave me the chance to loop a ribbon for the lady's enormous crinoline onto an occasional table without her knowing. And when the doors to the royal drawing-room were open, she set off and brought the whole thing crashing down, crockery and all, in full view of the little court circle. I kept Elspeth in an iron grip and steered her round the wreckage, and so Colonel and Mrs. Flashman made their bows while the doors were hurriedly closed behind us, and the muffled sounds of the puff-buttocks being extricated by flunkies was music to my ears, even if it did make the Queen look more pop-eyed than usual. The moral is, don't put on airs with Flashy, and if you do, keep your crinolines out of harm's way. As it turned out, to Elspeth's lifelong delight and my immense satisfaction, she and the Queen got on like port and nuts from the first. Elspeth, you see, was one of those females who are so beautiful that even other women can't help liking them, and in her idiot way she was a lively and engaging soul. The fact that she was Scotch helped too, for the Queen was in one of her Jacobite moods just then, and by the grace of God, someone had read Waverley to Elspeth when she was a child and taught her to recite The Lady of the Lake. I had been dreading meeting Albert again in case he mentioned his whoremongering nephew Villy, now deceased, but all he did was say, Ah, Colonel Flashman, have you read Torqueville's L'Ancien Regime? I said I hadn't yet, but I'd be at the railway library first thing in the morning, and he looked doleful and went on, It warns us that bureaucratic central government, far from curing the ills of revolution, can actually arouse them. I said I'd often thought that, now that he mentioned it, and he nodded and said, Italy is very unsatisfactory, which brought our conversation to a close. Fortunately, old Ellenborough, who'd been chief in India at the time of my cabal heroics, was among those present, and he buttonholed me, which was a profound relief, and then the Queen addressed me in that high sing-song of hers. Your dear wife, Colonel Flashman, tells me that you are quite recovered from the rigours of your Russian adventures, which you shall tell us of presently. They seem to be a quite extraordinary people. Lord Granville 
writes from Petersburg that Lady Woodhouse's Russian maid was found eating the contents of one of her ladyship's dressing-table pots. It was castor oil pomatum for the hair. What a remarkable extravagance, was it not? That was my cue, of course, to regale them with a few domestic anecdotes of Russia, and in its primitive ways, which went down well, with the Queen nodding approval and saying, How barbarous! How strange! while Elspeth glowed to see her hero holding the floor. Albert joined in in his rib-tickling way to observe that no European state offered such fertile soil for the seeds of socialism as Russia did, and that he feared that the new Tsar had little intellect or character. So Lord Granville says, was the Queen's prim rejoinder, but I do not think it is quite his place to make such observations on a royal personage. Do you not agree? Mrs. Flashman. Old Ellenborough, who was a cheery, boozy buffer, said to me that he hoped I had tried to civilise the Russians a little by teaching them cricket, and Albert, who had no more humour than the parish trough, looked stuffy and says, I am sure Colonel Flashman would do no such thing. I cannot understand this passion for cricket. It seems to me a great waste of time. What is the profit to a young boy in crouching motionless in a field for hours on end? Am I not right, Colonel? Well, sir, says I, I've looked out in the deep field myself long enough to sympathise with you. It's a great fag, to be sure, but perhaps when the boy's a man, his life may depend on crouching motionless behind a Khyber rock or a Burmese bush, so a bit of practice may not come amiss when he's young. Which was sauce, if you like, but I could never resist a temptation in grovelling to Albert to put a pinch of pepper down his shirt. It was in my character of bluff, no-nonsense Harry, too, and a nice reminder of the daring deeds I'd done. Ellenborough said, Here, here, and even Albert looked only half sulky and said all discipline was admirable but there must be better ways of instilling it. The Prince of Wales, he said, should not play cricket, but some more constructive game. After that we had tea, very informal, and Elspeth distinguished herself by actually prevailing on Albert to eat a cucumber sandwich. She'll have him in the bushes in a minute, thinks I, and on that happy note our first visit concluded, with Elspeth going home on a cloud to Abergeldy. But if it was socially useful, it wasn't much of a holiday, although Elspeth revelled in it. She went for walks with the Queen twice, calling themselves Mrs. Fitzjames and Mrs. Marmion, if you please, and even made Albert laugh when charades were played in the evening by impersonating Helen of Troy with a Scotch accent. I couldn't even get a grin out of him. We went shooting with the other gentleman, and it was purgatory having to stalk at his pace. He was keen as mustard, though, and slaughtered stags like a gazi on hashish. You'll hardly credit it, but his notion of sport was that a huge long trench should be dug so that we could sneak up on the deer unobserved. He'd have done it, too, but the local gillies showed so much disgust at the idea that he dropped it. He couldn't understand their objections, though. To him, all that mattered was killing the beasts. For the rest... He prosed interminably and played German music on the piano, with me applauding like hell. Things weren't made easier by the fact that he and Victoria weren't getting on too well just then. 
She had just discovered and confided to Elspeth that she was in foal for the ninth time, and she took her temper out on dear Albert. The trouble was, he was so bloody patient with her, which can drive a woman to fury faster than anything I know, and he was always right, which was worse. So they weren't dealing at all well, and he spent most of the daylight hours tramping up Glen Bollocks, or whatever they call it, roaring, Z-Gun! and butchering every animal in view. The only thing that seemed to cheer up the Queen was that she was marrying off her oldest daughter, Princess Vicky, the best of the whole family in my view, a real pretty green-eyed little mischief. She was to wed Frederick William of Prussia, who was due at Balmoral in a few weeks, and the Queen was full of it, Elspeth told me. However, enough of the court gossip. It will give you some notion of the trivial way in which I was being forced to pass my time, toadying Albert and telling the Queen how many acute accents there were on determines. The trouble with this kind of thing is that it dulls your wits and your proper instinct for self-preservation, so that if a blow falls, you're caught clean offside, as I was on the night of September the 22nd, 1856. I recollect the date absolutely, because it was the day after Florence Nightingale came to the castle. I'd never met her, but as the leading Crimean on the premises, I was summoned to join in the tete-a-tete she had with the Queen in the afternoon. It was a frost, if you like, pious platitudes from the two of them, with Flashy passing the muffins and joining in when called on to agree that what our wars needed was more sanitation and texts on the wall of every dressing station. There was one near facer for me, and that was when Miss Nightingale, a cool piece that, asked me, calm as you like, what regimental officers could do to prevent their men from contracting certain indelicate social infections from, hem, hem, female camp followers of a certain sort. I near as damn it put my teacup in the Queen's lap, but recovered to say that I'd never heard of any such thing, not in the light cavalry, anyway. French troops, another matter, of course. Would you believe it? I actually made her blush, but I doubt if the Queen even knew what we were talking about. For the rest, I thought La Nightingale a waste of good womanhood. Handsome face, well set up and titted out, but with that cold, don't lay a lecherous limb on me, my lad, look in her eye. The kind, in short, that can be all right if you're prepared to spend time and trouble making them cry. Roger! But I seldom have the patience. Anywhere else I might have taken a squeeze at her just by way of research, but a queen's drawing-room cramps your style. Perhaps it's a pity I didn't. Being locked up for indecent assault on a national heroine couldn't have been worse than the ordeal that was to begin a few hours later. Elspeth and I spent the following evening at a birthday party at one of the big houses in the neighbourhood. It was a cheery affair, and we didn't leave till close on midnight to drive back to Abergeldy. It was a close, thundery night, with big raindrops starting to fall, but we didn't mind. I had taken enough drink on board to be monstrously horny and if the drive had been longer and Elspeth's crinoline less of a hindrance, I'd have had at her on the carriage seat. She got out at the lodge giggling and squeaking, and I chased her through the front door, and there was the messenger of doom waiting in the hall. A tall chap, almost a swell, but with a jaw too long and an eye too sharp, very respectable, with a hard hat under his arm and a billy in his hip pocket, I'll wager. I know a genteel strong man from a government office when I see one. He asked could he speak to me, so I took my arm from Elsbeth's waist, patted her towards the stairs with a whispered promise that I'd be up directly to sound the charge, and told him to state his business. 
He did that smart enough. I am from the Treasury, Colonel Flashman, says he. My name is Hutton. Lord Palmerston wishes to speak with you. It took me flat aback, slightly foxed that I was. My first thought was that he must want me to go back to London, but then he said, His Lordship is at Balmoral, sir. If you'll be good enough to come with me, I have a coach. But, but, you said Lord Palmerston, the prime... What the deuce? Palmerston wants me? At once, sir, if you please. The matter is urgent. Well, I couldn't make anything of it. I never doubted it was genuine. As I said, the man in front of me had authority written all over him. But it's a fair start when you come rolling innocently home and are told that the first statesman of Europe is round the corner and wants you at the double. And now the fellow was positively ushering me towards the door. Hold on, says I. Give me a moment to change my shoes. What I wanted was a moment to put my head in the wash bowl and think, and despite his insistence I snapped at him to wait and hurried upstairs. What the devil was Pam doing here, and what could he want with me? I'd only met him once for a moment before I went to the Crimea. I'd leered at him ingratiatingly at parties too, but never spoken, and now he wanted me urgently, me, a mere colonel on half pay. I'd nothing on my conscience either, leastways not to interest him. I couldn't see it, but there was nothing but to obey, so I went to my dressing-room, fretting, donned my hat and topcoat against the worsening weather, and remembered that Ellsworth, poor child, must even now be waiting for her cross-buttocking lesson. Well, it was hard lines on her, but duty called, so I just popped my head round her door to call a chaste farewell, and there she was, damn it, reclining languorously on the coverlet like one of those randy classical goddesses, wearing nothing but the big ostrich-plume fan I'd brought her from Egypt, and her sniggering maid turning the lamp down low. Ellsworth, clothed, could stop a monk in his tracks, naked and pouting expectantly over a handful of red feathers. She'd have made the Grand Inquisitor burn his books. I hesitated between love and duty for a full second, and then— "'The hell with Palmerston! Let him wait!' cries I, and was plunging for the bed before the Abigail was fairly out of the room. Never miss the chance, as the Duke used to say. "'Lord Palmerston! Ooh, ah, Harry! What do you mean?' "'Never mind!' cries I, taking hold and bouncing away. "'But, Harry, such impatience, my love, and—' "'Dearest, you're wearing your hat. "'The next one's going to be a boy, damn it!' "'And for a few glorious stolen moments "'I forgot Palmerston and minions in the hall "'and marvelled at the way that superb idiot woman of mine "'could keep up a stream of questions "'while performing like a harem hoorie. "'We were locked in an astonishing embrace "'on her dressing-table stool, I recall, "'when there was a knock on the door "'and the maid's giggling voice piped through "'to say the gentleman downstairs was getting impatient "'and would I be long?' "'Tell him I'm just packing my baggage,' says I. "'I'll be down directly.' And presently, keeping my mouth on hers to stem her babble of questions, I carried my darling tenderly back to the bed. "'Always leave things as you would wish to find them.' "'I cannot stay longer, my love,' I told her. "'The Prime Minister is waiting.' And with bewildered entreaties pursuing me, I skipped out, trousers in hand, made a hasty toilet on the landing— panted briefly against the wall, and then stepped briskly down. It's a great satisfaction, looking back, that I kept the government waiting in such a good cause, 
and I set it down here as a deserved tribute to the woman who was the only real love of my life, and as the last pleasant memory I was to have for a long time ahead. It's true enough, too, as Co. Darley's daughter taught me, that there's nothing like a good rattle for perking up an edgy chap like me. It had shaken me for a moment, and it still looked rum that Palmerston should want to see me, but as we bowled through the driving rain to Balmoral, I was telling myself that there was probably nothing in it after all. Considering the good odour I stood in just then, hobnobbing with royalty and being admired for my Russian heroics, it was far more likely to be fair news than foul, and it wasn't like being bidden to the presence of one of your true ogres like the old Duke or Bismarck or Dr. Roth of God Arnold. I've knocked tremulously on fearsome doors in my time, I can tell you. No. Pam might be an impatient old tyrant when it came to bullying foreigners and sending warships to deal with the Dagos, but everyone knew he was a decent, kindly old sport at bottom who put folk at their ease and told a good story. Why, it was notorious that the reason he wouldn't live at Downing Street but on Piccadilly was that he liked to ogle the good lookers from his window and wave to the cads and crossing sweepers who loved him because he talked plain English and would stump up a handsome subscription for an old beaten prize pug like Tom Sayers. That was Pam. And if anyone ever tells you that he was a politically unprincipled old scoundrel who carried things with a high and reckless hand, I can only say that it didn't seem to work a whit worse than the policies of more high-handed statesmen. The only difference I ever saw between them and Pam was that he did his dirty work barefaced, when he wasn't being deeper than damnation, and grinned about it. So I was feeling pretty easy as we covered the three miles to Balmoral, and even pleasantly excited, which shows you how damned soft and optimistic I must have grown. I should have known that it's never safe to get within range of princes or prime ministers. When we got to the castle, I followed Hutton smartly through a side door, up some back stairs and along to heavy double doors, where a burly civilian was standing guard. I gave my whiskers a martial twitch as he opened the door and stepped briskly in. You know how it can be when you enter a strange room. Everything can look as safe and merry as ninepence, and yet... There's something in the air that touches you like an electric shock. It was here now, a sort of bristling excitement that put my nerves on edge in an instant. And yet there was nothing out of the ordinary to see, just a big, cheerful, panelled room with a huge fire roaring under the mantel, a great table littered with papers, and two sober chaps bustling about it under the direction of a slim young fellow, Barrington, Palmerston's secretary. And over by the fire were three other men, Ellenborough, with his great flushed face and his belly stuck out, a slim, keen-looking old file whom I recognised as Wood of the Admiralty, and with his back to the blaze and his coat-tails up, the man himself, peering at Ellenborough with his bright, short-sighted eyes and looking as though his dyed hair and whiskers had just been rubbed with a towel. Old Squire Pam, as ever was. As I came in, his brisk, sharp voice was ringing out, he never gave a damn who heard him. So, if it's to be Prince Consort, it don't make a haperth of difference, you see. Not to the country, or me. However, as long as Her Majesty thinks it does, that's what matters. What? Haven't you found that telegraph of quilters yet, Barrington? Well, look in the Persian packet, then. And then he caught sight of me, and frowned, sticking out his long lip. Ah, that's the man, cries he. 
Come in, sir, come in. What with the drink I'd taken and my sudden nervousness, I tripped over the mat, which was an omen, if you like, and came as near as a toucher to oversetting a chair. By George, says Pam, is he drunk? All these young fellows are nowadays. Here, Barrington, see him to a chair before he breaks a window. There, at the table. Barrington pulled out a chair for me, and the three at the fireplace seemed to be staring ominously at me while I apologised and took it, especially Pam in the middle, with those bright, steady eyes taking in every inch of me as he nursed his port glass and stuck a thumb into his fob, for all the world like the marshal of a Kansas trail town surveying the street, which is what he was, of course, on a rather grand scale. He was very old at this time, with the gout and his false teeth forever slipping out, but he was evidently full of ginger tonight, and not in one of his easy-going moods. He didn't beat about it either. "'Young Flashman,' growls he, "'very good. Staff Colonel on half-paired present, what? Well, from this moment you're back on the full list, and what you hear in this room tonight is to go no further, understand, not to anyone, not even in this castle. You follow?' I followed, sure enough. What he meant was that the Queen wasn't to know. It was notorious that he never told her anything. But that was nothing. It was his tone and the solemn urgency of his warning that put the hairs up on my neck. "'Very good,' says he again. "'Now then, before I talk to you, Lord Ellenborough has something to show you. Want your opinion of it?' "'All right, Barrington. I'll take that Persian stuff now.' while Colonel Flashman looks at the damned buns. I thought I'd misheard him. As he limped past me and took his seat at the table-head, pawing impatiently among his papers, but sure enough, Barrington passed over to me a little lead biscuit-box, and Ellenborough, seating himself beside me, indicated that I should open it. I pushed back the lid, mystified, and there, in a rice-paper wrapping, were three or four greyish, stale-looking scones, no bigger than Captain's biscuits. There! says Pam, not looking up from his papers. Don't eat em. Tell his lordship what you make of those. I knew right off. That faint eastern smell was unmistakable. But I touched one of them to make sure. They're chapatis, my lord, says I, astonished. Indian chapatis. Ellenborough nodded. Ordinary cakes of native food. You attach no signal significance to them, though. Why, no, sir. Wood took a seat opposite me. And you can conjecture no situation, Colonel, says he, in his dry, quiet voice, in which the sight of such cakes might occasion you alarm. Obviously, ministers of the Crown don't ask damnful questions for nothing, but I could only stare at him. Pam, apparently deep in his papers at the table head, wheezing and sucking his teeth and muttering to Barrington, paused to grunt. Serve the damn things at dinner and they'd alarm me. And Ellenborough tapped the biscuit box. These chapatis came last week from India, by fast steam sloop, sent by our political agent at a place called Jansi. Know it? It's down below the Jumna in Maharata country. For weeks now, scores of such cakes have been turning up among the sepoys of our native Indian garrison at Jahansi. Not as food, though. 
seems the sepoys pass them from hand to hand as tokens. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Wood interrupted. I hadn't, so I just shook my head and looked attentive, wondering what the devil this was all about, while Ellenborough went on. Our political knows where they come from, all right. The native village constables, you know, the chow kidders, bake them in batches of ten and send one apiece to ten different sepoys, and each sepoy is bound to make ten more and pass them on to his comrades and so on ad infinitum. It's not new, of course. Ritual cake passing is very old in India, but... There are three remarkable things about it. Firstly, it happens only rarely. Second, even the natives themselves don't know why it happens, only the cakes must be baked and passed. And third, he tapped the box again. They believe that the appearance of the cakes foreshadows terrible catastrophe. He paused, and I tried to look impressed, for there was nothing out of the way in all this. Straight to Malice in Wonderland, if you like. But when you know India and the amazing tricks the niggers can get up to, usually in the name of religion, you cease to be surprised. It seemed an interesting superstition, but what was more interesting was that two ministers of the government and a former governor-general of India were discussing it behind closed doors and had decided to let Flashy into the secret. But there's something more, Ellenborough went on which is why Skeen, our political man at Jehansi, is treating the matter as one of urgency. Cakes like these have circulated among native troops, quite apart from civilians, on only three occasions in the past fifty years. At Velour in 06, at Buxar, and at Barakpur. You don't recall the names? Well, at each place, when the cakes appeared... The same reaction followed among the sepoys. He put on his House of Lords face and said impressively, Mutiny! Looking back, I suppose I ought to have thrilled with horror at the mention of the dread word. But, in fact, all that occurred to me was the facetious thought that perhaps they ought to have varied the sepoys' rations. I didn't think much of the political man Skeen's judgment either. I'd been a political myself and it's part of the job to scream at your own shadow, but if he, or Ellenborough, who knew India outside in, was smelling a sepoy revolt in a few mouldy biscuits, well, it was ludicrous. I knew John Sepoy. We all did, didn't we? For the most loyal ass who ever put on uniform. And so he should have been, the way the company treated him. However, it wasn't for me to venture an opinion in such august company, particularly with the Prime Minister listening. He'd pushed his papers aside and risen and was pouring himself some more port. "'Well, now,' says he briskly, taking a hearty swig and rolling it round his teeth, "'you've admired his lordship's cakes. What? Damned unappetizing they look, too. All right, Barrington, your assistants can go. Our special leaves at four, does it? Very well.' He waited till the junior secretaries had gone muttered something about ungodly hours and the Queen's perversity in choosing a country retreat at the North Pole, and paced stiffly over to the fire, where he set his back to the mantel and glowered at me from beneath his gorse-bush brows, which was enough to set my dinner circulating in the old accustomed style. "'Tokens of revolution in an Indian garrison,' says he. "'Very good. Been reading that report of yours again, Flashman.' 
the one you made to the Lousy last year, in which you described the discovery you made while you were a prisoner in Russia, about their scheme for invading India while we were busy in Crimea. Of course, we say nothing about that these days. Peace signed with Russia, all good fellowship and be damned, etc. Don't have to tell you. But something in your report came to mind when this cake business began. He pushed out his big lip at me. You wrote that the Russian march across the Indus was to be accompanied by a native rising in India, fomented by Tsarist agents. Our politicals have been chasing that fox ever since, picking up some interesting scents, of which these infernal buns are the latest. Now then, he settled himself, eyes half shut but watching me, tell me precisely what you heard in Russia, touching on an Indian rebellion, every word of it. So I told him, exactly as I remembered it, how Scud East and I had lain quaking in our nightshirts in the gallery at Starotorsk and overheard about Item 7, which was the Russian plan for an invasion of India. They'd have done it too, but Yakub Beg's riders scuppered their army up on the Sir Daria, with Flashy running about roaring with a bellyful of bang, performing unconscious prodigies of valour. I'd set it all out in my report to Dalousie, leaving out the discreditable bits, you can find those in my earlier memoirs, along with the licentious details. It was a report of nicely judged modesty, that official one, calculated to convince Dalousie that I was the nearest thing to Hereward the Wake he was ever likely to meet, and why not? I'd suffered for my credit. But the information about an Indian rebellion had been slight. All we'd discovered was that when the Russian army reached the Khyber, their agents in India would rouse the natives, and particularly John Company's sepoys, to rise against the British. I didn't doubt it was true at the time. It seemed an obvious ploy. But that was more than a year ago, and Russia was no threat to India any longer, I supposed. They heard me out, in a silence that lasted a full minute after I'd finished, and then Wood says quietly, "'It fits, my lord.' "'Too damn well!' says Pam, and came hobbling back to his chair again. It's all pat. You see, Flashman, Russia may be spent as an armed power for the present, but that don't mean she'll leave us at peace in India. What? This scheme for a rebellion? By George, if I were a Russian political, invasion or no invasion, I fancy I could achieve something in India, given the right agents. Couldn't I just, though? He growled in his throat, heaving restlessly and cursing his gouty foot. Did you know there's an Indian superstition that the British Raj will come to an end exactly a hundred years after the Battle of Plassey? He picked up one of the chapatis and peered at it. Damn thing isn't even sugared. Well, the hundredth anniversary of Plassey falls next June the 23rd. Interesting. Now then, tell me, what do you know about a Russian nobleman called Count Nicholas Ignatieff. He shot it at me so abruptly that I must have started a good six inches. There's a choice collection of ruffians whose names you can mention if you want to ruin my digestion for an hour or two. Charity Spring and Bismarck, Rudy Starnberg and Wesley Hardin, for example. But I'd put N.P. Ignatieff up with the leaders any time. He was the brute who'd nearly put pay to me in Russia. A gotch-eyed, freezing gowl of a man who dragged me halfway to China in chains and threatened me with exposure in a cage and knouting to death and like pleasantries. 
I hadn't cared above half for the conversation thus far, with its bloody mutiny cakes and the sinister way they kept dragging in my report to Delousy. But at the introduction of Ignatius' name, my bowels began to play the hallelujah chorus in earnest. It took me all my time to keep a straight face and tell Pam what I knew, that Ignatius had been one of the late Tsar's closest advisers, and that he was a political agent of immense skill and utter ruthlessness. I ended with a reminiscence of the last time I had seen him, under that hideous row of gallows at Fort Rhine. Ellenborough exclaimed in disgust, Wood shuddered delicately, and Pam sipped his port. "'Interest in life you've led,' says he. "'Thought I remembered his name from your report.' He was one of the prime movers behind the Russian plan for invasion and Indian rebellion, as I recall. Capable chap. What? My lord, says I, he's the devil, and that's a fact. Just so, says Pam, and the devil will find mischief. He nodded to Ellenborough. Tell him, my lord. Pay close heed to this, Flashman. Ellenborough cleared his throat and fixed his boozy spaniel eyes on me. Count! Ignatieff, says he, has made two clandestine visits to India in the past year. Our politicals first had word of him last autumn at Guzni. He came over the Khyber disguised as an Afridi horse-coper to Peshwar. There we lost him, as you might expect, one disguised man among so many natives. But, my lord, that can't be. I couldn't help interrupting. You can't lose Ignatieff if you know what to look for. However he's disguised, there's one thing he can't hide. His eyes. One of them's half brown, half blue. He can if he puts a patch over it, says Ellenborough. India's full of one-eyed men. In any event, we picked up his trail again, and on both occasions it led to the same place. Jahansi. He spent two months there, all told, usually out of sight, and our people were never able to lay a hand on him. What he was doing they couldn't discover, except that it was mischief. Now we see what the mischief was. And he pointed to the Chapatis, brewing insurrection, beyond a doubt, and having done his infernal work back over the hills to Afghanistan. This summer he was in St. Petersburg, but from what our politicals did learn, he's expected back in Jahansi again. We don't know when. No doubt it was the subject under discussion, but there didn't seem to be an ounce of heat coming from the blazing fire behind me. The room felt suddenly cold, and I was aware of the rain slashing at the panes and the wind moaning in the dark outside. I was looking at Ellenborough, and in his face I could see Ignatius' hideous party-coloured eye and hear that soft, icy voice hissing past the long cigarette between his teeth. "'Plain enough, what?' says Pam. "'The mine's laid, in Jahansi, and, if it explodes, God knows what might follow. India looks tranquil enough, but how many other Jahansis, how many other Ignatius are there?' he shrugged. "'We don't know.' But we can be certain there's no more sensitive spot than this one. The Russians have picked Jahansi with care. We only annexed it four years ago, on the old Raja's death, and we've still barely more than a foothold there. 
Thug country, it used to be, still pretty wild. For all, it's one of the richest thrones in India. Worst of all, it's ruled by a woman, the Rani, the Rajah's widow. She was old when she married him, I gather, and there was no legitimate heir, so we took it under our wing, and she didn't like it. She rules under our tutelage these days, but she remains as implacable an enemy as we have in India. Fertile soil for Master Ignatiev to sow his plots. He paused and then looked straight at me. Aye. The mine's laid in Jahanzi, but precisely when and where they'll try to fire it, and whether it'll go off or not, this we must know, and prevent at all costs. The way he said it went through me like an icicle. I'd been sure all along that I wasn't being lectured for fun, but now, looking at their heavy faces, I knew that unless my poltroon instinct was sadly at fault, some truly hellish proposal was about to emerge. I waited, quaking for the axe to fall, while Pam stirred his false teeth with his tongue, which was a damned unnerving sight, I may tell you, and then delivered sentence. Last week, the Board of Control decided to send an extraordinary agent to Jahanzi. His task will be to discover what the Russians have been doing there. How serious is the unrest in the Sepoy garrison, and to deal with this hostile bell dam of a Rani by persuading her, if possible, that loyalty to the British Raj is in her best interest. He struck his finger on the table. And if and when this man Ignatieff returns to Jahanzi again, to deal with him too. Not a task for an ordinary political, you'll agree. No. But I was realising with mounting horror who they did think it was a task for. But I could only sit with my spine dissolving and my face set in an expression of attentive idiocy while he went inexorably on. The Board of Control chose you. Without hesitation, Flashman, I approved the choice myself. You don't know it, but I've been watching you since my time as Foreign Secretary. You've been a political and a deuce successful one. I dare say you think that the work you did in Middle Asia last year has gone unrecognised, but that's not so. He rumbled at me impressively, wagging his great fat head. You've the highest name as an active officer. You've proved your resource. You know India, fluent in languages, including Russian, which could be of the first importance. What? You know this man Ignatieff by sight, and you've bested him before. You see, I know all about you, Flashman. "'You old fool!' I wanted to shout. "'You don't know anything of the bloody sort. "'You ain't fit to be Prime Minister, if that's what you think. "'And I know of no one else so fitted to this work. "'How old are you? Thirty-four? "'Young enough to go a long way yet, for your country and yourself.' "'And the old buffoon tried to look sternly inspiring with his teeth gurgling. "'It was appalling. "'God knows I've had my crosses to bear, but this beat all.' As so often in the past, I was the victim of my own glorious and entirely unearned reputation. Flashy, the hero of Jalalabad, the last man out of the Kabul retreat and the first man into the Balaclava battery, the beau sobreur of the light cavalry, Queen's Medal, thanks of Parliament, darling of the mob, with a liver as yellow as yesterday's custard, if they'd only known it. And there was nothing, with Pam's eye on me and Edinburgh and Wood looking solemnly on, that I could do about it. 
Oh, if I'd followed my best instincts, I could have fled wailing from the room, or fallen blubbering at some convenient foot, but of course I didn't. With sick fear mounting in my throat, I knew that I'd have to go, and that was that. Back to India, with its heat and filth and flies and dangers and poxy niggers, to undertake the damnest mission since Bismarck put me on the throne of Strakens. But this was infinitely worse. Bismarck's crew had been as choice a collection of villains as ever jumped bail or slit a throat, but they were civilised by comparison with Ignatieff. The thought of dealing with that devil, as Pam so nicely put it, was enough to send me into a decline. And if that wasn't enough, I was to sneak about some savage Indian kingdom, thug country for a bonus, spying on some withered old bitch of an Indian princess and trying to wheedle her to British interest against her will, and she probably the kind of hag whose idea of fun would be to chain malefactors to a rogue elephant's foot. Most Indian rulers are mad, you know, and capable of anything. But there wasn't the slightest chance to wriggle. All I could do was put on my muscular Christian expression, look Palmerston fearlessly in the eye like Dick Champion when the headmaster gives him the job of teaching the fags not to swear, and say I'd do my best. "'Well enough,' says he. "'I know you will. Who knows? Perhaps the signs are false. What? Tokens of mutiny in a place where Russia's been stirring the pot, and the local rulers chafing under our authority. It happened before.' and it may amount to nothing in the end. But if the signs are true, make no mistake. And he gave me his steady stare. It's the gravest peril our country has faced since Bonaparte. It's no light commission we're placing in your hands, sir. But they're the safest hands in England, I believe. So, help me God, it's absolutely what he said. It makes you wonder how these fellows ever get elected. I believe I made some manly sounds, and, as usual, my sick terror must have been manifesting itself by making me red in the face, which, in a fellow of my size, is often mistaken for noble resolution. It must have satisfied Pam, anyway, for suddenly he was smiling at me and sitting back in his chair. Now you know why you're sitting here talking to the Prime Minister. What? Been sitting on eggshells, haven't you? Never mind. I'm glad to have had the opportunity of instructing you myself. Of course, you'll be more fully informed before you sail of all the intelligence you'll need. His lordship here and Mangles at the board in London will be talking to you. When do you take leave of Her Majesty? Another week? Come, that's too long. When does the India sloop sail, Barrington? Monday. You'll be best off to town on Friday, then. Leave pretty little Mrs. Flashman to take care of royalty. What? Stunning gal, that. Never see her from my window on Piccadilly, but it sets me in humour. Must make her acquaintance when you come home. Bring her along to number 96 some evening. Dinner and so forth. What? He sat there, beaming like Pickwick. It turned my stomach at the time, and small wonder, considering the stew he was launching me into. And yet, when I think back on Pam nowadays, that's how I see him. Painted whiskers, sloppy false teeth and all, grinning like a happy urchin. You never saw such... "'young peepers in a tired old face. "'I can say it now, from the safety of my declining years, "'in spite of the hellish pickle he landed me in, "'I'd swap any politician I ever met for old Pam. "'Damn him! "'However, now that he'd put the doom on me, "'he couldn't get rid of me fast enough. 
Before I'd been properly shooed out of the room, he was snapping at Barrington to find some American telegraph or other, and chivying at Wood that they must soon be off to catch their special train at Aberdeen. It must have been about three in the morning, but he was still full of bounce, and the last I saw of him he was dictating a letter even as they helped him into his coat and muffler, with people bustling around him, and he was breaking off to peer again at the chapatis on the table and ask Ellenborough, did the Hindus eat him with meat or any kind of relish? "'Blasted buns,' says he. "'Might do with jam, do you think? What? No, better not. Uh, crumble and get under my confounded teeth, probably.' He glanced up and caught sight of me bowing my farewell from the doorway. "'Good night to you, Flashman,' he sings out, "'and good hunting. You look out sharp for yourself, mind.' So that was how I got my marching orders, in a snap of the fingers almost. Two hours earlier I'd been rogering happily away with not a care in the world, and now I was bound for India on the most dangerous lunatic mission I'd ever heard of. By God!' I cursed the day I'd written that report to de Lousey, glorifying myself into a soup. And fine soup it promised to be, rumours of mutiny, mad old Indian princesses, thugs, and Ignatieff and his jackals lurking in the undergrowth. You can imagine I didn't get much rest in what was left of the night. Elsbeth was fast asleep, looking glorious with the candlelight on her blonde hair tumbled over the pillow and her rosebud lips half open, snoring like the town band. I was too fretful to rouse her in her favourite way, so I just shook her awake. And I must say she bore the news of our impending parting with remarkable composure. At least she wept inconsolably for five minutes at the thought of being bereft while her Hector, that's me, was braving the dangers of India, fondled my whiskers and said she and little Havy would be quite desolate, whimpered sadly while she teased me, in an absent-minded way, into mounting her. And then— remembered she had left her best silk gloves behind at the evening's party, and that she had a spot on her left shoulder which no amount of cream would send away. It's nice to know you're going to be missed. I had three days still left at Balmoral, and the first of them was spent closeted with Ellenborough and a sharp little creature from the Board of Control who lectured me in maddening detail about my mission to Jehansi and conditions in India. I won't weary you with it here, for you'll learn about Jehansi and its attendant horrors and delights in due course. Sufficient to say, it did nothing but deepen my misgivings. And then on the Wednesday morning something happened which drove everything else clean out of my mind. It was such a shock, such an unbelievable coincidence in view of what had gone before, or so it seemed at the time, that I can still think back to it with disbelief, aye, and start sweating at the thought. I'd had a thoroughly drunken night at Abergeldy to take my mind off the future, and when I woke cloth-headed and surly on the Wednesday morning, Elspeth suggested that instead of breakfast I'd be better going for a canter. I damned her advice and sent for a horse, left her weeping sulkily into her boiled egg, and ten minutes later was galloping the fumes away along the Balmoral Road. I reached the castle and trotted up as far as the carriage entrance. Beyond it, on the far side of the gravel sweep, one of the big castle coaches that brought quality visitors from Aberdeen Station was drawn up, and flunkies were handing down the arrivals and bowing them towards the steps leading to the side door. Some more poor fools of consequence about to savour the royal hospitality, thinks I, and was just about to turn my horse away when I happened to glance again at the group of gentlemen in travelling capes who were mounting the steps. One of them turned to say something to the flunkies, and I nearly fell from the saddle, 
and only saved myself by clutching the mane with both hands. I believe I nearly fainted, for it was something infinitely worse than a ghost. It was real, even if it was utterly impossible. The man on the steps, spruce in the rig of an English country gentleman, and now turning away into the castle, was the man I'd last seen beside the line of carrion gallows at Fort Ryan. The man Palmerston was sending me to India to defeat and kill. Count Nicholas Pavlovich Ignatieff. You're sure? croaked Ellenborough. No, no, Flashman, it can't be. Count Ignatieff, whom we were discussing two nights since, here? Impossible. My lord, says I. I've good cause to know him better than most, and I tell you, he's in the castle now, gotch eye and all, cool as damn your eyes, in a tweed cape and deerstalker hat, so help me. He was there, at the door, not ten minutes ago. He plumped down on a chair, mopping at the shaving soap on his cheeks. I'd practically had to manhandle his valet to be admitted, and I'd left a trail of startled minions on the back stairs in my haste to get to his room. I was still panting from exertion to say nothing of shock. I want an explanation of this, my lord, says I, for I'll not believe it's chance. What do you mean? says he, goggling. Two nights ago we talked of precious little else but this Russian monster, how he'd been spying the length and breadth of India in the very place to which I'm being sent, and now he turns up, the very man. Is that coincidence? I was in such a taking I didn't stand on ceremony. How comes he's in the country, even? Will you tell me? Lord Palmerston didn't know? My God, Flashman! His big, mottled face looked shocked. What do you mean by that? I mean, my lord, says I, trying to hold myself in, that there's precious little that happens anywhere, let alone in England, that Lord Palmerston doesn't know about. Is it possible that he's unaware that the most dangerous agent in Russia, and one of their leading nobles to boot, is promenading about as large as life? and never a word the other night, when— Wait! Wait! cries he, wattling. That's a monstrous suggestion. Contain yourself, sir. Are you positive it's Ignatieff? I was ready to burst, but I didn't. I'm positive. Stay here, says he, and bustled out, and for ten minutes I chewed my nails until he came back, shutting the door behind him carefully. He had got his normal beetroot colour back, but he looked damned rattled. It's true, says he. Count Ignatieff is here with Lord Aberdeen's party, as guest of the Queen. It seems, you know we have Granville in Petersburg just now for the new Tsar's coronation. Well, a party of Russian noblemen, the first since the war, have just arrived in Leith yesterday, bringing messages of goodwill or God knows what from the new monarch to the Queen. Someone had written to Aberdeen. I don't know it all yet, and he brought them with him on his way north, with this fellow among them. It's extraordinary, the damnedest chance. Chance, my lord, says I. I'll need some convincing of that. Good God, what else? I'll allow it's long odds, but I'm certain if Lord Palmerston had had the least inkling. He trailed off, and you could see the sudden doubt of his own precious Prime Minister written on his jowly face. Oh, but the notion's preposterous. What purpose could it serve not to tell us? No, he would certainly have told me. And you, I'm sure. Well, I wasn't sure. 
From what I'd heard of Pam's sense of humour, I'd have put nothing past him. And yet it would have been folly, surely, with me on the point of setting off for India, ostensibly to undo Ignatius' work, to have let him come face to face with me, and then the wildest thought. Was it possible Ignatius knew about my mission? "'Never!' trumpets Ellenborough. "'No, that couldn't be. The decision to send you out was taken a bare two weeks since. It would be to credit the Russian intelligence system with superhuman powers, and if he did, what could he accomplish here? Damn it, in the Queen's own home. This isn't Middle Asia. It's a civilised country. My lord, that's not a civilised man,' says I. "'But what's to be done? I can't meet him.' "'Let me think,' says he, and strode about, heaving his stomach around. Then he stopped, heavy with decision. "'I think you must,' says he. "'And if he has seen you or finds out that you were here and left before your time, wait, though. It might be put down to tact on your part. Still, no,' he snapped his fingers at me. "'No, you must stay. Better to behave as though there was nothing untoward. Leave no room to excite suspicion. After all, former enemies meet in time of peace, don't they?' And we'll watch him. By George, we will. Perhaps we'll learn something ourselves. Ha, ha! And this was the port-sodden clown who had once governed India. I had never heard such an idiot suggestion, but could I shift him? I pleaded, in the name of common sense, that I should leave at once, but he wouldn't have it. I do believe that at the back of his mind was the suspicion that Pam had known Ignatieff was coming, and Ellenborough was scared to tinker with the chief's machinations, whatever they were. "'You'll stay!' he commanded. "'And that's flat! What the devil! It's just a freak of fate! And if it's not, there's nothing this Russian rascal can do. I'll tell you what, though. I'm not going to miss his first sight of you. What? The man he threatened with torture and worse. Disgusting brute!' Aye, and the man who bested him in the end. Ha, ha! And he clapped me on the shoulder. Aye, hope nothing happens to embarrass the Queen, though. Your mind out for that, Flashman, won't you? It wouldn't do. Any unpleasantness, eh? I minded out all right. Strangely enough, by the time I came back to the castle with Elspeth that afternoon, my qualms about coming face to face again with that Russian wolf had somewhat subsided. I'd reminded myself that we weren't meeting on his ground any more, but on mine, and that the kind of power he'd once had over me was a thing quite past. Still, I won't pretend I was feeling at ease, and I drummed it into Elsbeth's head that not a hint must be let slip about my ensuing departure for India or Pam's visit. She took it in wide-eyed and assured me she would not dream of saying a word. But I realised with exasperation that you couldn't trust any warning to take root in that beautiful empty head. As we approached the drawing-room doors, she was prattling away about what wedding presents she should suggest to the Queen for Mary Seymour, and I, preoccupied, said offhand, why not a lusty young coachman, and immediately regretted it. You couldn't be sure she wouldn't pass it on. And then the doors opened, we were announced, and the heads in the room were all turning towards us. There was the Queen, in the middle of the sofa, with a lady and gentleman behind. Albert propping up the mantelpiece and lecturing to old Aberdeen, who appeared to be asleep on his feet. Half a dozen assorted courtiers, and Ellenborough staring across the room, as we made our bows, and the Queen says, "'Ah, Mrs. Flashman, you are come just in time to help with the service of tea.' I was following Ellenborough's glance, and there was Ignatieff, with another Russian-looking grandee and a couple of our own gentry. He was staring at me. 
and by God, he never so much as blinked or twitched a muscle. I made my little bow towards Albert, and as I turned to face Ignatieff again, I felt, God knows why, a sudden rush of to hell with it take hold of me. My dear Count, says I, astonished, and everyone stopped talking. The Queen looked pop-eyed, and even Albert left off prosing to the noble corpse beside him. Surely it's Count Ignatieff, cries I, and then broke off in apology. Your pardon, ma'am, says I to Vicky. I was quite startled. I had no notion Count Ignatieff was here. Forgive me. But, of course, by this time she was all curiosity, and I had to explain that Count Ignatieff was an old comrade in arms, so to speak. What? And beam in his direction, while she smiled uncertainly, but not displeased, and Ellenborough played up well, and told Albert that he'd heard me speak of being Ignatieff's prisoner during the late war, but had had no idea this was the same gentleman, and Albert looked disconcerted, and said that was most remarkable. Indeed, Highness, I had that honour, says Ignatieff, clicking his heels, and the sound of that chilly voice made my spine tingle, but there was nothing he could do but take the hand I stretched out to him. This is splendid, old fellow, says I, gripping him as though he were my long-lost brother. Wherever have you been keeping yourself? One or two of them smiled, to see bluff flash Harry so delighted at meeting an old enemy, just what they'd have expected, of course, and when the Queen had been made quite au fait with the situation, she said it was exactly like Fitzjames and Roderick Dhu. So after that it was quite jolly, and Albert made a group with Ignatieff and Ellenborough and me, and questioned me about our acquaintance, and I made light of my captivity and escape, and said what a charming jailer Ignatieff had been, and the brute just stood, impassive, with his tawny head bowed over his cup, and looking me over with that amazing half-blue, half-brown eye. He was still the same handsome, broken-nosed young iceberg I remembered. If I'd closed my eyes, I could have heard the lash whistling and cracking in Arabat courtyard, with the Cossack's grip on my arms. Albert, of course, was much struck by the coincidence of our meeting again, and preached a short sermon about the brotherhood of men-at-arms, to which Ignatieff smiled politely, and I cried, "'Hear, hear!' It was difficult to guess, but I judged my Muscovite monster wasn't enjoying this too much. He must have been wondering why I pretended to be so glad to see him. But I was all affability. I even presented him to Elspeth, and he bowed and kissed her hand. She was very demure and cool, so I knew she fancied him the little trollop. The truth is, my natural insolence was just asserting itself as it always does when I feel it's safe. When a moment came when Ignatieff and I were left alone together, I thought I'd stick a pin in him just for sport, so I asked quietly, "'Brought your knout with you, Count?' He looked at me a moment before replying, "'It is in Russia,' says he, "'waiting. "'So, I have no doubt, is Count Penchajewski's daughter.' "'Oh, yes,' says I, "'little Valor. "'Is she well, do you know?' I have no idea, but if she is, it is no fault of yours. He glanced away towards Elsbeth and the others. Easy. She never complained to me, says I, grinning at him. On that tack, if I'm well, it's no fault of yours, either. That is true, says he, 
and the eye was like a sword-point. However, may I suggest that the less we say about our previous acquaintance, the better. I gather from your charade a little while ago, designed no doubt to impress your queen, that you are understandably reluctant that the truth of your behavior there should be made public. Oh, come now, says I, "'Twasn't a patch on yours, old boy. "'What would the court of Balmoral think "'if they knew that the charming Russian nobleman "'with the funny eye was a murderous animal "'who flogs innocent men to death "'and tortures prisoners of war? "'Thought about that?' "'If you think you were tortured, Colonel Fleshman,' "'says he, poker-faced, "'then I congratulate you on your ignorance.' "'He put down his cup. "'I find this conversation tedious, "'if you will excuse me.' "'And he turned away.' "'Oh, sorry if you're bored,' says I. "'I was forgetting you probably haven't cut a throat "'or burned a peasant in a week.' "'It was downright stupid of me, no doubt. Two hours earlier I'd been quaking at the thought of meeting him again, "'and here I was, sassing him to my heart's content. "'But I can never resist a jibe and a gloat "'when the enemy's hands are tied, as Thomas Hughes would tell you. "'Ignatieff didn't seem nearly as fearsome here "'among the teacups with chaps toadying the royals "'and crest sandwiches being handed round, "'and Ellenborough flirting ponderously with Elsbeth "'while the Queen complained to old Aberdeen "'that it was the press which had killed Lord Hardinge "'in her uncle Leopold's opinion. "'No, not fearsome at all, "'without his chains and gallows and dungeons "'and power of life and death, "'and never so much as a Cossack thug to bless himself with. I should have remembered that men like Nicholas Ignatieff are dangerous anywhere, usually when you least expect it. And I was far from expecting anything the next day, the last full one I was to spend at Balmoral. It was a miserable, freezing morning, I remember, with flurries of sleet along the rain and low clouds rolling down off Loch Naga. The kind of day when you put your nose out once and then settle down to punch and billiards with the boys and build the fire up high. But not Prince Albert. There were roe-deer reported in great numbers at Balochbui, and nothing would do but we must be drummed out cursing for a stork. I'd have slid back to Abergeldy if I could, but he nailed me in the hall with Ellenborough. Why, Colonel Fleshman, where are your gaiters? Have you not called for your loader yet? Come, gentlemen, in this weather we have only a few hours. Let us be off and he strutted about in his ridiculous alpine hat and tartan cloak, while the loaders were called and the brakes made ready, and the gillies loafed about, grinning on the terrace with the guns and pouches. They knew I loathed it, and that Ellenborough couldn't carry his guts more than ten yards without a rest, and the brutes enjoyed our discomfiture. There were four or five other guns in the party, and presently we drove off into the rain, huddling under the tarpaulin covers as we jolted away from the castle on the unmade road. The country round Balmoral is primitive at the best of times. On a dank autumn day, it's like an illustration from Bunyan's Holy War, especially near our destination, which was an eerie, dreary forest of firs among the mountains, with great patches of bog and gullies full of broken rocks, and heather waist-deep on the valley sides. The road petered out there, and we clambered out of the brakes and stood in the pouring wet while Albert, full of energy and bloodlust, planned the campaign. We were to spread out singly with our loaders and drive ahead up to the high ground, because the mist was hanging fairly thick by this time, and if we kept together we might miss the stags altogether. 
We were just about to start on our squelching climb when another brake came rolling up the road, and who should pile out but the Russian visitors, with one of the local bigwigs all dressed for the hill. Albert, of course, was delighted. Come, gentlemen, cries he, this is capital. What? There are no bears in our Scottish mountains, but we can show you fine sport among the deer. General Menshikov, will you accompany me? Count Ignatieff, ah, where is Flashman? I was having a quick swig from Ellenborough's flask, and as the prince turned towards me and I saw Ignatieff at his elbow, very trim in tweeds and top boots with a fur cap on his head and a heavy piece under his arm, I suddenly felt as though I'd been kicked in the stomach. In that second I had a vision of those lonely gully-crossed crags above us, with their great reaches of forest in which you could get lost for days, and mist blotting out sight and sound of all companions and myself alone, with Ignatieff downwind of me, armed, and with that split eye of his raking the trees and heather for a sight of me. It hadn't even occurred to me that he might be in the shooting party, but here he came, strolling across, and behind him a great burly, unmistakable moujik, in smock and boots, carrying his pouches. Ellenborough stiffened and shot a glance at me. For myself I was wondering frantically if I could plead indisposition at the last minute. I opened my mouth to say something, and then Albert was summoning Ellenborough to take the left flank, and Ignatieff was standing watching me coolly, with the rain beating down between us. "'I have my own loader,' says he, indicating the moujik. "'He is used to heavy game. "'Bears, as his royal highness says, and wolves. "'However, he has experience of lesser animals. "'And vermin, even. "'I—I—' I, it had all happened so quickly that I couldn't think of what to say or do. Albert was dispatching the others to their various starting points. The first of them were already moving off into the mist. As I stood dithering, Ignatieff stepped closer, glancing at my own gilly, who was a few yards away, and said quietly in French, I did not know you were going to India, Colonel. My congratulations on your appointment. A regimental command, perhaps. Eh? What do you mean? I started in astonishment. Surely nothing less, says he, for such a distinguished campaigner as yourself. I don't know what you're talking about, I croaked. Have I been misinformed, or have I misunderstood your charming wife? When I had the happiness to pay my respects to her this morning, I understood her to say, but there, I may have been mistaken. When one encounters a lady of such exceptional beauty— I fear one tends to look rather than to listen. He smiled, something I'd never seen him do before. It reminded me of a frozen river breaking up. But I think his royal highness is calling you, Colonel. Fleshman! I tore myself away from the hypnotic stare of that split eye. There was Albert waving at me impatiently. Will you take the lead on the right flank? Come, sir, we are losing time. It will be dark before we can come up to the beasts. If I'd had any sense, I'd have bolted or gone into a swoon or claimed a sprained ankle. But I didn't have time to think. The royal nincompoop was gesticulating at me to be off. My loader was already ploughing into the trees just ahead. One or two of the others had turned to look, and Ignatieff was smiling coldly at my evident confusion. I hesitated and then started after the loader. As I entered the trees, I took one quick glance back. Ignatieff was standing beside the brake, lighting a cigarette, waiting for Albert to set him on his way. I gulped. 
and plunged into the trees. The ghillie was watching for me under the branches. He was one of your grinning, freckled, red-haired Highlanders called McCleos, or something equally unpronounceable. I'd had him before, and he was a damn good shikari. They all are, of course. Well, I was going to stick to him like glue this trip, I told myself, and the farther we got away from our Russian sportsman in quick time, the better. As I strode through the fir wood, ducking to avoid the whippy branches, I heard Albert's voice faintly behind us, and pressed on even harder. At the far side of the wood I paused, staring up at the hillside ahead of us. What the devil was I getting in such a stew for? My heart racing like a trip hammer, and the sweat running down me in spite of the chill. This wasn't Russia. It was a civilised shooting party in Scotland. Ignatieff wouldn't dare to try any devilment here. It had just been the surprise of his sudden appearance at the last minute that had unmanned me. Wouldn't he, though? By God! He'd try anything, that one. And he knew about my going to India, thanks to that blathering idiot I'd married in an evil hour. Shooters had been hit before, up on the crags in bad light. It could be made to look like an accident, mistaken for a stag, heavy miss, tragic error, never forgive himself. Come on, I yammered and stumbled over the rocks for a gully that opened to our left. There was another one straight ahead, but I wasn't having that. The ghillie protested that if we went left we might run into the nearest shooters. That was all right with me, and I ignored him and clambered over the rubble at the gully foot, plunging up to the knee in a boggy patch and almost dropping my gun. I stole a glance back, but there was no sign of anyone emerging from the wood. I sprang into the gully and scrambled upwards. It was a gruelling climb through the huge heather bushes that flanked the stream, and then it was bracken, six feet high, with a beaten rabbit path that I went up at a run. At the top the gully opened out into another great mass of firs, and not until we were well underneath them did I pause, heaving like a bellows, and the ghillie patted up beside me, not even breathing hard, and grinning surprise on his face. Cracky, good gracious!' says he, "'You're eager to be at the pistes the day. "'What's the great running, whatever?' "'Is this piece loaded?' says I, and held it out. "'What for would it be?' says the clown. "'We'll no be near a deer for half an hour yet. "'There's no occasion. "'Load the damn thing,' says I. "'And have you ploughing your bloody head off, the haste you're in? "'She'll look well then, right enough.' "'Damn you, do as you're told,' says I. So he shrugged and spat and looked his disgust as he put in the charge. "'Mind, there's two great pullets in there now,' says he as he handed it back. "'If you've as much sense as a whoops neb, you'll keep the cups in your pooch until we sight the deer.' "'They've no respect, those people.' I snatched it from him and made off through the wood, and for ten minutes we pushed on, always upwards, through another long gully and along a rocky ledge over a deep stream.' where the mist hung in swirls among the rowan trees, and the foam drifted slowly by on the brown pools. It was as dark as dusk, although it was still early afternoon. There was no sound of another living soul and nothing moving on the low cliffs above us. By this time I was asking myself again if I hadn't been over-anxious, and at the same time wondering if it wouldn't be safest to lie up here till dark and buy the ghillie's silence with a sovereign, or keep moving to our left to reach the other guns. And then he gave a sudden exclamation and stopped, "'frowning and putting a hand on his belly. "'He gave a little barking cough, "'and his ruddy face was pale as he turned to me. "'Oh,' says he, "'what's this? "'All of a sudden my puddin' is pud.' "'What is it?' says I impatiently, "'and he sat down on a rock, 
holding himself and making strange noises. I, I don't know. It's my belly. There's some mischief in herself. Oof. Are you ill? Oh, God. I don't know. His face was green. What do these foreign puggers take to drink? It's... Oh, it must be the spirits young great hairy fella gave me before we came up. Oh, mither, isn't it hellish? Oh, stop you till I vomit. But he couldn't. Try as he would, but leaned against the rock in obvious pain, rubbing at himself and groaning. And I watched him in horror, for there was no doubt what had happened. Ignatius' man had drugged or poisoned him so that I'd be alone on the hill. The sheer ruthlessness of it, the hellish calculation, had me trembling to my boots. They would come on me alone, and—but wait. Whatever he'd been given, it couldn't be fatal. Two corpses on one shoot would be too much to explain away, and one of them poisoned at that. No, it must just be a drug to render him helpless, and of course I would turn back down the hill to get help, and they'd be there. "'Stay where you are. I'll get help,' says I, and lit out along the ledge, but not in the direction we'd come. It was up and over the hills for Flashy, and my groaning gilly could be taken care of when time served. I scudded round the corner of rock at the ledge's end, and through a forest of bracken, out into a clear space, and then into another fir wood, where I paused to get my bearings. If I bore off left... But which way was left? We'd taken so many turnings, among the confounded bogs and gullies, I couldn't be sure. And there was no sun to help. Suppose I went the wrong way and ran into them. God knows, in this maze of hills and heather, it would be easy enough. Should I go back to the stricken gilly and wait with him? I'd be safer in his company, but they might be up with him by now, lurking on the gully side, waiting. I stood, clutching my gun, sweating. It was silent as death under the fir trees, close as a tomb and dim. I could see out one side where there was bracken. That would be the place to lie up. So I stole forward on tiptoe, making no noise on the carpet of mould and needles. Near the wood's edge I waited, listening, no sound except my own breathing. I turned to enter the bracken and stood frozen, biting back a yelp of fear. Behind me, on the far side of the wood, a twig had snapped. For an instant I was paralysed, and then I was across the open space of turf and burrowing into the bracken for dear life. I went a few yards and then writhed round to look back. Through the stems and fronds I could see the trees I'd just left, gloomy and silent, but I was deep in cover. If I lay still, not to shake the bracken above me, no one could hope to spot me unless he trod on me. I burrowed down in the sodden grass, panting, and waited, with my ears straining. For five minutes nothing happened. There was only the dripping of the fronds and my own heart thumping. What made the suspense so hellish was the sheer unfairness of my predicament. I had been in more tight corners before than I care to count, but always in some godless savage part of the world like Afghanistan or Madagascar or Russia or St. Louis. It was damnable that I should be lurking in fear of my life in England, or Scotland, even. I hadn't been in this kind of terror on British soil since I'd been a miserable fag at rugby, carrying Bully Dawson's game-bag for him, and we'd had to hide from keepers at Brownsover. They'd caught me, too, and I'd only got off by peaching on Dawson and his pals and showing the keepers where, and suddenly, where there had been nothing a moment ago, a shadow moved in the gloom beneath the trees, stopped, and took on form in the half-light. 
Ignatieff was standing just inside the edge of the firwood. I stopped breathing while he turned his head this way and that, searching the thickets. He had his gun cocked, and by God, he wasn't looking for stags. Then he snapped his fingers, and the moujik came padding out of the dimness of the wood. He was healed and ready as well, his eyes glaring above his furs of beard. Ignatieff nodded to the left, and the great brute went prowling off that way, his piece presented in front of him. Ignatieff waited a few seconds and then took the way to the right. They both disappeared noiselessly, and I was left fumbling feverishly for my caps. I slid them under the hammers with trembling fingers, wondering whether to stay where I was or try to wriggle further back into the undergrowth. They would be on either side of me shortly, and if they turned into the bracken they might easily, and with the thought came a steady rustling to my left, deep in the green. It stopped and then started again, and it sounded closer. No doubt of it, someone was moving stealthily and steadily towards my hiding-place. It takes a good deal to stir me out of petrified fear, but that did it. I rolled on my side, trying to sweep my gun round to cover the sound. It caught in the bracken, and I hauled frantically at it to get it clear. God, what a din I must be making! And then the damned block must have caught on a stem, for one barrel went off like a thunderclap, and I was on my feet with a yell, tearing downhill through the bracken. I fairly flung myself through the high fronds. There was the crack of a shot behind me, and a ball buzzed overhead like a hornet. I went bounding through, came out in a clearing with furs on either side, down into a peat-cutting. I landed belly first in the stinking ooze, but I was up and struggling over the far side in an instant, for I could hear crashing in the bracken above me, and knew that if I lost an instant he'd get a second shot. I was plastered with muck like a tar and feather merchant, but I still had my gun, and then I must have trod on a loose stone, for I pitched headlong and went rolling and bumping down the slope, hit a rock and finished up winded and battered in a burn, trying frantically to scramble up and slithering on the slimy gravel underfoot. There was a thumping of boots on the bank. I started round, and there was the moujik, not ten yards away. I didn't even have time to look for my gun. I was sprawling half out of the burn, and the bastard had his piece at his shoulder, the muzzle looking me straight in the face. I yelled and grabbed for a stone. There was the crash of a gunshot, and the moujik dropped his piece, shrieking, and clutched at his arm as he toppled backwards among the rocks. "'Careful, Colonel,' says a voice behind me. "'He's only winged.' And there, standing not five yards off, with a smoking revolver in his hand, was a tall fellow in tweeds. He just gave me a nod, and then jumped lightly over the rocks and stood over the moujik, who was groaning and clutching his bleeding arm. "'Murderous swine, ain't you?' says the newcomer conversationally, and kicked him in the face. "'It's the only punishment he'll get, I'm afraid,' he added over his shoulder. "'No diplomatic scandals, you see.' And as he turned towards me, I saw to my amazement who it was. "'Hutton!' the tall chap with the long jaw who'd taken me to Palmerston only a few nights before. He put his pistol back in his armpit and came over to me. "'No bones broken? Bless me, you're a sight.' He pulled me to my feet. "'I'll say this, Colonel. You're the fastest man of a rough country I ever hoped to follow. I lost you in five minutes, but I kept track of our friends all right. Nice pair, ain't they, though? I wish to God it had been the other one I pulled trigger on. Oh, we won't see him again, never fret.' not until everyone's down the hill and he'll turn up cool as you like, never having been near you all day. What? But, but, you mean you expected this? No, not exactly, anyway, but I've been pretty much on hand since the Russian Brotherhood arrived, you know. 
We don't believe in taking chances, eh? Not with customers like Master Ignatiev. Enterprising chap, that. So when I heard he decided to join the shoot today, I thought I'd look along. Just as well I did, I think, says this astonishing fellow. Now, if you've got your wind back, I suggest we make our way down. Never mind our little wounded bird yonder. If he don't bleed to death, he'll find his way back to his master. Pity he shot himself by accident, ain't it? That'll be their story, I dare say, and we won't contradict it. Here. What are you about, sir? I was lunging for my fallen gun, full of murderous rage now that the danger was past. I'm going to blow that bloody peasant's head off, I roared, fumbling with the lock. I'll teach... Hold on, cries he, catching my arm, and he was positively grinning. Capital idea, I agree, but we mustn't, you see. One bullet in him can be explained away by his own clumsiness, but not two, eh? We mustn't have any scandal, Colonel, not involving Her Majesty's guests. Come along now. Let's be moving down so that Count Ignatieff, who I've no doubt is watching us this minute, can come to his stricken servant's assistance. After you, sir. He was right, of course. The irony of it was that although Ignatieff and his brute had tried to murder me, we daren't say so for diplomacy's sake. God knows what international complications there might have been. This didn't sink in with me at once. But his reminder that Ignatieff was still prowling about was enough to lend me wings down the hill. Not that even he'd have tried another shot with Hutton about, but I wasn't taking chances. I'll say this for the Secret Service, which is what Hutton was, of course. They're damned efficient. He had a gig waiting on the road. One of his assistants was dispatched to the help of my gilly, and within a half hour I was back in Balmoral through the servant's entrance being cleaned up and instructed by Hutton to put it about that I'd abandoned the shoot with a strained muscle. I'll inform my chiefs in London that Colonel Flashman had a fortunate escape from an unexpected danger arising from a chance encounter with an old Russian friend, says he, and that he is now fit and well to proceed on the important task ahead of him and that in the meantime I'm keeping an eye on him. Uh, no, sir, I'm sorry. I can't answer any of your questions, and I wouldn't if I could. Which left me in a fine state of consternation and bewilderment, wondering what to make of it all. My immediate thought was that Palmerston had somehow arranged the whole thing, in the hope that I'd kill Ignatieff, but even in my excited condition that didn't make sense. A likelier explanation was that Ignatieff, coming innocently to Balmoral and finding me on the premises, had decided to take advantage of the chance to murder me in revenge for the way I'd sold him the previous year. That, knowing the man and his ice-cold recklessness, was perfectly sound reasoning. But there was also the horrid possibility that he had found out about the job Palmerston had given me. God alone knew how, but he'd at least discovered from the idiot Elspeth that I was going to India, and had been out to dispose of me in the way of business. "'A preposterous notion!' was Ellenborough's answer, when I voiced my fears to him that night. "'He could not know why the board decision was highly secret and imparted only to the Prime Minister's most intimate circle. No, this is merely another example of the naked savagery of the Russian bear.' He was full of port and wattling furiously. "'And virtually in Her Majesty's "'Presence, too! Damnable! "'But of course we can say nothing, Flashman. "'It only remains,' says he, booming sternly, "'for you to mete out conclusive justice to this villain "'if you chance to encounter him in India. "'In the meantime, I'll see that the Lord Chamberlain "'excludes him from any diplomatic invitations "'which may be extended to St. Petersburg in future. "'By God, I will!' "'I ventured the cautious suggestion.' that it might be better, after what had happened, 
to send someone else to Jahanzi, just in case Ignatiev had tumbled to me, but Ellenborough wasn't even listening. He was as full of indignation at Ignatius' murderous impudence, not on my account, you'll note, but because it might have led to a scandal involving the Queen. Admittedly, you can't have it getting about that her guests have been trying to slaughter each other. The poor woman probably had enough trouble getting people to visit with Albert about the place. So, of course, we kept mum, and as Hutton had foreseen, it was put about and accepted that Ignatius Loder had had an accident with a gun, and everyone wagged their heads in sympathy, and the Queen sent the poor unfortunate fellow some shortbread and a tot of whisky. Ignatiev even had the crust to thank her after dinner, and I could feel Ellenborough at my elbow fairly bubbling with suppressed outrage, and to cap it all, the brute had the effrontery to challenge me to a game of billiards, and beat me hollow, too, in the presence of Albert and half a dozen others. I had to be certain there was a good crowd on hand, for God knows what he'd have tried if we'd gone to the pool-room alone. I'll say it for Nicholas Ignatieff, he was a bear-cat for nerve. He'd have been ready to brain me and claim afterwards it was a miscue. So now, having heard the prelude to my Indian mutiny adventure, you will understand why I don't care much for Balmoral. And if what happened there that September was trivial by comparison with what followed, well, I couldn't foresee that. Indeed, as I soothed my bruised nerves with brandy fomentations that night, I reflected that there were worse places than India. There was Aberdeenshire, with Ignatieff loose in the bracken, hoping to hang my head on his gunroom wall. I hadn't been able to avoid him here, but if we met again on the coral strand, it wasn't going to be my fault. I've never been stag-shooting from that day to this, either. Ellenborough was right. The company's too damned mixed. I remember young Fred Roberts, who's a field marshal now, which shows you what pull these Addiscombe Wallers have got, once saying that everyone hated India for a month and then loved it forever. I wouldn't altogether agree. But I'll allow that it had its attractions in the old days. You lived like a lord without having to work, waited on hand and foot, made money if you set your mind to it, and hardly exerted yourself at all except to hunt the beasts, thrash the men, and bull the women. You had to look sharp to avoid active service, of course, of which there was a lot about. I never fell very lucky that way, but even so, it wasn't a half-bad station most of the time. Personally, I put that down to the fact that in my young days India was a middle-class place for the British, where society people didn't serve if they could help it. Cardigan, for example, took one look and fled. It's different now, of course. Since it became a safe place, many of our best and most highly connected people have let the light of their countenances shine on India, with the results you might expect. Prices have gone up, service has gone down, and the women have got clap. So they tell me. Mind you, I could see things were changing even in 56 when I landed in Bombay. My first voyage to India, 16 years before, had lasted four months on a creaking East Indiaman. This time, in natty little government steam sloops, it had taken just about half that time, even with a vile journey by camel across the Suez Isthmus in between. And even from Bombay you could get the smell of civilization. They'd started the telegraph and were pushing ahead with the first railways. 
There were more white faces and businesses to be seen, and people weren't talking as they used to, of India as though it were a wild jungle with John Company strongholds here and there. In my early days, a journey from Calcutta to Peshawar had seemed half round the world, but no longer. It was as though the company was at last seeing India as one vast country, and realising that now the wars with the Sikhs and Maharatas and Afghans were things of the past, it was an empire that had to be ruled and run, quite apart from fighting and showing a nice profit in Leadenhall Street. It was far busier than I remembered it, and somehow the civilians seemed more to the fore nowadays than the military. Once the gossip on the verandas had all been about war in the north, or the thugs, or the bandit chiefs of the Nats, who'd have to be looked up some day. Now it was often as not about new mills or factories and even schools, and how there would be a railroad clear over to Madras in the next five years. And you'd be able to journey from Mrs. Blackwell's in Bombay to the Auckland in Calcutta without once putting on your boots. All sounds very peaceful and prosperous, says I, over a peg and a whore at Mother Souser's, like a good little political, you see. I was conducting my first researches in the best gossip mart I could find. Fine mixed clientele, Mother Sosa's, with nothing blacker than quarter-cast and exhibition dances that would have made a Paris gendarme blench. Well, if it's scuttlebutt you want, you don't go to a cathedral, do you? The chap who'd bought me the peg laughed and said, Prosperous, I should think so. My firm's divvy is up forty percent and will have new factories in Lahore and Allahabad, working before Easter, building churches, and when the universities come, there'll be contracts to last out my service, I can tell you. Universities, says I, not for the niggers, surely. The native peoples, says he primly, and the little snurb hadn't been out long enough to get his nose peeled, will soon be advanced beyond those of any country on earth. Heathen countries, that is, Lie still, you black bitch. Can't you see I'm fagged out? Yes, Lord Canning is very strong on education, I believe, and spreading the gospel, too. Well, that's bricks and mortar, ain't it? That's where to put your money, my boy. Dear me, says I, at this rate I'll be out of a job, I can see. Military, are you? Well, don't fret, old fellow. You can always apply to be sent to the frontiers. Quiet as that, is it? Even round Johansey? Where was that, my dear chap? He was just a pipsqueak, of course, and knew nothing. The little yellow piece I was exercising hadn't heard of Jahansi either, and when I asked her at a venture what chapatis were good for except eating, she didn't bat an eye, but giggled and said I was a very funny man and must buy her meringues, not chapatis. Yes? You may think I was wasting my time sniffing about in Bombay, but it's my experience that if there's anything untoward in a country, even one as big as India, you can sometimes get a scent in the most unexpected places, just from the way the natives look and answer. But it was the same, whoever I talked to, merchant or military, whore or missionary, no ripples at all. After a couple of days, when I'd got the old Urdu bat rolling familiarly off my palate again, I even browned up and put on a puggery and coat and pyjamas, and loafed about the Bund Bazaar, letting on I was a Mekran coast trader and listening to the clack. I came out rotten with fleas, stinking of nouch oil and cheap perfume and cooking ghee, with my ears full of beggars' wines and hawkers' jabbering, and the clang of the booths, but that was all. Still— it helped to get India back under my hide again, and that's important if you intend to do anything as a political.
Hello, says you, what's this? Not Flashy taking his duty seriously for once, surely. Well, I was, and for a good reason. I didn't take Pam's foreboding seriously, but I knew I was bound to go to Jehansi and make some sort of showing in the task he'd given me. The thing was to do it quickly. If I could have a couple of official chats with this Rani woman, look into the business of the Sepoy Cakes and conclude that Skeen, the Jehansi political, was a nervous old woman, I could fire off a report to Calcutta and withdraw gracefully. What I must not do was linger, because if there was any bottom to Pam's anxieties, Jehansi might be full of Ignatieff and his jackals before long, and I wanted to be well away before that happened. So I didn't linger in Bombay. On the third day I took the road northeast towards Jehansi, travelling in good style by Bullock Hackery, which is just a great wooden room on wheels in which you have your bed and eat your meals, and your groom and cook and bearer squat on the roof. They've gone out now, of course, with the railway, but they were a nice leisurely way of travelling, and I stopped off at messes along the road and kept my ears open. None of the talk chimed with what I'd heard at Balmoral, and the general feeling was that the country had never been so quiet, which was heartening, even if it was what you'd expect down country. I purposely kept clear of any politicals, because I wanted to form my own judgments without getting any uncomfortable news that I didn't want to hear. However, up towards Mao, who should I run into but Johnny Nicholson, whom I hadn't seen since Afghanistan fifteen years before, trotting along on a Persian pony and dressed like a bulchy robber, with a beard down to his belly and a couple of Sikh lances in tow. We fell on each other like old chums. He didn't know me well, you see, but mostly by my fearsome reputation. He was one of your play-up-and-fear-god paladins, full of zeal and a thirst for glory, was John, and said his prayers and didn't drink, and thought women were either nuns or mothers. He was very big by now, I discovered, and just coming down for leave before he took up as resident at Peshwar. By rights I shouldn't have mentioned my mission to anyone, but this was too good a chance to miss. There wasn't a downier bird in all India than Nicholson, or one who knew the country better, and you could have trusted him with anything, money even, so I told him I was bound for Jehansi, and why the Japatis, the Rani, and the Russians. He listened, fingering his beard and squinting into the distance while we squatted by the road, drinking coffee. Jahanzi, eh, says he. Pendery rubber country. Thugs, too. Trust you to pick the toughest nut south of the Khyber. Maharatta, chieftains, wouldn't turn my back on any of them, and if you tell me there have been Russian agitators at work, I'm not surprised. Any number of ugly-looking copers and traders have been sliding south with the caravans up our way this year past, but not many guns, you see. That's what we keep our accounts by. But I don't like this news about chapatis passing among the sepoys. You don't think it amounts to anything, surely? I found all his cheerful references to thugs and pinderies damn disconcerting. He was making Jehansi sound as bad as Afghanistan. I don't know, says he, very thoughtful. But I do know that this whole country's getting warm. Don't ask me how I know. Irish instinct, if you like. Oh, I know it looks fine from Bombay or Calcutta, but sometimes I look around and ask myself what we're sitting on out here. Look at it. We're holding a northern frontier against the toughest villains on earth. Pathans, Sikhs, Baluchis, and Afghanistan thrown in, with Russia sitting on the touchline waiting their chance. In addition, 
down country, were in nominal masters of a collection of native states, half of them wild as Barbary, ruled by princes who'd cut our throats for threepence. Why? Because we've tried to civilise them. We've clipped the tyrant's wings, abolished abominations like Suti and Thugi, cancelled their worst laws and instituted fair ones. We've reformed them until they're sick, and started the telegraph, the railroad, schools, hospitals, all the rest of it. This sounded to me like a man riding his pet hobby. I couldn't see why any of this should do anything but please the people. The people don't count, they never do. It's the rulers that matter, the rajas and the nabobs, like this rani of yours in Jahanzi. They've squeezed this country for centuries, and Dalousi put a stop to it. Of course it's for the benefit of the poor folk, but they don't know that. They believe what their princes tell them, and what they tell them is that the British Sikar is their enemy, because it stops them burning their widows and murdering each other in the name of Kali, and will abolish their religion and force Christianity on them if it can. Oh, come, John, says I. They've been saying that for years. Well, there's something in it. He looked troubled in a stuffy religious way. I'm a Christian, I hope or try to be, and I pray I shall see the day when the gospel is the daily bread of every poor benighted soul on this continent, and his praise is sung in a thousand churches. But I could wish our people went more carefully about it. These are a devout people, Flashman, and their beliefs, misguided though they are, must not be taken lightly. What do they think when they hear Christianity taught in the schools, in the jails even? and when colonels preach to their regiments. Let the prince or the agitator whisper in their ears, See how the British will trample on thy holy things, which they respect not. See how they will make Christians of you. They will believe him, and they are such simple folk, and their eyes are closed. Do you know, he went on, there's a sect in Kashmir that even worships me. Good for you, says I. Do you take up a collection? I try to reason with them, but it does no good. I tell you, India won't be converted in a day or in years. It must come slowly, if surely. But our missionaries, good worthy men, press on apace, and cannot see the harm they may do. He sighed. Yet can one find it in one's heart to blame them, old fellow, when one considers the blessings that God's grace would bring to this darkened continent. It is very hard and he looked stern and nobly anguished. Arnold would have loved him. Then he frowned and growled and suddenly burst out, It wouldn't be so bad if we weren't so confounded soft, if we would only carry things with a high hand, the reforms and the missionary work even. Either let well alone or do the thing properly, but we don't, you see. We take half measures and are too gentle by a mile. If we are going to pull down their false gods and reform their old and corrupt states and amend their laws and make them worthy men and women, then let us do it with strength. Dalousi was strong, but I don't know about Canning. I know if I were he, I'd bring these oily, smirking, treacherous princes under my heel. His eyes flashed as he ground his boot in the dust. I'd give them government firm and fair. I'd be less soft with the sepoys, too, and with some of our own people. That's half the trouble. You haven't been back long enough, but depend upon it, we send some poor specimens out to the army nowadays and to the company offices. Broken down tapsters and serving men's sons, eh? Well, you'll see him. 
ignorant, slothful fellows of poor class, and we put them to officer high-caste Hindus of ten years' service. They don't know they're men, and treat them like children or animals, and think of nothing but drinking and hunting, and—and and he reddened to the roots of his enormous beard and looked aside. Some of them consort with—with with the worst type of native women. He cleared his throat and patted my arm. There, I'm sorry, old fellow. I know it's distasteful to talk of such things, but it's true, alas. I shook my head and said it was heartbreaking. Now you see why your news concerns me so. These omens at Jahanzi, they may be the spark to the tinder. And I've shown you, I hope, that the tinder exists in India because of our own blindness and softness. If we were stronger and dealt firmly with the princes and accompanied our enlightenment of the people with proper discipline, why, the spark would be stamped out easily enough. As it is, he shook his head again. I don't like it. Thank God they had the wit to send someone like you to Jahanzi. I only wish I could come with you to share whatever perils may lie ahead. It's a strange, wild place from all I've heard, says this confounded croaker with pious satisfaction as he shook my hand. Come, old fellow, shall we pray together for your safety and guidance in whatever dangers you may find yourself? And he plumped down there and then on his knees with me alongside and gave God his marching orders in no uncertain fashion, telling him to keep a sharp eye on his servant. I don't know what it was about me, but holy fellows like Nicholson were forever addressing heaven on my behalf. Even those who didn't know me well seemed to sense that there was a lot of hard graft to be done if Flashy was ever to smell salvation. I can see him yet, his great dark head and long nose against the sunset, his beard quivering with exhortation, and even the freckles on the back of his clasped hands. Poor wild John. He should have canvassed the Lord on his own behalf, perhaps, for while I'm still here after half a century, he was stiff inside the year, shot in the midriff by a pandy sniper in the attack on Delhi, and left to die by inches at the roadside. That's what his duty earned for him. If he'd taken proper precautions, he'd have made Viceroy, and Delhi would have fallen just the same. Whatever his prayers accomplished for my solid flesh, his talk about Jahanzi had done nothing for my spirits. A strange, wild place, he'd said, and talked of the Pindari bandits and thugs and Maharatta scoundrels. Well, I knew it had been Hell's punch bowl in the old days, but I'd thought since we'd annexed it that it must be quieter now. Mangles, at the Board of Control in London, had described it as tranquil beneath the company's benevolent rule, but he was a pompous ass with a talent for talking complete bosh about subjects on which he was an authority. As I pushed on into Badalkand, it began to look as though he was wrong and Nicholson was right. It was broken, hilly country, with jungle on the slopes and in the valleys, never a white face to be seen and the black ones getting uglier by the mile. The roads were so atrocious, and the hackery jolted and rolled so sickeningly, that I was forced to take to my Pegu pony. There was devil a sign of civilization, but only walled villages, and every so often a sinister Maharatta fort squatting on a hilltop to remind you who really held the power in this land. The toughest nut south of the Khyber. Mm, I was ready to believe it, as I surveyed those unfriendly jungly hills, seeing nothing cheerier than a distant tiger skulking among the weight a bit thorn. And this was the country that we were ruling, with one battalion of suspect sepoy infantry and a handful of British civilians to collect the taxes. 
My first sight of Johansi City wasn't uplifting either. We rounded a bend on the hill road, and there it was, under a dull evening sky. A massive fort embattled and towered on a great steep rock, and the walled city clustered at its foot. It was far bigger than I'd imagined. The walls must have been four miles round, at least, and the air over the city was thick with the smoke of a thousand cooking fires. On this side of the city lay the orderly white lines of the British camp and cantonment. God, it looked tiny and feeble beneath that looming vastness of Johansi Fort. My mind went back to Kabul, and how our camp had seemed dwarfed by the Balahizar. And even at Kabul, with an army of ten thousand, only a handful of us had escaped. I told myself that here it was different, that less than a hundred miles ahead of me there were our great garrisons along the Grand Trunk, and that, however forbidding Johansi might look, it was a British state nowadays, and under the Sikar's protection. Only there wasn't much sign of that protection— just our pathetic little village like a flea on the lion's lip, and somewhere in that great citadel, where our troops never went, that brooding old bitch of a Rani scheming against us with her thousands of savage subjects waiting for her word. Thus my imagination, as if it hadn't been full enough already, what with Ignatieff and thugs and wild pindaries and dissident Sepoy and Nicholson's forebodings. My first task was to look up Skeen, the political whose reports had started the whole business, so I headed down to the cantonment, which was a neat little compound of perhaps forty bungalows with decent gardens, and the usual groups already meeting on the verandas for sundown pegs and cordials. There were a few carriages waiting with their grooms and drivers to take people out for dinner, and one or two officers riding home, but I drove straight through and got a Chow Kidar's direction to the little star fort where Skeen had his office. He'd still be there the Chow Kidar said, which argued a very conscientious political indeed. Frankly, I hoped to find him scared or stupid. He wasn't either. He was one of these fair, intent young fellows who fall over themselves to help and will work all the hours God sends. He hopped from one leg to another when I presented myself and seemed fairly overwhelmed to meet the great flashy. But the steady grey eye told you at once that here was a boy who didn't take alarm at trifles. He had clerks and bearers running in all directions to take my gear to quarters, saw to it that I was given a bath, and then bore me off for dinner at his own bungalow, where he lost no time in getting down to business. "'No one knows why you're here, sir, except me,' says he. "'I believe Carshaw, the collector, suspects, but he's a sound man and will say nothing. Of course, Erskine, the commissioner at Saugor, knows all about it, but no one else.' He hesitated. I'm not quite clear myself, sir, why they sent you out, and not someone from Calcutta. Well, they wanted an assassin, you see, says I, easily, just for bounce. It so happens I'm acquainted with the Russian gentleman who's been active in these parts, and dealing with him ain't a job for an ordinary political, what? It was true, after all. Pam himself had said it. Also, it seems Calcutta and yourself and Commissioner Erskine, with all respect, haven't been too successful with this titled lady up in the city palace. Then there are these cakes. All told, it seemed better to Lord Palmerston to send me. Lord Palmerston, says he, his eyes wide open. I didn't know it had gone that far. I assured him he'd been the cause of the Prime Minister's losing a night's sleep, and he whistled and reached for the decanter. "'That's neither here nor there, anyway,' says I. "'You cost me a night's sleep, too, for that matter. "'The first thing is, have any of these Russian fellows been back this way? 
To my surprise, he looked confused. Truth is, sir, I never knew they'd been near. That came to me from Calcutta. Our frontier people traced them down this way three times, I believe, and I was kept informed. But if they hadn't told me, I'd never have known. That rattled me, if you like. You mean, if they do come back, or if they're loose in your ballywick now, you won't know of it until Calcutta sees fit to tell you? Oh, our frontier politicals will send me word as soon as any suspected person crosses over, says he. And I have my own native agents on the lookout now. Some pretty sharp men, sir. They know especially to look out for a one-eyed man. Yes, sir. He has a curious deformity, which he hides with a patch, you know. One of his eyes is half blue, half brown. You don't say, says I. By George, I hadn't realised our political arrangements were as ramshackle as this. That, Captain Skeen, is the man I'm here to kill. So if any of your sharp men have the chance to save me the trouble, they may do it with my blessing. Oh, of course, sir. Oh, they will, you know. Some of them, says he impressively, are pindery bandits, or used to be, that is. But we'll know in good time, sir, before any of these rusky fellows get within distance. I wished I could share his confidence. Calcutta has no notion what the Russian spies were up to down here, I asked him, but he shook his head. Uh, nothing definite at all, only that they'd been here. We were sure it must be connected with the chapatis going round, but those have dried up lately. None have passed since October, and the sepoy of the 12th N.I., that's the regiment here, you know, seem perfectly quiet. Their colonel swears they're loyal, has done from the first, and was quite offended that I reported the cakes to Calcutta. Perhaps he's right. I've had some of my men scouting the sepoy lines, and they haven't heard so much as a murmur, and Calcutta was to inform me if cakes passed at any other place, but none have, apparently. Come, thinks I, this is decidedly better. Pam's been up a gum tree for nothing. All I had to do was make a show of brief activity here, and then loaf over to Calcutta after a few weeks, and report nothing doing. Give him a piece of my mind, too, for causing me so much inconvenience. Well, Skeen, says I, this is how I see it. There's nothing to be done about what the Prime Minister calls those blasted buns, unless they make a reappearance, what? As to the Russians, well, when we get word of them, I'll probably drop out of sight, you see. I would, too, to some convenient haven which the Lord would provide and emerge when the coast was clear, but I doubted it would even come to that. Yes, you won't see me, but I'll be about, never fear, and if our one-eyed friend or any of his creatures shows face, well... He looked suitably impressed, with a hint of that awe which my fearsome reputation inspires. I understand, sir. You'll wish to, um, work in your own way, of course. He blinked at me, and then exclaimed reverently, By Jove, I don't envy those rusky fellows above half, if you don't mind my saying so, sir. Skeen, old chap, says I, and winked at him. Neither do I. And believe me, he was my slave for life from that moment. There's the other thing, I went on, the Rani. I have to try to talk some sense into her. Now, I dare say there isn't much I can do, since I gather she's shown you and Erskine that she's not disposed to be friendly, but I'm bound to try, you see. So I'll be obliged to you if you'll arrange an audience for me the day after tomorrow. I'd like to rest and perhaps look around the city first. For the present, you can tell me your own opinion of her. He frowned and filled my glass. You'll think it's odd, sir, I dare say, but in all the time I've been here, I've never even seen her. 
I've met her frequently at the palace, but she speaks from behind a perda, you know, and, as often as not, her chamberlain does the talking for her. She's a stickler for form, and since government granted her diplomatic immunity after her husband died, as a sop, really, when we assumed suzerainty. Well, it makes it difficult to deal with her satisfactorily. She was friendly enough with Erskine at one time, but I've had no change out of her at all. She's damn bitter, you see. When her husband died, old Raja Gangada, he left no children of his own. Well, he was an odd bird, really, and Skeen blushed furiously and avoided my eye. Used to go about in female dress most of the time, and wore bangles and... and perfume. You see? No wonder she was bitter, says I. No, no, what I mean is, since he'd left no legitimate heir but only a boy whom he'd adopted, Dalousie wouldn't recognise the infant. The new succession law, you know. So the state was annexed, and the Rani was furious and petitioned the Queen, and sent agents to London, but it was no go. The adopted son, Damodar, was dispossessed, and the Rani, who'd hoped to be regent, was deprived of her power, officially. Between ourselves, we let her rule pretty well as she pleases. Well, we can't do otherwise, can we? We've one battalion of sepoys and thirty British civilians to run the state administration. But she's the law where her people are concerned, absolute as Caesar. Doesn't that satisfy her, then? Not a bit of it. She detests the fact that officially she only holds power by the Sirkar's leave, you see, and she's still wild about the late Raja's will. You'd think that with a quarter of a million in her treasury she'd be content, but there was some jewellery or other that Calcutta confiscated, and she's never forgiven us. Interesting lady, says I. Dangerous, do you think? He frowned. Politically, yes. Given the chance, she'd pay our score off double-quick. That's why the Jabati business upset me. She's got no army as such, but with every man in Jahanzia born fighter and robber, she don't need one, do she? And they'll jump if she whistles, for they worship the ground she treads on. She's proud as Lucifer's sister, and devilish hard, not to say cruel in her own courts, but she's uncommon kind to the poor folk, and highly thought of for her piety. Spends five hours a day meditating, although she was a wild piece, they say, when she was a girl. They brought her up like a Maharata prince at the old Peshwa's court, taught her to ride and shoot and fence with the best of them. They say she still has the fiend's own temper, he added, grinning, but she's always been civil enough to me, at a distance, but make no mistake, she's dangerous. If you can sweeten her, sir, We'll all sleep a deal easier at nights. There was that, of course. However withered an old trot she might be, she'd be an odd female if she was altogether impervious to Flash's manly bearing and cavalry whiskers, which was probably what Pam had in mind in the first place, cunning old devil. Still, as I turned in that night, I wasn't absolutely looking forward to poodle faking her in two days' time, and as I glanced from my bungalow window and saw Jahanzi's citadel beetling in the starlight, I thought, we'll take a nice little escort of lancers with us when we go to take tea with the ladies, so we will. But that was denied me. I had intended to pass the next day looking about the city, perhaps having a discreet word with Carshaw, the collector, and the colonel of the sepoys, but as the Syce was bringing round my pony to the Dak bungalow, up comes Skeen in a flurry. 
When he'd sent word to the palace that Colonel Flashman, a distinguished soldier of the Sikar, was seeking an audience for the following day, he'd been told that distinguished visitors were expected to present themselves immediately as a token of proper respect to Her Highness, and Colonel Flashman could shift his distinguished rump up to the palace forthwith. I... I thought in the circumstances of your visit, says Skeen apologetically, that you might think it best to comply. You did, did you? says I. Does every Briton in Johansi leap to attention when this beldam snaps her fingers, then? Um, shall we say we find it convenient to humour Her Highness, says he. He was more of a political than he looked, this lad, so I blustered a bit to be in character and then said he might find me an escort of lancers to convoy me in. I'm sorry, sir, says he, we haven't any lancers, and if we had, we've agreed not to send troop formations inside the city walls. Also, since I was excluded from the, um, invitation, I fear you must go alone. What? says I. Damnation! Who governs here? The Sikar or this Haradin? I didn't fancy above half risking my hide unguarded in that unhealthy-looking fortress, but I had to cover it with dignity. You've made a rod for your own backs by being too soft with this, this woman. She's not Queen Bess, you know. She thinks she is, says he cheerfully, so in the end, of course, I had to lump it. But I changed into my lancer fig first, sabre, revolver, and all, for I could guess why she was ensuring that I visited her alone. Up country, on the frontier, they judge a man on his own looks, but down here they go on the amount and richness of your retinue. One mounted officer wasn't going to impress the natives with the Sikar's power. Well, then, he'd look his best and be damned to her. So I figged up, and when I regarded myself in Skeen's cracked mirror, blue tunic and breeches, gold belt and epaulets, white gauntlets and helmet, well-bristled whiskers and flashes stalwart fourteen stone inside it all, it wasn't half bad. I took a couple of packages from my trunk, "'stowed them in my saddlebag, waved to Skeen, "'and trotted off to meet royalty, "'with only the size to show me the way. "'Johansi City lies about a couple of miles from the cantonment, "'and I had plenty of time to take in the scenery. "'The road, which was well lined with temples and smaller buildings, "'was crowded into the city, "'with bullock carts churning up the dust, "'camels, palanquins, and hordes of travellers, "'both mounted and on foot.' Most of them were country folk on their way to the bazaars, but every now and then would come an elephant with red and gold-fringed howder swaying along, carrying some minor nabob or rich lady or a portly merchant on his mule with a string of porters behind, and once the Sice pointed out a group who he said were members of the Rani's own bodyguard. A dozen stalwart Kyberi Pathans, of all things, trotting along very military in double file, with mail coats and red silk scarves wound round their spiked helmets. The Rani might not have an army, but she wasn't short of force, with those fellows about. There was a hundred years' company service among them if there was a day, and her city defences were a sight to see. Massive walls twenty feet high and beyond them, a warren of streets stretching from near a mile to the castle rock with its series of curtain walls and round towers. It would be the deuce of a place to storm, after you'd fought through the city itself. There were guns in the embrasures and mail-clad spearmen on the walls, all looking like business. 
We had to force our horse through a crowded inferno of heat and smells and noise and jostling niggers to get to the palace, which stood apart from the fort near a small lake with a shady park about it. It was a fine four-square building, its outer walls beautifully decorated with huge paintings of battles and hunting scenes. I presented myself to another pattern, very splendid in steel, back and breast and long-tailed puggery, who commanded the gate guard and sat sweating in the scorching sun while he sent off a messenger for the chamberlain. And as I chafed impatiently, the pattern walked slowly round me, eyeing me up and down, and presently stopped, stuck his thumbs in his belt, and spat carefully on my shadow. Now, close by the gate, there happened to be a number of booths and sideshows set up, the usual things, lemonade sellers, a fakir with a plant growing through his palm, sundry beggars and a kind of punch-and-duty show which was being watched by a group of ladies in a palanquin. As a matter of fact, they'd already taken my eye, for they were obviously Maharata females of quality, and four finer little trotters you never saw. There was a very slim, languid-looking beauty in a gold sari reclining in the palanquin, another plump piece in scarlet trousers and jacket beside her, and a third very black, but fine-boned as a Swede, with a pearl headdress that must have cost my year's pay, sitting in a kind of camp-chair alongside. Even the lady's maid, standing beside the palanquin, was a looker, with great almond eyes and a figure inside her plain white sari like a Hindu temple goddess. I was in the act of touching my hat to them when the pattern started expectorating. At this the maid giggled. The ladies looked, and the pathan sniffed contemptuously and spat again. Well, as a rule, anyone can insult me and see how much it pays him, especially if he's large and ugly and carrying a tulwar. But for the credit of the cigar and my own face in front of the women, I had to do something. So I looked the pathan up and down, glanced away, and said quietly in Pushtu, You would spit more carefully if you were still in the guides, Hubshi. He opened his eyes at that and swore, who calls me Habshi? Who says I was in the guides? And what is it to thee, Ferengi pig? You wear the old coat under your breastplate, says I, but belike you stole it from a dead guide, for no man who had a right to that uniform would spit on bloody Lance's shadow. That set him back on his heels. Bloody Lance, says he. Thou? He came closer and stared up at me. Art thou that same Iflasman who slew the four Gilzais? At Megala, says I mildly. It had caused a great stir at the time in the Gilzai country, and won me considerable fame and my extravagant nickname along the Kabul road. In fact, old Muhammad Iqbal had killed the four horsemen while I lit out for the undergrowth, but nobody living knew that. And obviously the legend endured, for the pattern gaped and swore again, and then came hastily to attention and threw me a bara salam that would have passed at horse guards. Shur Khan, Havilda, lately of Ismet Sahib's company of the guides, as your honour says, croaks he. Now shame on me and mine that I put dishonour on bloody lance and knew him not. Think not ill of me, Huzur, for... Let the ill think ill, says I easily. The spittle of a Durwan will not drown a soldier.
I was watching out of the corner of my eye to see how the ladies were taking this, and noted with satisfaction that they were giggling at the Pathan's discomfiture. Boast your children! Oh, Ghazi, that was a guide and is now a Rani's porter, that you spat on bloody lance, Iflasman's shadow, and lived. And I walked my horse past him into the courtyard, well pleased. It would be all round Jahanzi inside the hour. It was a trifling enough incident, and I forgot it with my first glance at the interior of the Rani's palace. Outside it had been all dust and heat and din, but here was the finest garden courtyard you ever saw. A cool, pleasant enclosure where little antelopes and peacocks strutted on the lawns, parrots and monkeys chattered softly in the surrounding trees, and a dazzling white fountain played. There were shaded archways in the carved walls, where well-dressed folk, whom I took to be her courtiers, sat and talked, waited on by bearers. One of the richest thrones in India, Pam had said, and I could believe it. There were enough silks and jewellery on view there to stuff an army with loot. The statuary was of the finest in marble and coloured stones that I took to be jade, and even the pigeons that pecked at the spotless pavements had silver rings on their claws. Until you've seen it, of course, you can't imagine the luxury in which these Indian princes keep themselves, and there are folk at home who tell you that John Company were the robbers. I was kept waiting there a good hour before a major domo came salaming to lead me through the inner gate and up a narrow winding stair to the Durba room on the first story. Here again all was richness, splendid silk curtains on the walls, great chandeliers of purple crystal hanging from the carved and gilded ceiling, magnificent carpets on the floor, with good old Axminster there among the Persian, I noticed, and every kind of priceless ornament, gold and ivory, ebony and silverwork scattered about. It would have been in damned bad taste if it hadn't all been so bloody expensive— and the dozen or so men and women who lounged about on the couches and cushions were dressed to match. The ones down in the courtyard must have been their poor relations. Handsome as he be, the women were, too. I was just running my eye over one alabaster beauty in tight scarlet trousers who was reclining on a shawl playing with a parakeet when a gong boomed somewhere. Everyone stood up, and a fat little chap in a huge turban waddled in and announced that the derba had begun at which music began to play, and they all turned and bowed to the wall, which I suddenly realised wasn't a wall at all, but a colossal ivory screen, fine as lace, that cut the room in two. Through it you could just make out movement in the space beyond, like shadows behind thick gauze. This was the Rani's Purda screen, to keep out prying heathen eyes like mine. I seemed to be the first man in, for the chamberlain led me to a little gilt stool a few feet from the screen, and there I sat while he stood at one end of the screen and cried out my name, rank, decorations, and, it's a fact, my London clubs. There was a murmur of voices beyond, and then he asked me what I wanted, or words to that effect. I replied, in Urdu, that I brought greetings from Queen Victoria and a gift for the Rani from Her Majesty, if she would graciously accept it. It was a perfectly hellish photograph of Victoria and Albert, looking in apparent stupefaction at a book which the Prince of Wales was holding in an attitude of sullen defiance, all in a silver frame, too, and wrapped up in muslin. I handed it over. The Chamberlain passed it through, listened attentively, and then asked me who the fat child in the picture was. I told him. 
He relayed the glad news, and then announced that Her Highness was pleased to accept her sister ruler's gift. The effect was spoiled a trifle by a clatter from behind the screen, which suggested the picture had fallen on the floor or been thrown, but I just stroked my whiskers while the courtiers tittered behind me. It's hell in the diplomatic, you know. There was a further exchange of civilities through the Chamberlain, and then I asked for a private audience with the Rani. He replied that she never gave them. I explained that what I had to say was of mutual but private interest to Jahanzi and the British government. He looked behind the screen for instructions, and then said hopefully, Does that mean you have proposals for the restoration of Her Highness's throne, the recognition of her adopted son, and the restitution of her property, all of which have been stolen from her by the Sikar? Well, it didn't, of course. What I have to say is for Her Highness alone, says I solemnly, and he stuck his head round the screen and conferred before popping back. There are such proposals, says he, and I said I could not talk in open Durba, at which there were sounds of rapid female muttering from behind the screen. The Chamberlain asked what I could have to say that could not be said by Captain Skeen, and I said politely that I could tell that to the Rani and no other. He conferred again, and I tried to picture the other side of the screen, with the Rani sharp-faced and thin in her silk shawl, muttering her instructions to him, and puzzled to myself what the odd, persistent noise was that I could hear above the soft pipes of the hidden orchestra, a gentle, rhythmic swishing from beyond the screen, as though a huge fan were being used, and yet the room was cool and airy enough not to need one. The Chamberlain popped out again, looking stern, and said that Her Highness could see no reason for prolonging the interview. If I had nothing new from the Sikar to impart to her, I was permitted to withdraw. So I got to my feet, clicked my heels, saluted the screen, picked up the second package which I had brought, thanked him and his mistress for their courtesy, and did a smart about turn. But I hadn't gone a yard before he stopped me. The packet you carry, says he. What is that? I'd been counting on this. I told him it was my own. But it is wrapped as the gift to her highness was wrapped, says he. Surely it is also a present. Yes, says I slowly, it was. He stared, was summoned behind the screen, and came out looking anxious. Then you may leave it behind, says he. I hesitated, weighing the packet in my hand, and shook my head. No, sir, says I. It was my own personal present to Her Highness, but in my country we deliver such gifts face to face, as honouring both giver and receiver. By your leave. And I bowed again to the screen and walked away. Wait, wait, cries he. So I did. The rhythmic sound from behind the screen had stopped now, and the female voice was talking quietly again. The Chamberlain came out, red-faced, and to my astonishment, he bustled everyone else from the room, shooing the silken ladies and gentlemen like geese. Then he turned to me, bowed, indicated the screen, and effaced himself through one of the archways, leaving me alone with my present in my hand. I listened a moment. The swishing sound had started again. I paused to give my whiskers a twirl, stepped up to the end of the screen, and rapped on it with my knuckles. No reply. So I said, Your Highness. But there was nothing except that damn swishing. Well, here goes, I thought. This is what you came to India for, and you must be civil and adoring for old Pam's sake. I stepped round the screen and halted as though I'd walked into a wall. 
It wasn't the gorgeously carved golden throne or the splendour of the furniture which outshone even what I'd left, or the unexpected sensation of walking on the shimmering Chinese quilt on the floor. Nor was it the bewildering effect of the mirrored ceiling and walls with their brilliantly coloured panels. The astonishing thing was that from the ceiling there hung, by silk ropes, a great cushioned swing, and sitting in it, wafting gently to and fro, was a girl, the only soul in the room. And such a girl! My first impression was of great dark almond eyes in a skin the colour of milky coffee, with a long straight nose above a firm red mouth and chin, and hair as black as night that hung in a jewelled tail down her back. She was dressed in a white silk bodice and sari, which showed off the dusky satin of her bare arms and midriff, and on her head was a little white jewelled cap, from which a single pearl swung on her forehead above the caste mark. I stood and gaped while she swung to and fro, at least three times, and then she put a foot on the carpet and let the swing drag to a halt. She considered me, one smooth, dusky arm up on the swing rope, and then I recognised her. She was the lady's maid, who had been standing by the palanquin at the palace gate. The Rani's maid? Then the lady of the palanquin must be... Your mistress, says I. Where is she? Mistress? I have no mistress, says she, tilting up her chin and looking down her nose at me. I am Lakshmibai, Maharani of Janzi. For a moment I didn't believe it. I had become so used to picturing her over the past three months as a dried-up old shrew with skinny limbs that I just stood and gaped. And yet, as I looked at her, there couldn't be any doubt. The richness of her clothes shouted royalty at you, and the carriage of her head, with its imperious dark eyes, told you as nothing else could that here was a woman who'd never asked permission in her life. There was strength in every line of her, too, for all her femininity— by George, I couldn't remember when I'd seen bouncers like those, thrusting like pumpkins against the muslin of her blouse, which was open to the jewelled clasp at her breastbone. If it hadn't been for a couple of discreetly embroidered flowers on either side, there would have been nothing at all concealed. I could only stand speechless before such queenly beauty, wondering what it would be like to tear the muslin aside thrust your whiskers in between them and go brrrr. You have a gift to present, says she, speaking in a quick, soft voice, which had me recollecting myself and clicking my heels as I presented my packet. She took it, weighed it in her hand, still half reclining in her swing, and asked sharply, Why do you stare at me so? Forgive me, Highness, says I. I did not expect to find a queen who looked so... I'd been about to say young and lovely, but changed it hurriedly for a less personal compliment. So, like a queen. Like that queen? says she, and indicated the picture of Vicky and Albert, which was lying on a cushion. Each of your majesties, says I, with mountainous diplomacy, looks like a queen in her own way. 
She considered me gravely and then held the packet out to me. You may open it. I pulled off the wrapping, opened the little box, and took out the gift. You may smile, but it was a bottle of perfume. You see, Flashy ain't as green as he looks. It may be Coles to Newcastle to take perfume to India, but in my experience, which isn't inconsiderable, there's not a woman breathing who isn't touched by a gift of scent, and it don't matter what age she is, either. And it was just the gift a blunt, honest soldier would choose in his simplicity. Furthermore, it was from Paris, and had cost the dirty old goat who presented it to Ellsworth a cool five sovs. She'd never miss it. I handed it over with a little bow, and she touched the stopper daintily on her wrist. French, says she, and very costly. Are you a rich man, colonel? That took me aback. I muttered something about not calling on a queen every day of my life. And why have you called, says she, very cool. What is there that you have to say that can be said only face to face? I hesitated and she suddenly stood up in one lithe movement. By Jove! They jumped like blamonges in a gale. Come and tell me, she went on, and swept off out onto the terrace at the end of the room, with a graceful swaying stride that stirred the seat of her sari in a most disturbing way. She jingled as she walked, like all rich Indian females. She seemed to affect as much jewellery as she could carry, with bangles at wrist and ankle, a diamond collar beneath her chin, and even a tiny pearl cluster at one nostril. I followed, admiring the lines of the tall, full figure, and wondering for the umpteenth time what I should say to her, now that the moment had come. Pam and Mangles, you see, had given me no proper directions at all. I was supposed to wheedle her into being a loyal little British subject, but I'd no power to make concessions to any of her grievances, and it wasn't going to be easy. An unexpected stunner she might be, and therefore all the easier for me to talk to, but there was a directness about her that was daunting. This was a queen, and intelligent, and experienced. She even knew French perfume when she smelled it. She wasn't going to be impressed by polite political chat. So what must I say? The devil with it, thinks I. There's nothing to lose by being as blunt as she is herself. So when she'd settled herself on a daybed, and I'd forced myself to ignore that silky midriff and the shapely brown ankle peeping out of her sari, I set my helmet on the ground and stood up, four square. Your Highness, says I, I can't talk like Mr. Erskine or Captain Skeen, even. I'm a soldier, not a diplomat, so I won't mince words. And thereafter I minced them for all I was worth, telling her of the distress there was in London about the coolness that existed between Jehansi on the one hand and the company and Sikar on the other. How this state of affairs had endured for four years to the disadvantage of all parties, how it was disturbing the Queen who felt a sisterly concern for the ruler of Jehansi, not only as a monarch, but as a woman, and so on. I rehearsed Jehansi's grievances, the willingness of the Sikar to repair them so far as was possible, threw in the information that I came direct from Lord Palmerston, and finished on a fine flourish with an appeal to her to open her heart to Flashy. Plenty, potentary, extraordinary. So that we could all be friends and live happy ever after. It was the greatest gammon, but... I gave it my best, with noble compassion in my eye and a touch of ardour in the curl shaken down over my brow. She heard me out. 
not a muscle moving in that lovely face, and then asked, "'You have the power to make redress, then, to alter what has been done?' I said I had the power to report direct to Pam, and she said that so, in effect, had Skeen. Her agents in London had spoken direct to the Board of Control without avail. "'Well,' says I, "'this is a little different, Highness, don't you see?' His lordship felt that if I heard from you at first hand, so to speak, and we talked, there is nothing to talk about, says she. What can I say that has not been said, that the Sikar does not know? What can you... I can ask, Maharaj. What actions by the Sikar, short of removing from Jehanzi and recognizing your adopted son, would satisfy your grievances, or go some way to satisfying them? She came up, on one elbow at that, frowning at me with those magnificent eyes. For what I was hinting at, without the least authority, mind you, was concessions, and devil a smell of those she'd had in four years. Why, she says thoughtfully, they know well enough. They have been told my grievances, my just demands for four years now, and yet they have denied me. How can repetition serve? A disappointed client may find a new advocate, says I, with my most disarming smile, and she gave me a long stare and then got up and walked over to the balustrade, looking out across the city. If your highness would speak your mind to me openly, wait, says she, and stood for a moment, frowning, before she turned back to me. She couldn't think what to make of this. She was suspicious and didn't dare to hope, and yet she was wondering. God, she was a black beauty, sure enough. If I'd been the Sikar, she could have had Jehansi and a pound of tea with it just for half an hour on the daybed. If Lord Palmerston, says she at last, and old Pam himself would have been tempted to restore her throne just to hear the pretty way she said, Lord Palmerston, wishes me to restate the wrongs that have been done me, it can only be because he has discovered some interest to serve by redressing them, or promising redress. I do not know what that interest is, and you will not tell me. It is no charitable desire to set right injustices done to my Jehanzi, and she lifted her head proudly. That is certain. But if he wishes my friendship for whatever purpose of his own, he may give an earnest of his goodwill by restoring the revenues which should have come to me since my husband's death, but which the Sikar has confiscated. She stopped there, chin up, challenging. So I said, And after that, Highness, what else? Will he concede as much? Will the company? I can't say, says I. But if a strong case can be made, when I report to Lord Palmerston, and you will put the case yourself, that is my mission, Maharaj. And such other cases as I may advance? She looked the question, and there was just a hint of a smile on her mouth. So, and I must first put them to you, and no doubt you will suggest to me how they may be best phrased or modified. You will advise and persuade. Well, says I, I'll help your highness as I can. To my astonishment she laughed, with a flash of white teeth, her head back and shaking most delightfully. Oh, the subtlety of the British, cries she, such delicacy, like an elephant in a swamp. 
Lord Palmerston wishes, for his own mysterious reasons of policy, to placate the Rani of Jahanzi. So he invites her to repeat the petition which has been repeatedly denied for years. But does he send a lawyer, or an advocate, or even an official of the company? No. Just a simple soldier who will discuss the petition with her, and how it may best be presented to his lordship. Could not a lawyer have advised her better? She folded her hands and came slowly forward, sauntering round me. But how many lawyers are tall and broad-shouldered and, I, quite handsome and persuasive as Flashman Bahardur? Not a doubt, but he is best fitted to convince a silly female that a modest claim is most likely to succeed, and she will abate her demands for him, poor foolish girl, and be less inclined to insist on fine points and stand upon her rights. Is this not so? Highness, you misunderstand entirely. I assure you. Do I? says she, scornfully, but laughing still. I am not sixteen, Colonel. I am an old lady of twenty-nine, and I may not know Lord Palmerston's purpose, but I understand his methods. Well, well, it may not have occurred to his lordship that even a poor Indian lady may be persuasive in her turn. And she eyed me with some amusement, confident in her own beauty, the damned minx, and the effect it was having on me. He paid me a poor compliment. Do you not think? What could I do but grin back at her? Do his lordship justice, highness, says I. He'd never seen you. How many have, since you are perdernition? Enough to have told him what I am like, I should have hoped. How did he instruct you? Humour her? Whatever she is, fair or foul, young and silly or old and ugly, charm her so that she keeps her demands cheap. Captivate her as only a hero can. She stirred an eyebrow. Who could resist the champion who killed the four Gilzais? Where was it? At Magala, in Afghanistan, as your highness heard at the gate. Was it to test me that you had the pattern spit on my shadow? His insolence needed no instruction, says she. He is now being flogged for it. She turned away from me and sauntered back into the Durba room. You may have the tongue which insulted you torn out, if you wish, she added over her shoulder. That brought me up sharp, I can tell you. We'd been rallying away famously, and I'd all but forgotten who and what she was. An Indian prince, with all the capricious cruelty of her kind under that lovely hide. Unless she was just mocking me with the reminder, whether or no, I would play my character. Not necessary, Highness, says I. I had forgotten him. She nodded and struck a little silver gong with her wrist bangle. It is time for my noon meal, and this afternoon I hold my court. You may return tomorrow, and we shall discuss the representations you are to make to the subtle Lord Palmerston. She smiled slightly in dismissal. And I thank you for your gift, Colonel. Her maids were coming in, and the little fat chamberlain, so I made my bow. Maharaj, says I, your most humble obedient. 
She inclined her head regally and turned away, but as I backed out round the screen, I noticed that she had picked up my perfume bottle from the table and was inviting her maids to have a sniff at it. I came away from that audience thinking no small diplomatic beer of myself. At least I seemed to have got further with her than any other representative of the Sikar had ever done, even if I'd had to lie truth out of Jehansi to do it. God knew I'd not the slightest right to promise redress of any of her grievances against the Raj, and if I trotted back a list of them to London, the board would turn them down flat again, no question, but she didn't know that. And if I could jolly her along for a week or two, hinting at this or that possible concession, she might grow more friendly disposed, which was what Pam wanted after all. Her hopes would revive, and while they were sure to be dashed in the end, I'd be back snug in England by then. That was the official aspect, of course. The important thing was the delightful surprise that the old beldam of Jamsey was as prime a goer as ever wriggled a hip, and just ripe for my kind of diplomacy. She was a cocky bitch, with a fine sense of her queenly consequence, but I wasn't fooled by her airs, or the set-down she tried to give me by warning me not to try to come round her with whiskery blandishments. That was pure flirtation to put me on my mettle. I know these beauties, you see, and it don't matter whether they're queens or commoners. When they start to play the cool, mocking, grand dam, it's a sure sign that they are wondering what kind of a mount you'll make. I'd seen the glint in this one's eye when she walked round me, and thought quietly to myself, we'll have you gasping for more, my girl, before this fortnight's out. You may think me a presumptuous ambassador on short notice, especially since the object of my carnal ambitions was royal, clever, dangerously powerful, and a high-caste Hindu lady of reputed purity to boot. But that means nothing when a woman fancies a buck like me. Besides, I knew about these high-born Indian wenches, randy as ferrets, the lot of them, and with all the opportunity to gratify it, too. A woman with a shape and face like Lakshmibai's, hadn't let it go to waste in four years' widowhood, after being married to some prancing old queen, too, not with the stallions of her palace guard available at the crook of her little finger. Well, I'd make a rare change of bedding for her, and if her lusty inclinations needed any prompting, she might find it in the thought that being amiable to Ambassador Flashy was the likeliest way of getting what she wanted for herself and her state. Dulce et decorum est, pro patria, Rogery, she could say to herself, and I cantered back to the cantonments full of cheery thoughts, imagining what that voluptuous, tawny body would look like when I peeled the sari off it, and speculating on the novel uses to which the pair of us could put that swing of hers in the interests of diplomatic relations. In the meantime, I had Pam's other business to attend to, so I spent the afternoon in the native infantry lines, looking at the company's sepoys, to gauge for myself what their temper was. I did it idly enough, for they seemed a properly smart and docile lot, and yet it was a momentous visit, for it led to an encounter that was to save my life, and set me on one of the queerest and most terrifying adventures of my career, and perhaps shaped the destiny of British India, too. I had just finished chatting to a group of the Jawans and telling them that, in my view, they'd never be called on to serve overseas in spite of the new act, when the officer with me, a fellow called Turnbull, asked me if I'd like to look at the irregular horse troop who had their stables close by. 
Being a cavalryman, I said yes. And a fine mixed bunch they were, too. Punjabis and frontiersmen mostly, big strapping ruffians with oiled whiskers and their shirts inside their breeches, laughing and joking as they worked on their leather, and as different from the smooth-faced infantry as Cheyennes are from Hottentots. I was having a good crack with them, for these were the kind of scoundrels with whom I'd ridden, albeit reluctantly, in my Afghan days, when their Rizaldar came up, and at the sight of me he stopped dead in the stable door, gaping as though he couldn't believe his eyes. He was a huge, bearded Ghazi of a fellow, Afghan for certain by the devil's face of him. I'd have said Gilzai or Durrani, with a skull-cap on the back of his head and the old yellow coat of Skinner's riders over his shoulders. Jahannum, says he, and stared again, and then stuck his hands on his hips and roared with laughter. Salam, Rizalda, says I. What do you want with me? A sight of thy left wrist, bloody lance, says he, grinning like a death's head. Is there not a scar there to match this? And he pulled up his sleeve, while I stared in disbelief at the little puckered mark for the man who bore it should have been dead fifteen years ago, and he'd been a mere slip of a gills-eye boy when it had been made, with his bleeding forearm against mine, and his mad father, Sher Afsul, doing the honours and howling to heaven that his son's life was pledged eternally to the service of the White Queen. "'Ilderim?' says I, flabbergasted. "'Ilderim Khan of Mogala? And then he flung his arms round me, roaring and danced me about while the sawwars grinned and nudged each other. Flashman, he pounded my back, how many years since ye took me for the sikar? Stand still, old friend, and let me see thee. Bismillah, thou hast grown high and heavy in the service. Such a bara sahib, and a colonel too. Now praise God for the sight of thee. And then, he was showing me off to his fellows, telling them how we'd met in the old Kabul days when his father had held the passes south, and how I'd killed the four Gilzais. Strange, the same lying legend coming up twice in a day, and he'd been pledged to me as a hostage, and we'd lost sight of each other in the great retreat. It's all there, in my earlier memoirs, and pretty gruesome too, even if it was the basis of my glorious career. So now it was speech day with a vengeance, while we relived old memories and slapped each other on the shoulder for half an hour or so, and then he asked me what I was doing here, and I answered vaguely that I was on a mission to the Rani, but soon to go home again. And at this he looked at me shrewdly, but said nothing more until I was leaving. It will be political, beyond doubt, says he. Do not tell me. Listen. Instead to a friend's word, if ye speak with the Rani, be wary of her. She is a Hindu woman, and knows too much for a woman's good. What do you know about her? says I. Little enough, says he, except that she is like the silver crate, in that she is beautiful and cunning, and loves to bite the sahibs. The company— have made a kuch rani of her flashman, but she still has fangs. This, he added bitterly, comes of soft government in Calcutta. By ducks and mulls! 
who have been too long in the heat. So beware of her, and go with God, old friend. And remember, while thou art in Jahanzi, Ilderim is thy shadow. Or if not me, then these loose wallers and jangly admis of mine, they have their uses. And he jerked a thumb towards his troopers. That, coming from an Afghan, Upper Roger, who was also a friend, was the best kind of insurance policy you could wish. Not that I now had any fears, fool that I was, about my stay in Jahanzi. As to what he'd said of the Rani, well, I knew it already, and Afghans' views on women are invariably sour, beastly brutes. Anyway, I didn't doubt my ability to handle Lakshmibai in every sense of the word. Still, I found his simile coming to mind next day when I attended her Durbar again and watched her sitting enthroned to hear petitions dressed in a cloth of silver sari that fitted her like a skin, with a silver embroidered shawl framing that fine dark face. And when she moved, it was for all the world like a great gleaming snake stirring. She was very grave and queenly and her courtiers and suppliants fairly groveled and scuttled about if she raised her pinky. When the last petitioner had been heard, and a gong had boomed to end the derba, she sat with her chin in the air while the mob bowed itself out backwards, leaving only me and her two chief councillors standing there. And then she slipped out of her throne, with a little cry of relief, hissed at one of her pet monkeys, and chased it out onto the terrace, clapping her hands in mock anger, and then returned, perfectly composed, to lounge on her swing. "'Now we can talk,' says she. "'And while my vakil reads out the matter of my petition, you may refresh yourself, colonel.' And she indicated a little table with flasks and cups on it. "'Ah, and see,' she added, flicking a flimsy little handkerchief from her sari, I am wearing French perfume today. Do you care for it? My lady Vashki thinks I am no better than an infidel. It was my perfume right enough. I bowed acknowledgement while she smiled and settled herself, and the vakil began to drone out her petition in formal Persian. It's worth repeating, perhaps, for it was a fair sample of the objections that many Indian princes had to British rule, the demand for restoration of her husband's revenues, compensation for the slaughter of sacred cows, reappointment of court hangers-on dismissed by the Sirkar, restitution of confiscated temple funds, recognition of her authority as regent, and the like. All a waste of time had she but known it, but splendid stuff for me to talk to her about over the next week or two while I pursued the really important work of charming her into a recumbent position. I had no doubt she was willing enough for me to make the running there. She was wearing my scent and letting me know it, and she was as pleasant as pie in her cool way at that meeting, nodding graciously as I talked to her wise men about the petition, smiling if I ventured a joke, inviting them to admire my reasoning, which they fell over themselves to do absolutely, even asking my advice occasionally, and always considering me languidly with those dark, slanting eyes as I talked all of which 
might have seemed suspiciously amiable after her frankness at our first encounter, but since then she'd had time to weigh the political advantages of being pleasant to me and was setting out to make me enjoy my work. But I knew politics wasn't the half of it. I know when a woman's got that little flutter in her midriff about me, and in our ensuing meetings I could watch her enjoying using her beauty on me, and she could do that with a touch that Montez might have envied. I'll admit it now, I found her enchanting. She had the advantage of being a queen, of course, which makes a beauty all the more tantalising. Well, even I, on short acquaintance, could hardly have taken her belly in one hand, her bum in the other, and fondled her flat on her back with passionate murmurs, as one would do in ordinary circumstances. No, with royalty you have to wait a little. Not that I wasn't tempted in those early talks, when she had dismissed her counsellors and we were alone, and just once or twice from the warm gleam in her eye as she swayed on her swing or lay on her daybed, I wondered if perhaps... But I decided to make haste slowly and play the bowling as it came down. It came mighty fast, too, sometimes, for if she was generally content just to politic flirtatiously, I soon discovered that she could be dead serious when Jehansi and her own ambitions were concerned. Let the talk turn that way, and you saw the passion of her feeling. Five years ago, how many beggars were on the streets? She rounded on me once. One for every ten today. And who has accomplished this? Who but the Sikar? by assuming the affairs of the state, so that one white sahib comes to do the work that employed a dozen of our people who must be turned out to starve. Who guards the state? Why, the company's soldiers. So Jahanzi's army must be disbanded, and they too can shift or steal or go hungry. Well now, Highness, says I, it's hard to blame the Sikar for being efficient, and as for your unemployed soldiers, they'll be more than welcome in the company's service. In a foreign army? And will there be room in its ranks, too, for the Indian craftsmen whom the Sikar's efficiency has put out of work? For the traders whose commerce has decayed under the benevolent rule of the Raj? You must give us a little time, Maharaj, says I, humouring her. And it ain't all bad, you know. Banditry has ceased. The poor folk are safe from dacoits and thugs. Why, your own throne is secure against greedy neighbours like Cathay Khan and the Dewan of Orcha. My throne is safe, says she, stopping the swing on which she had been swaying and lifting her brows at me. Oh, very safe, for the Sikar to enjoy its revenues and usurp my place and disinherit my son. Ha! As to Cathay Khan and that jackal of Orcha, whom the company in their wisdom allowed to live, if I ruled this state and had my soldiers, Cathay Khan and his fellow viper would come against me once. She picked up a fruit from the tray at her elbow, considered it, and nibbled daintily, and crawl home again without their hands and feet. No doubt, ma'am, says I. But the fact is that when Jahanzi ruled itself, it couldn't deal with these foes, nor were the thugs put down. Oh, aye, we hear much of them, and how the company suppressed their wickedness. And why? Because they slew travellers, or was it because they served a Hindu god and so offended the Christian company? 
She eyed me contemptuously. Belike, had the thugs been Jesus worshippers, they would have been roaming yet, especially if they had chosen Hindu victims. You can't argue with gross prejudice, so I just looked amiable and said, and doubtless had suti, that fine old Hindu custom whereby widows were tortured to death, been a Christian practice, we would have encouraged it. But in our ignorance and spite, we forbade it, along with the law which condemned those widows who had escaped burning to a life of slavery and degradation, with their heads shaved and heaven knows what else. Come, Maharaj, can we do nothing right? And without thinking, I added, I'd have thought your highness, as a widow, would have cause to thank the Sikar for that at least. As soon as the words were out, I saw I'd put my foot in it. The swing stopped abruptly, and she sat upright with a face like a mask, staring at me. I? says she. I? Thank the Sikar? And she suddenly flung her fruit across the room and stood upright, blazing at me. You dare to suggest that? Well, I could grovel or face it out, but I don't hold with groveling to pretty women, not unless the danger's desperate or I'm short of cash. So I started to hum and haw placatingly, while she snapped in a voice like ice. I owe the company nothing. If the company had never been, do you think I would have submitted to Sooty or allowed myself to be made a menial? Do you take me for a fool? By God, no, ma'am, says I hastily. Anything but. And if I've offended, I beg your pardon. I simply thought that the law was binding on all, um, ladies, you see, and the Maharani makes the law, says she, all good Queen Bess, damning the dagoes, and I hurriedly cried, thank heaven for that, at which she looked down her nose at me. That is not the view of your company or your country. Why should you be different? Why should you care? That was my cue, of course. I hesitated a second and then looked at her very frank and manly. Because I've seen your highness, says I quietly, and, well, I do care. A great deal, you see. I stopped there, giving her my steadiest smile, with a touch of ardent admiration thrown in, and after a long moment her stare softened, and she even smiled as she sat down again and said, Shall we return to the confiscated temple funds? Altogether, it was a rum game in those first few days, rum for her, because she was a fair, natural tyrant, yet whenever a disagreement in our discussions arose, she would allow it to smooth over with that warm, mysterious smile, and rum for me, because here I was, day after day, closeted with this choice piece of rump, and not so much as touching her, let alone squeezing and grappling. But I had to bide my time, and since she took such obvious and natural pleasure in my company, I contained my horniness for the moment in the interests of diplomacy. In the meantime, I occasionally paid attention to the other side of Pam's business, talking with Skeen and Carshaw, the collector, and reassuring myself that all continued to go well among the sepoys. There wasn't a hint of agitation now. My earlier fears about Ignatieff and his scoundrels were beginning to seem like a distant nightmare, and now that I was so well established in the Rani's good graces, the last cloud over my mission appeared to have been dispelled. Laughable, you may think when you recollect that this was 1856 drawing to a close, you will ask how I and the others could have been so blind to the fact that we were living on the very edge of hell. But if you'd been there, 
what would you have seen? A peaceful native state, ruled by a charming young woman whose grievances were petty enough, and who gave most of her time to seducing the affections of a dashing British colonel, a contented native soldiery, and a tranquil, happy British cantonment. I was about it a great deal, and all our people were so placid and at ease. I remember a dinner at Carshaw's bungalow with his family, and Skeen and his pretty little wife, so nervous and pleased in her new pink gown, and jolly old Dr. McKegan, with his fund of Irish stories, and the garrison men with their red jackets slung on the backs of their chairs, matching their smiling red faces and their gossipy wives, and myself raising a laugh by coaxing one of the Wilton girls to eat a country captain, with the promise that it would make her hair curl when she grew older. It was all so comfy and easy. It might have been a dinner party at home, except for the black faces and gleaming eyes of the bearers standing silent against the chick screens, and the big moths fluttering round the lamps. Afterwards there was a silly card game and truth or consequences and local scandal and talk of leave and game-shooting with our cheroots and port on the veranda. Trivial enough memories when you think what happened to all of them. I can still feel the younger Wilton Chit pulling at my arm and crying, Oh, Colonel Flashman, Papa says, if I ask you ever so nicely, you will sing us The Galloping Major. Will you please? Oh, please do. And see those shining eyes and the ringlets as she tugged me to where her sister was sitting at the piano. We couldn't see ahead then, and life was pleasant, especially for me, with my diplomatic duties to attend to, and they became more enjoyable by the hour. I'll say that for Rani Lakshmi Bai. She knew how to make business a pleasure. Much of the time we didn't talk in the palace at all. She was, as Skeen had told me, a fine horsewoman and loved nothing better than to put on her jodhpurs and turban with two little silver pistols in her sash and gallop on the Maidan or go hawking along a wooded river not far from the city. There was a charming little pavilion there of about a dozen rooms on two stories hidden among the trees and once or twice I was taken on picnics with a few of her courtiers and attendants. At other times we would talk in the palace garden among the scores of pet beasts and birds which she kept and once... She had me into one of her hen-parties in the Durba room, at which she entertained all the leading ladies of Jehansi to tea and cakes, and I found myself called on to discourse on European fashions to about fifty giggling Indian females in saris and bangles and coal-dark eyes. Excellent fun, too, although the questions they asked about crinolines and panniers would have made a sailor blush. But her great delight was to be out of doors— riding or playing with her adopted son, Damodar, a grave-faced imp of eight, or inspecting her guards at field exercise. She even watched their wrestling matches in the courtyard, and a race-meeting in which some of our garrison officers took part. I was intrigued to see that on this occasion she wore a purder veil and an enveloping robe, for about the palace she went bare-faced, and pretty bare-bodied, too. And if she could be as formal as a stockbroker with a new-bought peerage, she had a delightful way with the ordinary folk. She was never so gay and happy as when she held a party for children from the city in her garden, letting them run among the birds and monkeys, and at one of her almsgivings I saw her quite concerned as her treasurer scattered coins among the mob of hideous and stinking beggars clamouring at her gate. Not at all like a Rani, sometimes. She was a queer mixture of schoolgirl and sophisticated woman— all scatter one moment, all languor and dignity the next. Damned unpredictable, 
Oh, and captivating. There were times when even I found myself regarding her with an interest that wasn't more than four-fifths lustful. And that ain't like me. It was directly after that almsgiving, when we rode out to her pavilion among the trees, and I had just remarked that what was needed for India was a poor law and a few parish workuses, that she suddenly turned in her saddle and burst out, "'Can you not see that that is not our way, that none of our ways are your ways? You talk of your reforms and the benefits of British law and the Sikhar's rule, and never think that what seems ideal to you may not suit others, that we have our own customs, which you think strange and foolish, and perhaps they are, but they are ours, our own. You come, in your strength and your certainty, with your cold eyes and pale faces, like, like machines marching out of your northern ice, and you will have everything in order, tramping in step like your soldiers, whether those you conquer and civilize, as you call it, whether they will or no. Do you not see that it is better to leave people be, to let them alone? She wasn't a bit angry, or I'd have agreed straight off, but she was as intense as I'd known her, and the great dark eyes were almost appealing, which was most unusual. I said that all I'd meant was that instead of thousands going sick and ragged and hungry about her city, it might be better to have some system of relief, come cheaper on her too, if they had the beggars picking yarn or mending roads for their dole. "'You talk of a system,' says she, striking her riding-crop on the saddle. "'We do not care for systems. Oh, we admire and respect those which you show us, but we do not want them. We would not choose them for ourselves. You remember we spoke of how twelve Indian babus did the work of one white clerk. Well,' "'That's waste, ma'am,' says I respectfully. "'There's no point, wasteful or not, does it matter? "'If people are happy,' says she impatiently. "'Where lies the virtue of your boasted progress, "'your telegraphs, your railway trains, "'when we are content with our sandals and our ox-carts?' "'I could have pointed out that the price of her sandals "'would have kept a hundred Johansi Cooley families all their lives.' and that she'd never been within ten yards of an ox-cart, but I was tactful. "'We can't help it, Maharaj,' says I. "'We have to do the best we can, don't you know, as we see it, and it ain't just telegraphs and trains, though you'll find those useful enough in time. Why, I'm told there are to be universities and hospitals to teach philosophies that we do not want and sciences that we do not need, and a law that is foreign to us which our people cannot understand. Well, that doesn't leave them far behind the average Englishman, says I. But it's fair law, and with respect, that's more you can say for most of your Indian courts. Look now, when there was a brawl in the street outside your palace two days since, what happened? Your guards didn't catch the culprits, so they laid hands on the first poor soul they met, hailed him into your divan, guilty or not and you have him hanging by his thumbs and sun-drying at the scene of the crime for two solid days. Fellow nearly died of it, and he'd done nothing. I ask you, ma'am, is that justice? He was a budmash, and well-known, says she, wide-eyed. Would you have let him go? For that offence, yes, since he was innocent of it. We punish only the guilty. And if you cannot find them, is there to be no example made? There will be no more brawls outside the palace, I think. 
and seeing my look she went on, I know it is not your way, and it seems unfair and even barbarous to you, but we understand it. Should that not be enough? You'll find it strange, like our religions and our forbidden things and our customs, but can your sikar not see that they are as precious to us as yours are to you? Why, is it not enough to your company to drive its profit? Why this greed to order people's lives? It isn't greed, Highness, says I, but you can't drive trade on a battlefield now, can you? There has to be peace and order, surely, and you can't have them without, well, a strong hand and a law that's fair for all or for most people. Anyway, I knew she wouldn't take kindly if I said the law was as much for her as for her subjects, and when we make mistakes, well, we try to put them right, you see, which is what I'm here for, to see that justice, our justice, if you like, is done to you. Do you think that is all that matters? says she. We had stopped in the pavilion garden, and the horses were cropping, while her attendants waited out of earshot. She was looking at me, frowning, and her eyes were very bright. Do you think it is the revenues and the jewels, even my son's rights? Do you think that is all I care for? These are the things that can be redressed, but what of the things that cannot? What of this life, this land, this country that you will change, as you change everything you touch. Today it is still bright, but you will make it grey. Today it is still free, oh, and no doubt wrong and savage by your lights, and you will make it tame and orderly and bleak, and the people will forget what they once were. That is what you will do, and that is why I resist as best I can, as you and Lord Palmerston would. Tell him! says she, and by George her voice was shaking, but the pretty mouth was set and hard. When you go home, that whatever happens, I will not give up my Jahanzi. Mira Jahanzi Dengene! I will not give up my Jahanzi. I was astonished. I had never been in doubt that under the delectable feminine surface there was a tigress of sorts, but I hadn't thought it such a passionately sentimental animal. Do you know, for a moment I was almost moved— she seemed such a damned spunky little woman. I felt like saying, there, there, or stroking her hand, or squeezing her tits, or something. And then she had taken a breath, and sat upright in the saddle, as though recovering herself. And she looked so damned royal, and so damned lovely, that I couldn't help myself. Maharaj, you don't need me to say it. Go to London yourself, and tell Lord Palmerston— and I swear he'll not only give you Jahanzi, but Bombay and Hackney Wick as well. And I meant it. She'd have been a sensation, had him eating out of her dusky little palm. See the Queen herself, why don't you? She stared, thoughtfully ahead for a moment, and then murmured under her breath, The Queen! God save the Queen! What strange people you British are! "'Don't you worry about the British,' says I. "'They'll sing God Save the Queen, all right, "'and they'll be thinking of the Queen of Jehansi.' "'Now that is disloyal, Colonel,' says she, "'and the languid smile was back in her eyes "'as she turned her horse and trotted off with me following. "'Now you may be thinking to yourself, "'What's come over, old Flash? "'He ain't gone soft on this female, surely. "'Well, you know, I think the truth is 
that I was a bit soft on all my girls, Lola and Cassie and Valor and Co. Darley's daughter and Susie the Board and Takes Away Clouds Woman and the rest of them. Now, don't mistake me. It was always the meat that mattered, but I had a fair affection for them at the same time, every now and then, weather permitting. You can't help it. Feeling Randy is a damned romantic business, and it's my belief that Galahad was a bigger beast in bed than ever Lancelot was. That's, by the way, but worth remembering if you are to understand about me and Lakshmi by. And I've told you a good deal about her on purpose, because she was such a mysterious, contrary female that I can't hope to explain her any more than historians can, but must leave you to judge for yourselves from what I've written and from what was to follow. For on the morning after that talk at the pavilion, two weeks to the day since I'd arrived in Jehansi, things began to happen in earnest to me at any rate. I sensed there was something up as soon as I presented myself in the Durba room. She was perfectly pleasant, vivacious even, as she told me about some new hunting cheater she'd been given, but her vakil and chief minister weren't meeting her eye, and her foot was tap-tapping under the edge of her gold sari. Ah, thinks I, someone's been getting the sharp side of Missy's tongue. She didn't have much mind to business either, and once or twice I caught her eyeing me almost warily, when she would smile quickly. With anyone else, I would have said it was nervousness. Finally, she cut the discussion off abruptly, saying enough for today, and we would watch the guardsmen fencing in the courtyard. Even there, I noticed her finger tapping on the balcony as we looked down at the Pathans, sabering away. Damned active, dangerous lads they looked too, but in a little while she began to take notice, talking about the sword-play and applauding the hits, and then she glanced sidelong at me and says, do you fence as well as you ride, Colonel? I said, pretty fair, and she gave me her lazy smile and says, Then we shall try about. And blow me if she didn't order a couple of foils up to the Durba room and go off to change into her jodpers and blouse. I waited, wondering, of course. Skeen had said she'd been brought up with boys and could handle arms with the best of them, but it seemed deuced odd. And then she was back, ordering her attendants away tying up her hair in a silk scarf and ordering me on guard, very businesslike. They'll never believe this at home, thinks I, but I obeyed, indulgently enough, and she touched me three times in the first minute. So I settled down in earnest, and in the next minute she hit me only once, laughing, and told me to try harder. That nettled me, I confess. I wasn't having this, royalty or not. So I went to work. I'm a strong swordsman, but not too academic, and I pushed her for all I was worth. She was better muscled than she looked, though and fast as a cat, and I had to labour to make her break ground, gasping with laughter until her back was against one of the glass walls. She took to the point, holding me off, and then, unaccountably, her guard seemed to falter. I jumped in with the old heavy cavalry trick, punching my hilt against the forte of her blade. Her foil spun out of her hand, and for a moment we were breast to breast, with me panting within inches of that dusky face and open, laughing mouth. The great dark eyes were wide and waiting, and then my foil was clattering on the floor, and I had her in my arms, crushing my lips on hers, and tasting the sweetness of her tongue, with that soft body pressed against me, revelling in the feel and fragrance of her. I felt her hand slip up my back to my head, holding my face against hers for a long, delicious moment, and then she drew her lips away, sighing, opened her eyes, and said, "'How well do you shoot, Coronel?' 
and then she had slipped from my arms and was walking quickly towards the door to her private room, with me grunting endearments in pursuit, but as I came after her she raised her hand without turning or breaking stride and said firmly, The Delbar is finished for the moment. The door closed behind her, and I was left with the fallen foils panting like a bull before business, but thinking, My boy, we're home, the damned little teaser! I hesitated, wondering whether to invade her boudoir when the little chamberlain came pottering in, eyeing the foils in astonishment. So I took my leave and presently was riding back to the cantonment, full of buck and anticipation. I'd known she'd call play in the end, and now there was nothing to do but enjoy the game. That was why she'd been jumpy earlier, of course, wondering how best to bring me to the boil, the cunning minx. How well do you shoot, forsooth? She'd find out soon enough, when we finished the Durba, tomorrow, no doubt. So by way of celebration, I drank a sight more bubbly than was good for me at dinner, and even took a magnum back to my bungalow for luck. It was as well I did. For about ten, Ilderim dropped by for a prose, as he'd taken to doing, and there's nobody thirstier than a dry gilzeye. If you think all Muslims abstain, I can tell you of one who didn't. So we popped the cork and gassed about the old days and smoked, and I was enjoying myself with carnal thoughts about my lucky Lakshmi-bai and thinking about turning in when there came a scraping on the chick at the back of the bungalow, and the kitmagar appeared to tell me that there was a bibi who insisted on seeing me. Ilderim grinned and wagged his ugly head, and I cursed, thinking here was some bizarre hoorie plying her trade where it was least wanted. But I staggered out, and sure enough, at the foot of the steps was a veiled woman in a sari, but with a burly-looking escort standing further back at the gate. She didn't look like a slut, somehow, and when I asked what she wanted, she came quickly up the steps, salamed, and held out a little leather pouch. I took it, wondering. Inside there was a handkerchief, and even through the champagne fumes there was no mistaking. It was heavy with my perfume. From my mistress, says the woman, as I goggled at it. By God, says I, and sniffed it again. Who the blazes? Name no names, says she. And it was a well-spoken voice for a Hindu. My mistress sends it, and bids you come to the river pavilion in an hour. And with that, she salamed again and slipped down the steps. I called after her, and took an unsteady step, but she didn't stop, and she and her escort vanished in the dark. Well, I'm damned, thinks I, surprise giving way to delight. She couldn't wait, by heaven, and of course the river pavilion at night was just the place, far better than the palace where all sorts of folk were prying. Nice and secluded, very discreet, just the place for a rowdy little Rani to entertain. Sice, I shouted and strode back inside, a trifle unsteadily, damming the champagne, but chortling as I examined my chin in the glass, decided it would do, and roared for a clean shirt. "'Now where away?' says Ilderim, who was squatting on the rug. "'Not after some trollop from the bazaar, at this time.' "'No, brother,' says I, "'something much better than a trollop. If you could see this one, you'd forswear small boys and melons for good. By Jove, I was feeling prime. I dandied myself up in no time, rinsed my face to clear some of the booze away, and was out champing on the veranda as the syce brought my pony round. 
You're mad, growls Ilderim. Do you go alone? Where to? I'm not sharing her, if that's what you mean. I'll take the scythe, for I wasn't too sure of the way at night, and it was pitch black. I must have been drunker than I felt, for it took me three shots to mount, and then, with a wave to Ilderim, who was glowering doubtfully from the veranda, I trotted off, with the scythe scrambling up behind. Now, I'll admit I was woozy, and say at the same time that I'd have gone if I'd been cold sober. I don't know when I've been pawing the ground quite so hard for a woman. Probably the two weeks spooning had worked me up, and I couldn't cover the two miles to the pavilion fast enough. Fortunately, the scythe was a handy lad, for he not only guided us, but held me from tumbling out of the saddle. I don't remember much of the journey, except that it lasted for ages, and then we were among trees, with the hooves padding on grass. The scythe was shaking my arm, and there ahead was the pavilion, half hidden by the foliage. I didn't want the scythe spying, so I slid down and told him to wait, and then I pushed on. In spite of the night air, the booze seemed to have increased its grip, but I navigated well enough, leaning on a trunk every now and then. I surveyed the pavilion. There were dim lights on the ground floor, and in one room upstairs, and by George, there was even the sound of music on the slight breeze. I beamed into the dark. What these Indians don't know about the refinements of romping isn't worth knowing. An orchestra underneath, privacy and soft lights upstairs, and no doubt refreshments to boot. I rubbed my face and hurried forward through the garden to the outside staircase leading to the upper rooms, staggering quietly so as not to disturb the hidden musicians who were fluting sweetly away behind the screens. I mounted the staircase, holding on tight, and reached the little landing. There was a small passage and a slated door at the end, with light filtering through it. I paused to struggle out of my loose trousers. At least I wasn't so tight that I'd been fool enough to come out in boots. Took a great lusty breath, padded unsteadily forward, and felt the door give at my touch. The air was heavy with perfume as I stepped in, stumbled into a muslin curtain, swore softly as I disentangled myself, took hold of a wooden pillar for support, and gazed round into the half-gloom. There were dim pink lamps burning on the floor against the walls, giving just enough light to show the broad couch shrouded in mosquito net against the far wall. And there she was, silhouetted against the glow, sitting back among the cushions, one leg stretched out, the other with knee raised. There was a soft tinkle of bangles, and I leaned against my pillar and croaked, Lakshmi Bhai! Lucky? It's me, darling, Chabeli. I'm here. She turned her head, and then in one movement raised the net and slipped out, standing motionless by the couch like a bronze statue. She was wearing bangles, all right, and a little gold girdle round her hips, and some kind of metal headdress from which a flimsy veil descended from just beneath her eyes to her chin. Not another stitch! I let out an astonishing noise, and was trying to steady myself for a plunge, but she checked me with a lifted hand, slid one foot forward, crooked her arms like a nouch dancer, and came gliding slowly towards me, swaying that splendid golden nakedness in time to the throbbing of the music beneath our feet. I could only gape. Whether it was the drink or admiration or what, I don't know, but I seemed paralysed in every limb but one. 
She came writhing up to me, bangles tinkling and dark eyes gleaming enormously in the soft light. I couldn't see her face for the veil, but I wasn't trying to. She retreated, turning and swaying her rump, and then approached again, reaching forward to brush me teasingly with her fingertips. I grabbed, gasping, but she slid away, faster now as the tempo of the music increased, and then back again, hissing at me through the veil, lifting those splendid breasts in her hands, and this time I had the wit to seize a tit and a buttock, fairly hooting with lust as she writhed against me and lifted the veil just enough to bring her mouth up to mine. Her right foot was slipping up the outside of my left leg, past the knee, up to the hip, and round so that her heel was in the small of my back. God knows how they do it. Double joints or something. And then she was thrusting up and down like a demented monkey on a stick, raking me with her nails and giving little shrieks into my mouth until the torchlight procession which was marching through my loins suddenly exploded. She went limp in my arms, and I thought, Oh, Lord! Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, as I slid gently to the floor in ecstatic exhaustion, with that delightful burden clinging and quivering on top of me. The instructors who taught dancing to young Indian royalty in those days must have been uncommon sturdy. She had just about done for me, but somehow I must have managed to crawl to the couch, for the next I knew I was there with my face cradled against those wonderful perfume boobies— I tried feebly to go brrrr, but she turned my head and lifted a cup to my lips, as if I hadn't enough on board already, but I drank greedily and sank back, gasping, and was just deciding I might live after all, when she set about me again, lips and hands questing over my body, fondling and plaguing, writhing her hips across my groaning carcass, until she was astride my thighs, with her back to me, and the torch-like procession staggered into marching order once more eventually erupting yet again with shattering effect, after which she left me in peace for a good half-hour, as near as I could judge in my intoxicated state. One thing I'm certain of, that if I'd been sober and in my right mind, she could never have teased me into action a third time, as she did, by doing incredible things which I still only half believe as I recall them. But I remember those great eyes over the veil and the pearl on her brow and her perfume and the tawny velvet skin in the half-light. I came awake in an icy sweat, my limbs shivering, trying to remember where I was. There was a cold wind from somewhere out in the dark, and I turned my aching head. The pink lamps were burning, casting their shadows, but she was no longer there. Someone was, though. Surely, over by the door, there was a dark figure, but it wasn't naked, for I could see a white loincloth, and instead of the gold headdress, there was a tight white turban. A man. And he was holding something. A stick. No. It had a strange curved head on it. And there was another man, just behind him, and even as I watched, they were gliding stealthily into the room, and I saw that the second one had a cloth in his right hand. For perhaps ten seconds I lay motionless, gazing, and then it rushed in on me that this wasn't a dream, that they were moving towards the couch, and that this was horrible, inexplicable danger. The net was gone from the couch, and I could see them clearly, the white eyes in the black faces. I braced for an instant, and then hurled myself off the couch away from them, slipped, recovered, and rushed at the shutters in the screen wall. There was a snarl from behind me, something swished in the air and thudded, 
and I had a glimpse of a small pickaxe quivering in the shutter as I flung myself headlong at the screen, yelling in terror. Thank God I'm fourteen stone! It came down with a splintering crash, and I was sprawling on the little veranda, thrashing my way out of the splintered tangle and heaving myself onto the veranda rail. From the tail of my eye I saw a dark shape springing for me over the couch. There was a tree spreading its thick foliage within five feet of the veranda, and I dived straight into it, crashing and scraping through the branches, clutching vainly and taking a tremendous thump across the hips as I struck a limb. For a second I seemed suspended, and then I shot down and landed flat on my back with a shock that sickened me. I rolled over, trying to heave myself up, as two black figures dropped from the tree almost on top of me. I blundered into one of them, smashed a fist into its face, and then something flicked in front of my eyes, and I only just got a hand up in time to catch the garrote as it jerked back onto my throat. I shrieked, hauling at it. My wrist was clamped under my chin by the strangler's scarf, but my right arm was free, and I staggered back into him. I scrabbled behind me, was fortunate enough to grab a handful of essentials, and wrenched for all I was worth. He screamed in agony. The scarf slackened, and he went down, but before I could flee for the safety of the wood, the other one was on my back, and he made no mistake.' The scarf whipped round my windpipe, his knee was into my spine, and I was flailing helplessly with his breath hissing in my ear. Five seconds, it flashed across my mind, is all it takes for an expert garotta to kill a man. Oh, Jesus, my sight was going, my head was coming off, with a horrible pain tearing in my throat. I was dying, even as I fell, floating down to the turf, and then I was on my back, gasping down huge gulps of air, and the faces that were swimming in front of my eyes, glaring horribly, were merging into one. Ilderim Khan was gripping my shoulders and urging, Flashman, be still. There now, lie a moment and breathe, inshallah. The strangler's touch is no light thing. His strong fingers were massaging my throat as he grinned down at me. See what comes of lusting after loose women. A moment more, and we would have been sounding retreat over thee. So give thanks that I have a suspicious mind, and followed with my bad mashes, to see what kind of kunchuni it was who bade thee to her bed so mysteriously. How is it, old friend? Can you stand? What happened? I mumbled, trying to rise. Ask why, rather. Has she a jealous husband, perhaps? We saw the lights and heard music. But presently all was still, and many came out to a palanquin in which ladies travel, and so away. But no sign of thee, till we heard thee burst out, with these hounds of hell behind thee. And following his nod I saw there were two of his ruffians squatting in the shadows over two dark shapes lying on the grass. One was ominously still, but the other was gasping and wheezing, and from the way he clutched himself I imagine he was the assassin whose courting tackle I tried to rearrange. One of Ilderim's sowars was ostentatiously cleaning his kyber knife with a handful of leaves, and presently a third came padding out of the dark. "'The sahib's sais is dead yonder,' says he, bitten with a tooth from Kali's mouth. "'What?' says Ilderim, starting up. "'Now, in God's name!' And he went quickly to the body of the dead strangler, snatching a lantern from one of his men, and peering into the dead face. I heard him exclaim, and then he beckoned me. "'Look there,' says he, and pulled down the dead man's eyelid with his finger. Even in the flickering light I could see the crude tattoo on the skin. "'Thug,' 
says Ilderen through his teeth. Now, fleshman, what does this mean? I was trying to take hold of my senses, with my head splitting and my neck feeling as though it had been through the mangle. It was a nightmare. One moment I'd been in a drunken frenzy of fornication with Lakshmi Bai, with a house full of musicians beating time, and the next I was being murdered by professional stranglers and thugs at that. But I was too shocked to think, so Ildrim grunted and turned to the groaning prisoner. This one shall tell us, says he, and seized him by the throat. Look now, thou art dead already, but it can be swift, or I can trim off the appurtenances and extremities from thy foul carcass and make thee eat them. That for a beginning, so choose. Who sent thee, and why? The thug snarled and spat at him. So Ilderim says, Take him to the tree yonder. And while they did, he hauled out his knife, stropped it on his soul, says, Bide here, Husur, and then strode grimly after them. I couldn't have moved if I'd wanted to. It was a nightmare. Unbelievable. But in those few minutes, while dreadful grunts and an occasional choked-off scream came out of the dark, I strove to make some sense of it. Lakshmi-bai had plainly left me asleep, or drunk, or drugged, or both, in the pavilion, and shortly after the thugs had arrived. But why? Why should she seek my death? It made no sense. No, by God! Because if she had just been luring me out for assassination, she'd have had me ambushed on the way. She'd certainly not have pleasured me like a crazy spinster first, and there was no earthly reason why she should want me killed. What had I done to merit that? She'd been so friendly and straight and kind— I could have sworn she'd been falling in love with me for two weeks past. Oh, I've known crafty women, sluts who tickle your buttons with one hand and reach for a knife with the other, but not her. I couldn't swallow that. I wouldn't. I couldn't even understand her slipping out and leaving me. It had been a clandestine gallop, after all. She had a reputation to consider. What better way of concluding it than by vanishing swiftly back to the palace, leaving her partner to find his own way home? I reflected moodily that she'd probably done the same thing countless times in that very pavilion, whenever she felt like it. She was no novice, that was certain. No wonder her late husband had lost interest and curled up and died. The poor devil must have been worn to a shadow. But who, then, had set thugs on me? Or were they just stray, indiscriminate killers, as thugs usually were, slaying anyone who happened in their way for fun and religion? Had they just spotted me out at night and decided to chalk up another score for Carly? And then Ildrim came striding out of the dark, whipping his knife into the turf and squatting down beside me. Stubborn, says he, rubbing his beard, but not too stubborn, Flashman. It is ill news. He stared at me with grave eyes. There is a fellowship hunting thee. They have been out this week past the Brotherhood of Deceivers, whom everyone thought dead or disbanded these years past, with orders to seek out and slay the Colonel Flashman Sahib at Jahanzi. That one yonder is a chief among them. Six nights since he was at Firozabad, where his lodge met to hear a strange fakir who offered them gold and, he tapped my knee, an end to the Raj in due time, and a rebirth of their order of Thagi. They were to prepare against the day, and as grace before meat, 
they were to sacrifice thee to Kali. I knew all along, says he with a grim satisfaction, that this was political, and ye walked a perilous road. Well, thou art warned in time, but it must be a fast horse to the coast and ship across the Kalapani. For if these folk are riding thy tail, then this land is death to thee. There will not be a safe nook from the Deccan to the Khyber Gate. I sat limp and trembling, taking this horror in. I was afraid to ask the question, but I had to know. This fakir, I croaked, who is he? No one knows, except that he is from the north, a one-eyed man with a fair skin from beyond the passes. There are those who think he is a sahib, but not of thy people. He has money and followers in secret and he preaches against the sahib log in whispers. Ignatieff! I almost threw up. So it had happened, as Pam had thought it might. The bastard was back and had tracked me down, and devil a doubt he knew all about my mission too, somehow, and he and his agents were spreading their poison everywhere and seeking to revive the devilish thuggy cult against us, with me at the top of the menu. And Ilderim was right. There wasn't a hope unless I could get out of India, but I couldn't. This was what I was meant to be here for. Why, Pam, in his purblind folly, had sent me out to tackle Ignatieff at his own game and dispose of him. I couldn't run squealing to Bombay or Calcutta, bawling, Gangway! And a first-class ticket home, quick! This was the moment I was meant to earn my corn, against bloody dacoits and rusky agents. I gulped and sweated. And then another thought struck me. Was Lakshmi by part of this? God knew. She'd no cause to love the Sikar. Was she another of the spiders in this devilish web, playing Delilah for the Russians? But no. No. Even to my disordered mind, one thing remained clear. She'd never have walloped the mattress with me like that if she'd been false. No. This was Ignatieff. Impure and anything but simple, and I had to think, as I'd never thought before, with Ilderim's eye on me, while I took my head in my hands and wondered, Christ, how can I slide out this time? And then inspiration dawned, slowly. I couldn't leave India, or be seen to be running away, but I told Skeen that if the crisis came I might well vanish from sight, locally, to go after Ignatieff in my own way. Well, now I would vanish, right enough. That shouldn't be difficult. I schemed it fast, as I can when I'm truly up against it, and turned to Ilderim. Look, brother, says I, this is a great political affair, as you guessed. I cannot tell thee, and I cannot leave India. Then thou art dead, says he cheerfully. Kali's hand will be on thee through these messengers, and he pointed at the dead thug. Hold on, says I, sweating. They are looking for Colonel Flashman. But if Colonel Flashman becomes, say, a Kaikan pony peddler, or an Abizai who has done his time in the guides or lancers, how will they find him then? I've done it before, remember? Damn it, I speak Pushtu as well as you do, and Urdu even better. Wasn't I an agent with Sekunda Sahib? 
All I need is a safe place for a season to lie up and sniff the wind before, and I started lying recklessly for effect, before I steal out again, having made my plans to break this one-eyed fakir and his rabble of stranglers and loose wallers. Do you see? Inshallah, cries he, grinning all over his evil face. It is the great game to lie low in disguise and watch and listen and wait and conspire with the other political sahibs of the Sikar until the time is ripe, and then go against these evil subverters in a secret razia. And when that time comes, I may share the sport, and halal these Hindu and foreign swine with my lads. Thou wouldst not forget thy old friend, then. He grabbed my hand, the bloodthirsty devil. Thou'd send me word, surely, when the knives are out. Thy brother, Ilderim. You'll wait a long time for it, my lad, thinks I. Give me a good disguise and a pony, and you'll not see me again. Not until everything has safely blown over and some other idiot has disposed of Ignatieff and his bravos. That's when I'd emerge, with a good yarn to spin to Calcutta and Pam, about how I'd gone after him secretly, and damn it, I'd missed the blight of bad luck. That would serve, and sound sufficiently mysterious and convincing, but for the moment my urgent need was a disguise and a hiding place at a safe distance. Some jungly or desert spot might be best. I'd lived rough that way before, and, as I told Ilderim, I could pass as a frontiersman or Afghan with any of them. When there are rusky throats to be cut, you'll be the first to know, I assured him, and he embraced me, chuckling, and swearing I was the best of brothers. The matter of disguise reminded me that I was still stark naked and shivering. I told him I wanted a kit exactly like that of his sawars, and he swore I'd have it, and a pony, too. "'And you may tell Skeen Sahib from me,' says I, "'that the time has come, and he can start feeling sorry for the Ruskies. He'll understand. For I wasn't going back to the cantonment. I wanted to ride out tonight, wherever I was going.' Tell him of the one-eyed fakir, that the thugs are abroad again and the axles are getting hot. You may say I've had a brush with the enemy already, but you needn't tell him what else I was doing tonight. I winked at him. Understand? Oh, aye, and if he has inquiries after me from the Rani of Jahanzi, he may say I have been called away, and present my apologies. The Rani, says he, and his eye strayed towards the pavilion. Aye. He coughed and grinned. That was some rich lady's palanquin I saw tonight, and many servants. Perchance, was it? A gilzai and a grandmother for scandal, I quoted. Mind your own damn business, and now be a good lad, and get me that outfit and pony. He summoned one of his rascals and asked if the tortured thug was dead yet. Nay, but he has no more to tell, says the other. "'for he said nothing when I—' "'You wouldn't wish to know what he said next. "'Shall I pass him some of his own tobacco?' he added. "'Aye,' said Ilderim, "'and tell Rafik Tamwa I want all his clothes and his knife and his horse. "'Go thou!' "'For answer the Sowar nodded, took out his Khyber knife, "'and stepped back under the trees to where his companions were guarding the prisoner, "'or what was left of him. "'I heard him address the brute.' Even at that time and place, it was an extraordinary enough exchange to fix itself in my mind. One of the most astonishing things I've ever heard, even in India. "'It is over, deceiver,' says he. "'Here is the knife. In the throat, 
or the heart? Choose. The thug's reply was hoarse with agony. In the heart, then, quickly. You're sure? As you wish. No, wait, gasps the thug. Put the point behind my ear, so thrust hard. Thus I will bleed less and go undisfigured. Now. There was a pause, and then the Soar's voice says, He was right. He bleeds hardly at all. Trust a deceiver to know. A few moments later, and Rafik Tamwa appeared, grumbling in a rag of loin cloth with his clothes over his arm, and leading a neat little pony. I told Ildrim that Skeen Sahib must see his kit replaced, and he could have my own Pegu pony, at which the good Tamwa grinned through his beard and said he would willingly make such an exchange every day. I slipped into his shirt and cavalry breeches, drew on the soft boots, donned his hairy poshteen, stuck the Khyber cleaver in my sash, and was winding the puggery round my head and wishing I had a revolver as well, when Ilrim says thoughtfully, Where wilt thou go, Flashman? Have ye an eyrie to wait in where no enemy can find thee? I confessed I hadn't, and asked if he had any suggestions, at which he frowned thoughtfully, and then smiled, and then roared with laughter, and rolled on his back, and then stood up, peering and grinning at me. "'Some juice for thy skin,' says he. "'Ay, and when thy beard has grown, thou'lt be a rare peshwar ruffler. "'So ye swagger enough, and curl thy hair round thy finger, "'and spit from the back of thy throat.' "'I know all about that,' says I impatiently. "'Where do you suggest I do all these things?' In the last place any ill-willer would ever look for a British Colonel Sahib, says he, chortling. Look now, wouldst thou live easy for a spell and eat full and grow fat? What time thou art preparing to play the game against these enemies of the Raj? Aye, and get well paid for it. Twenty-four rupees a month and butter also. He slapped his hands together at my astonishment. Why not join the Sikar's army? What a recruit for the native cavalry. Why, given a month, they'll make thee a daffadar? He stuck his tongue in his cheek. Maybe a Rizalda in time. Who knows? Are you mad, says I? Me? Enlist as a sowar? And how the devil do you expect me to get away with that? What hinders? Thou hast passed in Kabul Bazaar before today, and along the Kandahar road. Stain thy face, as I said, and grow thy beard, and thou'lt be the properest Sikar's bargain in India. Does it not meet thy need, and will it not place thee close to affairs within reach of thine own folk and ready to move at a finger-snap? It was ridiculous, and yet the more I thought of it, the more obvious it was. How long did I want to hide? A month? Two or three, perhaps? I would have to live, and for the life of me I couldn't think of a more discreet and comfortable hiding place than the ranks of a native cavalry regiment. I had all the qualifications and experience, if I was careful. But I'd have to be that, whatever I did. I stood considering while Ilderim urged me, full of enthusiasm. See now, there is my mother's cousin, Gulam Beg, who was Malik in one of my father's villages and is now worthy major in the 3rd Cavalry at Merit Garrison. 
If thou goest to him and say Ilderim sent thee, will he not be glad of such a fine sturdy trooper? Ye may touch the hilt and eat the salt, and belike he'll forget the Asami for my sake. Let me see now, says this mad rascal, chuckling as he warmed to his work. Thou art a Yusufazai Pathan of the Peshwa Valley. No, no, better still, will have thee a Hassanzai of the Black Mountain. They are a strange folk, touched and given to wild fits. So much may be excused thee. Oh! Oh, it is rare! Thou art Makaram Khan, late of the Peshwa police, and so familiar with the ways of the sahibs, thou hast skirmished along the line, too. Never fear, there was a Makaram Khan, until I shot him on my last furlough. He will give thee a shabash from hell, for he was a stout rider in his time, careless, though, or he'd have watched the rocks as he rode. Well, Makaram, says he, grinning like a wolf in the gloom, wilt thou carry a lance for the Sikar? I'd been determining, even as he talked. I was in the greatest fix, and there was no other choice. If I'd known what it would lead to, I'd have damned Ildrim's notion to his teeth. But it seemed inspired at the time. Bind thy puggery round thy jaw at night, lest thou babble in English in thy sleep, says he at parting. Be sullen. And speak little, and be a good soldier, blood brother, for the credit of Ilderim Khan. He laughed, and slapped my saddle as we shook hands in the dark under the trees. When thou comest this way again, go to Bull Temple, beyond the Jokanbak. I will have a man waiting for an hour at sunrise and sunset. Salam, Sowa, cries he, and saluted and I dug my heels into my pony and cantered off in the dawn, still like a man in a wild dream. You might think it impossible for a white man to pass himself off as a native soldier in John Company's army, and indeed I doubt if anyone else has ever done it. But when you've been called on to play as many parts as I have, it's a bagatelle. Why, I've been a Danish prince, a Texas slave dealer, an Arab sheikh, a Cheyenne dog-soldier, and a Yankee Navy lieutenant in my time, among other things, and none of them was as hard to sustain as my lifetime's impersonation of a British officer and gentleman. The truth is, we all live under false pretenses much of the time. You just have to put on a bold front and brazen it through. I'll admit my gift of languages has been my greatest asset, and I suppose I'm a pretty fair actor. Anyway... I'd carried off the role of an Asian-Afghan nigger often enough, and before I was more than a day's ride on the way to Mirut, I was thoroughly back in the part, singing Kabuli Bazaar songs through my nose, sneering sideways at anyone I passed, and answering greetings with a grunt or a snarl. I had to keep my chin and mouth covered for the first three days until my beard had sprouted to a disreputable stubble. Apart from that, I needed no disguise, for I was dark and dirty-looking enough to start with. By the time I struck the grand trunk, my own mother wouldn't have recognised the big, hairy, border ruffian jogging along so rafishly with his boots out of his stirrups and his love-lock curling out under his puggery. On the seventh day, when I cursed and shoved my pony through the crowded streets of Mirut City, spurning the rabble aside as a good Hassan's I should, I was even thinking in Pushtu. 
and if you'd offered me a seven-course dinner at the Café Royale, I'd have turned it down for mutton and rice stew with boiled dates to follow. My only anxiety was Ildrim's cousin, Gulam Beg, whom I had to seek out in the native cavalry lines beyond the city. He would be sure to run a sharp eye over a new recruit, and if he spotted anything queer about me, I'd have a hard job keeping up the imposture. Indeed, at the last minute my nerves slackened a little, and I rode about for a couple of hours before I plucked up the courage to go and see him. I rode on past the native infantry lines and over the Nuller Bridge, up to the Mall in the British town. It was while I was sitting my pony brooding under the trees that a dog-cart with two English children and their mother went by, and one of the brats squealed with excitement and said I looked just like Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. That cheered me up for some reason. Anyway, I had to have a place to eat and sleep while I shirked my duty, so I finally presented myself at the headquarters of the Third Native Light Cavalry and demanded to see the Wordy Major. I needn't have worried— Gulam Beg was a stout, white-whiskered old cove with silver-rimmed spectacles on the end of his nose, and when I announced that Ilderim Khan of Mogala was my sponsor, he was all over me. Hassan's eye was I, and late of the polis. That was good. I had the look of an able man, yes. Doubtless the Colonel Sahib would look favourably on such a fine, upstanding recruit— I had seen no military service, though. Mm, he looked at me quizzically, and I tried to slouch a bit more. "'Not in the guides, perhaps?' says he, with his head on one side. "'Or the Kutch cavalry? No? Then doubtless it is by chance that you stand the regulation three paces from my table and clench your hand with the thumb forward. And that pony I see out yonder is girthed and bridled like one of ours.' He chuckled playfully. A man's past is his own affair, Makaram Khan. But should it profit us to pry and discover that a new recruit at once quit the cigar service over some small matter of feud or bloodletting, eh? You come from Ilderim. It is enough. Be ready to see the Colonel Sahib at noon. He'd spotted me for an old soldier, you see, which was all to the good. Having detected me... In a small deception, it never occurred to him to look for a large one, and he must have passed on his conclusion to the colonel, for when I made my salam to that worthy officer on the orderly room veranda, he looked me up and down and says to the wordy major in English, "'Shouldn't wonder if you weren't right, Gullenbeg. "'He's heard boots and saddles before. That's plain.' "'probably got bored with garrison work "'and slipped off one night with half a dozen rifles on his back, "'and now, having cut the wrong throat or lifted the wrong herd, "'he's come well south to avoid retribution.' "'He sat back, fingering the big white moustache "'which covered most of his crimson face. "'Ugly-looking devil, ain't he, though? "'Hassan's eye of the Black Mountain, eh? "'Yes, that's what I'd have thought. "'Very good.' "'He frowned at me and then said very carefully, Company Cavalry, Apka Mangta, which abomination of bad Urdu I took to mean, did I want to join the Company Cavalry? So I showed my teeth and says, Un, Sahib, and thought I might as well act out my part by betraying some more military knowledge. I ducked my head and leaned over and offered him the hilt of my sheathed kyber knife, at which he burst out laughing and touched it, saying that Gulam Beg was undoubtedly right, and I wasn't half knowledgeable for a chap who pretended never to have been in the army before. 
He gave instructions for me to be sworn in, and I took the oath on the sabre-blade, ate a pinch of salt, and was informed that I was now a skirmisher of the third native light cavalry, that my daffodur was Kudrat Ali, that I would be paid one rupee per day with a quarter-anna dying allowance, and that since I had brought my own horse I would be excused the customary recruit deposit. Also, that if I was half as much a soldier as the colonel suspected, and kept my hands off other people's throats and property, I might expect promotion in due course. Thereafter I was issued with a new puggery, half-boots and pyjami breeches, a new and very smart silver-grey uniform coat, a regulation sabre, a belt and bandolier, and a tangle of saddlery which was old and stiff enough to have been used at Waterloo, and probably had and informed by a betel-chewing havlidar that if I didn't have it reduced to gleaming suppleness by next morning, I had best look out. Finally, he took me to the armoury, and I was shown, mark this well, a new rifled Enfield musket, serial number 4413. Some things a soldier never forgets, which I was informed was mine henceforth, and more precious than my own mangy carcass. Without thinking, I picked it up and tested the action, as I'd done a score of times at Woolwich, and the Goanese store-waller gaped. "'Who taught you that?' says he. "'And who bade you handle it, jangly pig? It is for you to see. You touch it only when it is issued on parade.' And he snatched it back from me. I thought another touch of character would do no harm, so I waited till he had waddled away to replace it in the rack, and then whipped out my kyber knife and let it fly, intending to plant it in the wall or foot or so away from him. My aim was off, though. The knife embedded itself in the wall all right, but it nicked his arm in passing, and he squealed and rolled on the floor, clutching at his blood-smeared sleeve. "'Bring the knife back!' I snarled, baring my fangs at him, and when he had scrambled up, grey-faced and terrified, and returned it, I touched the point at his chest and said, Call Makaram Khan a pig just once more, Ulu Kabaja, and I will carry thine eyes and genitals on this point as kebabs. Then I made him lick the blood off the blade, spat in his face, and respectively asked the Havlidar what I should do next. He, being a Mussulman, was all for me, and said, grinning, that I should make a fair recruit. He told my daffodar, Kudrat Ali, about the incident, and presently the word went round the big airy barrack-room that Makaram Khan was a genuine saddle and lance man, from up yonder, who would strike first and inquire after. Doubtless a border lifter and a feud carrier, but a man who knew how to treat Hindu insolence, and therefore to be properly respected. So there I was, Colonel Harry Paget Flashman, late of the 11th Hussars, Seventeenth Lancers, and the staff, former aide to the Commander-in-Chief, and now acting sowar and rear file in the skirmishing squadron 3rd Cavalry Bengal Army. And if you think it was a mad-brained train of circumstances that had taken me there, well, so did I. But once I had got over the unreality of it all and stopped imagining that everyone was going to see through my disguise, I settled in comfortably enough. It was an eerie feeling, though, at first, to squat on my chapai against the wall with my puggery off, combing my hair or oiling my light harness, and look around that room at the brown half-naked figures laughing and chattering. Of all the things that soldiers talk about, women and officers and barrack gossip and women and rations and women, 
but in a foreign tongue, which, although I spoke it perfectly, and even with a genuine frontier accent, was still not my own. While I'd been by myself, as I say, I'd even been thinking in Pushtu, but here I had to hold on tight and remember what I was meant to be. For one thing, I wasn't used to being addressed in familiar terms by native soldiers, much less ordered about by an officious Nike, who'd normally have leapt to attention if I'd so much as looked in his direction. When the man who bunked next to me, Pierre Alley, a jolly rascal of a baluk, tapped my shoulder in suggesting that we might visit the bazaar that first evening, I absolutely stared at him and just managed to bite back that damn your impudence that sprang to my tongue. It wasn't easy, for a while. Quite apart from remembering obeisances at the prescribed times and making a show at cooking my own dinner at the chula, there were a thousand tiny details to be beware of. I must remember not to cross my legs when sitting, or blow my nose like a European, or say, mmm, if someone said something I couldn't catch, or use the wrong hand, or clear my throat in the discreet British fashion, or do any of the things that would have looked damned odd in an Afghan frontiersman. Of course, I made mistakes. Once or twice I was just plain ignorant of things that I ought to have known, like how to chew a majoon, when Pierre Ali offered me one. You have to spit into your hand from time to time, or you'll end up poisoned or how to cut a sheep-tail for curry, or even how to sharpen my knife in the approved fashion. When I blundered and anyone noticed, I found the best way was to stare them down and growl sullenly. But more often than not, my danger lay in betraying knowledge which Makaram Khan simply wouldn't have had. For example, when Kudrat Ali was giving us sword exercise, I found myself once falling into the rest position of a German schlager-fencer, not that anyone in India was likely to recognise that, and again, daydreaming about fagging days at rugby while cleaning my boots one evening, I found myself humming Whittacombe Fair, fortunately under my breath. My worst blunder, though, was when I was walking near a spot where the British officers were playing cricket, and the ball came skipping towards me. Without so much as thinking, I snapped it up and was looking to throw down the wicket when I remembered, and threw it back as clumsily as I could. One or two of them stared, though, and I heard someone say that big nigger was a deuced smart field. That rattled me, and I trod even more carefully than before. My best plan, I soon discovered, was to do and say as little as possible, and act a surly, reserved hillman who walked by himself, and whom it was safest not to disturb. The fact that I was, by way of being a protégé of the Wurdi Majors, and a Hassanzai, and therefore supposedly eccentric, led to my being treated with a certain deference. My imposing size and formidable looks did the rest, and I was left pretty much alone. Once or twice I walked out with Pierre Alley to lounge in the old market and ogle the bints, or dally with them in the boutique doorways, but he found my grunts a poor return for his own cheery prattle, and abandoned me to my own devices. It wasn't, as you can guess, the liveliest life for me at first, but I only had to think of the alternative to resign myself to it for the present. It was easy enough soldiering, and I quickly won golden opinions from my Nike and Jemadar for the speed and intelligence with which I appeared to learn my duties. At first it was a novelty, drilling, working, eating and sleeping with thirty Indian troopers, rather like being on the other side of the bars of a monkey zoo. But when you're closed into a world whose four corners are the barrack room, the chula, the stables and the maidan, 
it can become maddening to have to endure the society of an inferior and foreign race with whom you've no more in common than if they were Russian moujiks or Irish bog-trotters. What makes it ten times worse is the outcast feeling that comes of knowing that within a mile or two your own kind are enjoying all the home comforts, damn them, drinking barra pegs, smoking decent cigars, flirting and ramming with white women, and eating ices for dessert. I was no longer so enamoured of mutton pilau in ghee, you gather. Within a fortnight I'd have given anything to join an English conversation again, instead of listening to Pierre Alley giggling about how he'd bullocked the headman's wife on his last leave, or the endless details of Sita Gopal's uncle's lawsuit, or Ram Mangal's reviling of the Havildar, or Gobinda Dahl's whining about how he and his brothers, being soldiers, had lost much of the petty local influence they'd formerly enjoyed in their Oud village, now that the Sikar had taken over. When it got too bad, I would loaf up to the mall and gape at the Mem Sahibs, with their big hats and parasols driving by, and watch the officers cantering past, flicking their crops as I clumped my big boots and saluted, or squat near the church to listen to them singing Greenland's icy mountains of a Sunday evening. Damn it, I missed my own folk then, far worse than if they'd been a hundred miles away. I missed Lakshmi by too. Odd, ain't it? But I think what riled me most was the knowledge that if she'd seen me as I now was, well, she wouldn't even have noticed me. However, it had to be stuck out. I just had to think of Ignatieff, so I would trudge back to barracks and lie glowering while the sowars chattered. It had this value. I learned more about Indian soldiers in three weeks than I'd have done in a lifetime's ordinary service. You'll think I'm being clever afterwards, but I soon realised that all wasn't as well with them as I'd have thought at first sight. They were northern Muslims, mostly, with a sprinkling of high-caste old Hindus. The practice of separating the races in different companies or troops hadn't come in then. Good soldiers, too. The third had distinguished itself in the last Sikh war, and a few had frontier service. But they weren't happy. Smart, as you'd wish, on parade. But in the evening they would sit about and croak like hell. At first I thought it was just the usual military sore-headedness, but it wasn't. At first all I heard was vague allusions, which I didn't inquire about, for fear of betraying a suspicious ignorance. They talked a deal about one of the padres in the garrison, Reynolds Sahib, and how Colonel Karmik al-Ismit, that was the third's commander, Carmichael Smith, ought to keep him off the post, and there was a fair general repeated croak about polluted flour and the Enlistment Act, but I didn't pay much heed until one night I remember an old sowar come back from the bazaar in a tremendous taking. I don't even remember his name, but what had happened was that he'd been taking part in a wrestling match with some local worthy, and before he'd got his shirt back on afterwards, some British troopers from the dragoon guards who were there at the time had playfully snapped the sacred cord which he wore over his shoulder next the skin, as his kind of Hindus did. Bunshuts! Scum! He was actually weeping with rage. It is defiled! I am unclean! And for all that his mates tried to cheer him up, saying he'd get a new one, blessed by a holy man, he went on raving. They take these things very seriously, you know, like Jews and Muslims with pork. If it seems foolish to you, you may compare it with how you'd feel if a nigger pissed in the font at your own church. I shall go to the colonel, sahib, says he finally 
and one of the Hindus, Gobinda Dal, sneered, Why should he care? The man who will defile our Atta will not rebuke an English soldier for this. What's all this about the Atta? says I to Pierre Ali, and he shrugged. The Hindus say that the sahibs are grinding cow bones into the sepoy's flour to break their caste. For me, they can break any Hindu's stupid caste and welcome. Why should they do that? says I. And Sitter Gopal, who overheard, spat and says, Where have you lived, Hasanzai? The Sikhal will break every man's caste, I, and what passes for caste even among you Muslims? There are pig bones in the Atta, too, in case you didn't know it. Naik, Sher Afsul in the second troop told me, did he not see them ground at the sahib's factory at Cornpore? Wind from a monkey's backside, says I. What would it profit the sahibs to pollute your food? Since when do they hate their soldiers? To my astonishment, about half a dozen of them scoffed aloud at this. Listen to the Black Mountain Manshi. The sahibs love their soldiers, and so the Gora cavalry broke Lal's string for him tonight. Have you never heard of the dum-dum sweeper Makaram Khan? And so on. Ram Mangal, who was the noisiest croaker of them all, spat out, It is of a piece with the Padre Sahib's talk, and the new regulation that will send men across the Kalapani. They will break our caste to make us Christians. Do they not know this, even where you come from, Hillman? Why, it is the talk of the army. I growled that I didn't put any faith in latrine gossip, especially if the latrine was a Hindu one. And at this, one of the older men, Sardal something or other, shook his head and says gravely, It was no latrine rumour, Makaram Khan. That came out of dum-dum arsenal. And for the first time, I heard the astonishing tale that was, I discovered, accepted as gospel by every sepoy in the Bengal army of the sweeper at Dum-Dum, who'd asked a cast sepoy for a drink from his dish, and on being refused had told the sepoy that he needn't be so damn particular because the sahibs were going to do away with caste by defiling every soldier in the army by greasing their cartridges with cow and pig fat. "'This thing is known,' says old Sardul, positively, and he was the kind of old soldier that men listened to, Thirty years' service, Aliwal medal, and clean conduct sheet, damn your eyes. Is not the new Enfield musket in the armory? Are not the new greased cartridges being prepared? How can any man keep his religion? They say that Benaris, the Jawans, have been permitted to grease their own loads, says Pierre Ali, but they hooted him down. They say cries Ram Mangal. It is like the tale they put about that all the grease was mutton fat. If that was so, where is the need for anyone to make his own grease? It is a lie, just as the Enlistment Act is a lie, when they said it was a provision only, and no one would be asked to do foreign service. Ask the 19th at Behrampur where their officers told them they must serve in Burma if they refused the cartridge when it was issued. Aye, but they will refuse. Then we'll see. He waved his hands in passion. 
The polluted Atta is another link in the chain, like the preaching of that owl Reynolds Sahib with his Jesus talk, which Karmik al-Asmit permits to our offense. He wants to put us to shame. It is true enough, says old Sardul sadly. Yet I would not believe it if such a Sahib as my old Colonel MacGregor, did he not take a bullet meant for me at Kandahar, were to look in my eye and say it was false. The pity is that Kamik al-Ismit is not such a sahib. There are none such nowadays, says he with morbid satisfaction, and the army is but a poor ruin of what it was. You do not know today what officers were. If you had seen Sail Sahib, or Larnish Sahib, or Cotton Sahib, you would have seen men. Since he'd served in Afghanistan, I'd hoped he would mention Iflasman Sahib, but he didn't, the croaking old bastard. They would have died before they would have put dishonour on their sepoys. Their children they used to call us, and we would have followed them to hell. But now, he wagged his head again, these are Kutch Sahibs, not Baka Sahibs, and the English common soldiers are no better. Why, in my young day, an English trooper would call me brother, give me his hand, offer me his water bottle, not realizing that I could not take it, you understand. And now, these common men spit on us, call us monkeys and hubshies, and break Lal's string. Most of their talk was just patent rubbish, of course, and I'd no doubt it was the work of agitators spreading dissatisfaction with their nonsense about greased cartridges and polluted food. I almost said so, but decided it would be unwise to draw attention to myself. And anyway, it wasn't such a burning topic of conversation most of the time that one could take it seriously. I knew they put tremendous store by their religion, the Hindus especially, and I suppose that whenever an incident like Nal's string stirred them up, all the old grievances came out and were soon forgotten. But I'll confess that what Sardell had said about the British officers and troops reminded me of John Nicholson's misgivings. I had hardly seen a British officer on parade since my enlistment. They seemed content to leave their troops to the Jamadas and NCOs, Addiscan, Tripe, of course. And there was no question the British rankers in the Mirut garrison were a poorer type than, say, the 44th, who might known in the old Afghan days, or Campbell's Highlanders. I got first-hand evidence of this a day or two later, when I accidentally jostled a dragoon in the bazaar, and the brute turned straight round and lashed out with his boot. "'Out the way, you black bastard!' says he. "'Think you can shove a sahib around? Bat and shoot!' And he would have taken a swipe at me with his fist too, but I just put my hand on my knife-hilt and glared at him and it wouldn't have been prudent to do more. Christ, says he, and took to his heels until he got to the end of the street, where he snatched up a stone and flung it at me. It smashed a plate on a booth nearby and then made off. I'll remember you, my lad, thinks I, and the day'll come when I'll have you triced up and flogged to ribbons. And I did, as good luck had it. I've never been so wild that the scum of a Whitechapel gutter should take his boot to me. I'll be honest, and say that if I'd seen him do it to a native two months earlier, I wouldn't have minded a bit, and still wouldn't much. It's a nigger's lot to be kicked, 
but it ain't mine, and I can't tell you how I felt afterwards, filthy in a way, because I hadn't been able to pay the swine back. That's by the way. The point is that old Sardul was right. There wasn't the respect for Jarwans among the British that there had been in my young days. We probably lashed and kicked niggers just as much, I know I did, but there was a higher regard for the sepoys, at least, on the whole. I doubt if any commander in the old days would have done what Carmichael Smith did in the way of breaching parades, either. I hadn't believed it in the barrack gossip, but sure enough, the next Sunday, this coffin-faced Anglican fakir, the Reverend Reynolds, had a muster on the Maidan, and we had to listen to him expounding the parable of the prodigal son, if you please. He did it through a brazen-lunged Rizzledor who interpreted for him, and you never heard the like. Reynolds lined it out in English from the Bible, and the Rizalda stood there with his staff under his arm at attention, with his whiskers bristling, bawling his own translation. There was a Zamindar with two sons. He was a mad Zamindar, for while he yet lived, he gave to the younger his portion of the inheritance. Doubtless he raised it from a money-lender, and the younger spent it all whoring in the bazaar and drinking sherab. And when his money was gone, he returned home, and his father ran to meet him, for he was pleased. God alone knows why. And in his foolishness, the father slew his only cow. He was evidently not a Hindu. And they feasted on it. And the older son, who had been dutiful and stayed at home, was jealous. I cannot tell for what reason, unless the cow was to have been part of his inheritance. But his father, who did not like him, rebuked the older son. This story was told by Jesus the Jew, and if you believe it, you will not go to paradise, but instead will sit on the right-hand side of the English Lord God Sahib who lives in Calcutta. And there you will play musical instruments by order of the Sikar. Parade! Dismiss! I don't know when I've been more embarrassed on behalf of my church and country. I'm as religious as the next man, which is to say I'll keep in with the local parson for form's sake and read the lessons on feast days because my tenants expect it, but I've never been fool enough to confuse religion with belief in God. That's where so many clergymen, like the unspeakable Reynolds, go wrong, and it makes them arrogant and totally blind to the harm they may be doing. This idiot was so drunk with testaments that he couldn't conceive how ill-mannered and offensive he was making himself look. I suppose he thought of high-caste Hindus as being like willful children or drunken costermongers, perverse and misguided, but ripe for salvation if he just pointed them the way. He stood there with his unctuous fat face and piggy eyes, blessing us soberly, while the Muslims, being worldly in their worship, tried not to laugh, and the Hindus fairly seethed. I'd have found it amusing enough, I dare say, if I hadn't been irritated by the thought that these irresponsible Christian zealots were only making things harder for the army and company, who had important work to do, it was all so foolish and unnecessary. The heathen creeds, for all their nonsensical mumbo-jumbo, were as good as any for keeping the rabble in order. And what else is religion for? In any event, this misguided attempt to cure Hindu souls took place, not just at Mirut, but elsewhere, according to the religious intoxication of the local commanders, and in my opinion was the most important cause of the mischief that followed. I didn't appreciate this at the time, and couldn't have done anything if I had. Besides, 
I had more important matters to engage my attention. A few days after that parade, there was a gymkhana on the Maidan, and I rode for the skirmishers in the Nezabazi. Apart from languages and fornication, horsemanship is my only accomplishment, and I'd been well grounded in tent-pegging by the late Mohammed Iqbal. So it was no surprise that I took the greatest number of pegs, and would have got even more if I'd had a pony that I knew, and my lance hadn't snapped in a touch-peg on the last round. It was enough to take the cup, though, and old bloody Bill Hewitt, the garrison commander, slipped the handle over my broken lance-point in front of the marquee where all the top numbers of Mirut society were sitting applauding politely, the ladies in their crinolines and the men behind their chairs. Shabas, Sowar, says Bloody Bill. Where did you learn to manage a lance? Peshwa Valley, Huzur, says I. Company cavalry, says he, and I said no, Peshwa police. Didn't know they was lancers, says he. And Carmichael Smith, who was on hand, laughed and said to Hewitt in English, No more they are, sir. It's a rather delicate matter, I suspect. This bird here pretends he's never served the cigar before, but he's got guide written all over him. Shouldn't wonder if he wasn't Rizalda, Havildar at least. But we don't ask embarrassing questions. What? He's a damn good recruit, anyway. Ah, says Hewitt, grinning. He was a fat, kindly old buffer. Nuff said, then. And I was in the act of saluting when a little puff of wind sprang up, scattering the papers which were on the table behind him and blowing them under the pony's hooves. Like a good little toady, I slipped out of the saddle and gathered them up, and without thinking set them on the table and put the ink-pot on top of them to hold them steady. A simple, ordinary thing. But I heard an exclamation, and looked up to see Duff Mason, one of the infantry colonels, staring at me in surprise. I just salaamed and saluted, and was back in my saddle in a second, while they called up the next man for his prize. But as I wheeled my pony away, I saw that Mason was looking after me with a puzzled smile on his face, and saying something to the officer next to him. Hello, thinks I, as he spotted something. But I couldn't think I'd done anything to give myself away until next morning, when the Rizalda called me out of the ranks and told me to report to Mason's office in the British lines forthwith. I went with my heart in my mouth, wondering what the hell I was going to do if he had seen through my disguise, only to find it was the last thing my guilty conscience might have suspected. Makaram Khan, isn't it? says Mason, when I stood to attention on his veranda and went through the ritual of hilt-touching. He was a tall, brisk, wiry fellow with a sharp eye, which he cast over me. Hassan's eye, Peshwa policeman, but only a few weeks' army service. He spoke good Urdu, which suggested he was smarter than most, and my innards quaked. Well now, Makaram, says he pleasantly, I don't believe you, nor does your own colonel. You're an old soldier. You ride like one, and you stand like one. And what's more, you've held command. Don't interrupt. No one's trying to trap you, or find out how many throats you've cut in the Khyber country in your time. That's nothing to me. You're here now as an ordinary sowar. 
but a sowar who gathers up papers as though he's as used to handling them as I am. Unusual. In a pathan, even one who's seen service. Don't you agree? In the police, Hussur, says I, woodenly, are many kitabs and papers. To be sure there are, says he, and then added ever so easily in English, What's that on your right hand? I didn't look, but I couldn't help my hand jerking, and he chuckled and leaned back in his chair, pleased with himself. I guessed you understood English when the commander and your colonel were talking in front of you yesterday, says he. You couldn't keep it out of your eyes. Well, never mind. It's all to the good. But see here, Makaram Khan, whatever you've done, whatever you've been— Where's the sense in burying yourself in the ranks of a native cavalry pultan? You've got education and experience. Why not use them? How long will it take you to make subadar or havlidar, even in your present situation? Twenty years? Thirty? With down-country cavalry? I tell you what, you can do better than that. Well, it was a relief to know my disguise was safe enough— but the last thing I wanted was to be singled out in any way. However, I listened respectively, and he went on. I had a pathan orderly, Ayub Jan, first-class man, with me ten years, and now he's gone back home to inherit. I need someone else. Well, you're younger than he was, and a sight smarter, or I'm no judge, and he wasn't a common orderly, never did a menial task or anything of that order, wouldn't have asked him to, for he was Yusufzai, and a gentleman, as I believe you are. Do you see? He looked at me very steady, smiling. So what I want is a man of affairs, who is also a man of his hands, someone I can trust as a soldier, messenger, steward, aide, guide, shield on shoulder. He shrugged. When I saw you yesterday, I thought, that's the kind of man— well, what do you say? I had to think quickly about this. If I could have looked at myself in the mirror, I suppose I was just the sort of ruffian I'd have picked myself in Duff Mason's shoes. Pathans make the best orderly bodyguards, comrades there are, as I discovered with Mohammed Iqbal and Ilderim. And it would be a pleasant change from barracks, but it was risky. It would draw attention to me. On the other hand, my character was established by now, and any lapses into Englishness might be explained from the past which Mason and Carmichael Smith had wished upon me. I hesitated, and he said quietly, If you are thinking that coming out of the ranks may expose you to a greater danger of being recognised by the police, say, or some inconvenient acquaintance from the past, have no fear of that. At need, there'll always be a fast horse and a dustak to see you back to the Black Mountain again. It was ironic. He thought I went in fear of discovery as a deserter or border raider, when my own anxiety was that I'd be unmasked as a British officer. Bit of a lark, really. And on that thought, I said, very good. I'd accept his offer. Thank you, Makram Khan, says he, and nodded to a table that was set behind his chair against the chick. There was a drawn sabre lying on it, and I knew what was expected of me. I went past him and put my hand on the blade. It had been so arranged 
that with my body in between he couldn't see from where he sat whether I was touching the steel or not. The old dodge, thinks I, but I said aloud, On the haft and hilt, I am thy man and soldier. Good, says he, and as I turned he held out his hand. I took it, and just for devilment I said, Have no fear, Husur. You will smell the onion on your fingers. I knew, you see, that in anticipation of the oath he would have rubbed onion on the blade, so that he could tell afterwards if I'd truly touched it while I swore. A pathan who intended to break his oath wouldn't have put his hand on the steel, and consequently wouldn't have got the onion smell on his fingers. By Jove, says he, and quickly sniffed his hand. Then he laughed, and said I was a pathan for wiliness, all right, and we would get along famously. Which I'm bound to say we did. Mind you, our association wasn't a long one, but while it lasted I thoroughly enjoyed myself playing Major Domo in his household, for that's what it amounted to, as I soon discovered. His bungalow was a pretty big establishment, you see, just off the east end of the Mall, near the British infantry lines, with about thirty servants, and since there was no proper memsab, and his Khan Samar was almost senile, there was no order about the place at all. Rather than have me spend my time dogging him about his office, where there wasn't much for me to do except stand looking grim and impressive, Duff Mason decided I should make a beginning by putting his house and its staff into pucker order. As I gathered, Ayub Jan had done in his time. And I set about it. Flashy jack-of-all-trades, you see. In the space of a few months, I'd already been a gentleman of leisure, staff officer, secret political agent, ambassador, and sepoy. So why not a nigger butler for a change? You may think it odd, and looking back, it seems damn queer to me too, but the job was just nuts to me. I was leading such an unreal existence anyway, and had become so devilish bored in the sepoy barracks that I suppose I was ready enough for anything that occupied my time without too much effort. Duff Mason's employ was just the ticket. It gave me the run of a splendid establishment, the best of meat and drink, a snug little bunk of my own, and nothing to do but bully menials, which I did with a hearty relish that terrified the brutes and made the place run like clockwork. All round, I couldn't have picked a softer billet for my enforced sojourn in Mirut, if I'd tried. Between ourselves, I've a notion that had I been born in a lower station in life, I'd have made a damned fine butler for some club or townhouse. Yes, milording the quality, ordering flunkies about, putting upstarts in their place, and pinching the port and cigars with the best of them. I've said there were no proper memsabs in the house, by which I mean that there was no colonel's lady to supervise it, hence the need for me. But, in fact, there were two white women there, both useless in management, Miss Blanche, a thin, twitchy little spinster who was Duff Mason's sister, and Mrs. Leslie, a vague relative who was either a grass widow or a real one, and reminded me rather of a sailor's whore. She was a plumpish, pale-skinned woman with red frizzy hair and a roving eye for the garrison officers, with whom she went riding and flirting when she wasn't lolling on the veranda eating sweets. I didn't do more than run a brisk eye over either of them when Duff Mason brought me to the house, by the way. We nigger underlings know our place, and I'd already spotted a nice, fat, black little kitchen-maid with a saucy lip and a rolling stern. However, if neither of the resident ladies was any help in setting me about my duties, there was another who was, 
Mrs. Captain MacDowell, who lived further down the mile, and who bustled in on my first afternoon on the pretext of taking tea with Miss Blanche, but in fact to see that Duff Mason's new orderly started off on the right foot. She was a raw-boned old Scotch trot, not unlike my mother-in-law, the kind who loves nothing better than to interfere in other folks' affairs and put their lives in order for them. She ran me to earth just as I was stowing my kit. I salaamed respectfully, and she fixed me with a glittering eye and demanded if I spoke English. "'Now then, Macram Khan, this is what you'll do,' says she. "'This house is a positive disgrace. You'll make it what it should be, the best in the garrison after General Hewitt's, mind that. You can begin by thrashing every servant in the place, and if you're wise, you'll do it regularly.' "'My father,' says she, "'believed in flogging servants every second day after breakfast. "'So now, have you the slightest, the slightest notion "'of how such an establishment as this should be run? "'I don't suppose you have.' "'I said submissively that I had been in a sahib's house before. "'I will,' says she, "'attend to me. "'Your first charge is the kitchen. "'Without a well-ordered kitchen there's no living in a place.' Now, I dined here two nights since, and I was disgusted. So I have lists here prepared. She whipped some papers from her bag. You can't read, I suppose. No. Well, I'll tell you what's here, and you'll see to it that the cook, who is none too bad considering, prepares her menus accordingly. I shouldn't need to be doing this, she went on with a withering glance towards the veranda where Miss Blanche and Mrs. Leslie were sitting, reading the Corsair aloud, I recall. But if I don't, who will, I'd like to know? Humph! Poor Colonel Mason. She glared at me. That's none of your concern, you understand? She adjusted her spectacles. Breakfast, aye. Chops, steaks, quail, fried fish, baked, minced chicken, provided the birds no more than a day old. No servants in the breakfast room. It can all be placed on the buffet. Can you make tea? I mean, tea that's fit to drink. Bemused by these assaults, I said I could. Aye, says she, doubtfully. A mistress should always make the tea herself, but here, she sniffed. Well, then, always two teapots with no more than three spoonfuls to each and a pinch of carbonate of soda in the milk. See that the cook makes coffee very strong first thing in the morning and adds boiling water during the course of the day. Boiling, I said, and fresh hot milk or cold whipped cream. Now then, and she consulted another list. Luncheon also on the buffet. Mutton, broth, almond, soup, mulligatawny, white soup, cold, clear soup, milk, pudding, stewed fruit. No heavy cooked dishes. This with a glare over her spectacles. They are unhealthy. Afternoon tea. Brown bread and butter, scones, Devonshire cream and cakes. Have you any apostle spoons? Mem sab, says I, putting my hands together and ducking my head. I am only a poor soldier. I do not know what... I'll have two dozen sent round. Dinner. Saddle of mutton, boiled fowls, roast beef. Ach, says she, I'll tell the cook myself. But you, she wagged a finger like a marlin spike, will mind what I've said, and see that my instructions are followed and that the food is cleanly and promptly served, and see that the salt is changed every day, and that no one in the kitchen wears woollen clothes, and if one of them cuts a finger straight round with them to my bungalow, Every inch of this house will be dusted twice a day before callers come between noon and two and before dinner. Is that clear? Han, Memsab, Han, Memsab, 
says I, nodding vigorously, heaven help me. She regarded me grimly and said she would be in from time to time to see that all was going as it should, because Colonel Mason must be properly served, and if she didn't attend to it and see that I kept the staff hard at their duties, well. This with further sniffy looks towards the veranda, after which she went to bully the cook, leaving me to reflect that there was more in an orderly's duties than met the eye. I tell you this because, although it may seem not to have much to do with my story, it strikes me it has a place. If you are to understand India and the mutiny and the people who were caught up in it and how they fared, then women like Mrs. Captain McDowell matter as much as Outram or Lakshmibai or Old Wheeler or Tanshia Tope. Terrible women in their way, the Memsarps, but it would have been a different country without them, and I'm not sure the Raj would have survived the year 57 if they hadn't been there interfering. At all events, under her occasional guidance and blistering rebukes, I drove Mason's menials until the place was running like a home-bound tea-clipper. You'll think it trivial, perhaps, but I got no end of satisfaction in this supervising. There was nothing else to occupy me, you see, and as Arnold used to say, What thy hand findeth to do, I welted the backsides off the sweepers, terrorised the mateys, had the bearers parading twice a day with their dusters, feather brooms and polished bottles, and stalked grimly about the place, pleased as punch to see the tabletops and silver polished till they gleamed, the floors bone clean, and the chota hazri and dawas aband trays carried in on the dot. Strange, looking back, to remember the pride I felt when Duff Mason gave a dinner for the garrison's best, and I stood by the buffet in my best grey coat and new red sash and puggaree, with my beard oiled, looking dignified and watching like a hawk, as the Khan Samar and his crew scuttled round the candlelit table with the courses. As the ladies withdrew, Mrs. Captain McDowell caught my eye and gave just a little nod, probably as big a compliment in its way as I ever received. So a few more weeks went by, and I was slipping into this nice, easy life, as is my habit whenever things are quiet. I reckoned I'd give it another month or so, and then slide out one fine night for Johansi, where I'd surprise Skeen by turning up a la Pathan, and pitch him the tale about how I'd been pursuing Ignatiev in secret and getting nowhere. I'd see Ilderim, too, and find if the thugs were still out for me. If it seemed safe, I'd shave, become flashy again, and make tracks for Calcutta, protesting that I'd done all that could be done. Might even pay my respects to Lakshmi by on the way. However, in the meantime, I'd carry on as I was, eating Duff Mason's rations, seeing that his bearer laid out his kit, harrying his servants and tupping his kitchen maid. She was a poor substitute for my Rani, and once or twice when it seemed to me that Mrs. Leslie's eye lingered warmly on my upstanding path and figure or my swarthy bearded countenance, I toyed with the idea of having a clutch at her. Better not, though, too many prying eyes in a bungalow household, which is what made life hard for grass widows and unattached white females in Indian garrisons. They couldn't do more than flirt in safety. Every now and then I had to go back to barracks. Carmichael Smith had been willing enough to detach me to Duff Mason, but I still had to muster on important parades when all sepoys on the regimental strength were called in. It was on one of these that I heard the rumour flying that the 19th N.I. had rioted, at Berampore, over the greased cartridge, as sepoy Ram Mangal had predicted. "'They have been disbanded by special court,' says he to me out of the corner of his mouth, as we clattered back to the armoury to hand in our rifles. He was full of excitement. "'The sahibs have sent the Jawans home, because the Sikar fears to keep such spirited fellows under arms. So much for the courage of your British colonels. They begin to fear.' 
Aye, presently they will have real cause to be fearful. It will need to be better cause than a pack of whining monkeys like the 19th, says Pierre Alley. Who minds if a few Hindus get cow grease on their fingers? Have you seen this, then? Mangle whipped a paper from under his jacket and thrust it at him. Here are your own people, you Mussulmen, who so faithfully lick the sahib's backsides. Even they are beginning to find their manhood. Read here of the great jihad that your mullahs are preaching against the infidels, not just in India either, but Arabia and Turkestan. Read it and learn that an Afghan army is preparing to seize India with rusky guns and artillerymen. What does it say? Thousands of Ghazis, strong as elephants. He laughed jeeringly. They may come to help, but who knows, perhaps they will be behind the fair. The goddess Kali may have destroyed the British already, as the wise men foretold. It was just another scurrilous pamphlet, no doubt, but the sight of that grinning black ape gloating over his sedition riled me. I snatched the paper and rubbed it deliberately on the seat of my trousers. Pierre Alley and some of the sepoys grinned, but the rest looked pretty glum, and old Sardul shook his head. If the nineteenth have been false to their salt, it is an ill thing, says he. And Mangal broke in excitedly to say, hadn't the sahibs broken faith first by trying to defile the sepoys' caste? First, Barampur, then where? cries he. Which Paltan will be next? It is coming, brothers, it is coming. And he nodded smugly and went off chattering with his cronies. I didn't value this at the time, but it crossed my mind again a couple of nights later when Duff Mason had Archdale Wilson, the binky nabob, and Hewitt and Carmichael Smith and a few others on his veranda, and I heard Jack Waterfield, a senior man in the 3rd Native Cavalry, talking about Berampore and wondering if it was wise to press ahead with the issue of the new cartridge. Of course it is, snaps Carmichael Smith, especially now when it's been refused at Berampore. Give way on this, and where will it end? It's a piece of damn nonsense. Some crawling little agitator fills the sepoys' heads with rubbish about beef grease and pig fat when it's been made perfectly plain by the authorities that the new cartridge contains nothing that could possibly offend Muslim or Hindu. But it serves and is an excuse for the troublemakers, and there are always some. Fortunately, not in our regiment, says another, Plowden, who commanded my own company, by God, thinks I, that's all you know. And then Carmichael Smith was growling on that he'd like to see one of his sepoys refuse the issue. By God, he would. No chance of that, sir, says another major of the third, Richardson. Our fellows are two good soldiers, and no fools. Can't think what happened with the 19th. Too many senior officers left regimental service for the staff, I shouldn't wonder. New men haven't got the proper grip. But suppose our chaps did refuse says one young fellow in the circle. Mind it? That is damned croaking, says Carmichael Smith angrily. You don't know sepoys, Goff, and that's plain. I do. I won't countenance the suggestion that my soldiers would have their heads turned by this, this seditious boss. What the devil? They know their duty. But if they get the notion that any of us have doubts or might show weakness, well, that's the worst thing imaginable. I'll be obliged if you'll keep your half-baked observations to yourself. That shut up Goff sharp enough, 
and Duff Mason tried to get the pepper out of the air by saying he was sure Carmichael Smith was right, and if Goff had misgivings, why not settle them then and there? Your colonel won't mind, I'm sure, if I put it to one of his own sawars. Don't fret, Smith, he's a safe man. And he beckoned me from where I stood in the shadows by the serving table from which the bearers kept the glasses topped up. Now, Macram Khan, says he, you know about this cartridge nonsense. Well, you're a Muslim. Will you take it? I stood respectfully by his chair, glancing round the circle of faces. Carmichael, Smith, red and glistening, Waterfield, thin and shrewd, young Goff, flustered, old Hewitt, grinning and belching quietly. It will drive a ball three hundred yards and straight, Huzur, says I. I shall take it. They roared, of course, and Hewitt said there was a real path and answer. What? And your comrades? asked Archdale Wilson. If they are told, truly, by the Colonel Sahib, that the cartridge is clean, why should they refuse? says I, and they murmured agreement. Well, thinks I, that's a plain enough hint, and Carmichael Smith can put Master Mangle's croaking into the shade. He might have done, too, but the very next day the barracks was agog with a new rumour, and we heard, for the first time, a name that was to sweep across India and the world. Pandy, says I to Pierre Alley, who may he be? A sepoy of the 34th, a barrackpaw, says he. He shot at his Captain Sahib on the parade ground. They say he was drunk with Shara and Vang, and called on the sepoys to rise against their officers. What do I know? Perhaps it is true, perhaps it is rumour. Rambangal is busy enough convincing those silly Hindu sheep that it really happened. So he was, with an admiring crowd round him in the middle of the barrack room, applauding as he harangued them. It is a lie that the sepoy Pandy was drunk, cries he, a lie put about by sahibs to dishonour a hero who will defend his caste to the death. He would not take the cartridge, and when they would have arrested him, he called to his brothers to beware, because the British are bringing fresh battalions of English soldiers to steal away our religion and make slaves of us. And the Captain Sahib at Barakpur shot Pandy with his own hands, wounding him, and they keep him alive for torture even now. He was working himself into a terrible froth over this. What surprised me was that no one, not even the Muslims, contradicted him. And Naik Kudrat Ali, who was a good soldier, was standing by chewing his lip but doing nothing. Eventually, when Mangal had raved himself hoarse, I thought I'd take a hand, so I asked him why he didn't go to the colonel himself and find out the truth, whatever it was, and ask for reassurance about the cartridge. "'Hear him?' cries he scornfully. Ask a sahib for the truth? Ha! Only the Gora Colonel's lapdog would suggest it. Maybe I will speak to Kamik al-Ismit, though, in my own time. He looked round at his cronies with a significant ugly grin. Yes, maybe I will. We shall see. Well, one swallow don't make a summer, or one ill-natured agitator a revolt. No doubt what I'm telling you now about barrack-room discontent among the sepoys looks strong evidence of trouble brewing, but it didn't seem so bad then. Of course there was discontent, and Ram Mangal played on it, and every rumour, for all he was worth. But you could go into any barracks in the world, you know, at any time, and find almost the same thing happening. No one did anything, just sullen talk. The parades went on, and the sepoys did their duty, and the British officers seemed content enough, anyway. 
I was only occasionally in the barracks myself, so I didn't hear much of the grumbling. When the word came through that Sepoy Pandy had been hanged at Barrackpore for mutiny, I thought there might be some kind of stir among our men. But they never let cheap. In the meantime, I had other things to claim my attention. Mrs. Leslie of the red hair and lazy disposition had begun to take a closer interest in me. It started with little errands and tasks that put me in her company. Then came her request to Duff Mason that I should ride escort on her and Miss Blanche when they drove out visiting. It looks so much better to have Macram Khan attending us than an ordinary size. And finally I found myself accompanying her when she went riding alone. The excuse was that it was convenient to her to have an attendant who spoke English and could answer her questions about India, in which she professed a great interest. I know what interests you, my girl, thinks I, but you'll have to make the first move. I didn't mind. She was a well-fleshed piece in her way. It was amusing, too, to see her plucking up her courage. I was a black servant to her, you see, and she was torn between a natural revulsion and a desire to have the big hairy pattern set about her. On our ride she would flirt, a very little in a hoity-toity way, and then think better of it. I maintained my correct and dignified noble animal pose, with just an occasional ardent smile and a slight squeeze when I helped her dismount, I knew she was getting ready for the plunge when she said one day, "'You Pathans are not truly Indian, are you? I mean, in some ways you look, well, almost white.' "'We are not Indian at all, Memsab,' says I. "'We are descended from the people of Ibrahim, Ishak, and Yakub, who were led from the Kedive's country by one Moses. You mean you're Jewish? says she. Oh, she rode in silence for a while. I see. How strange. She thought some more. I, I have Jewish acquaintances in England, most respectable people, and quite white, of course. Well, the Pathans believe it, and it made her happy, so I hurried the matter along by suggesting next day that I show her the ruins at Aligaut, about six miles from the city. It's a deserted temple, very overgrown, but what I hadn't told her was that the inside walls were covered with most artistically carved friezes, depicting all the Hindu methods of fornicating. You know the kind of thing. Effeminate-looking lads performing incredible couplings with fat-titted females. She took one look and gasped. I stood behind with the horses and waited. I saw her eyes travel round from one impossible carving to the next, while she gulped and went crimson and pale by turns, not knowing whether to scream or giggle. So I stepped up behind her and said quietly that the forty-fifth position was much admired by the discriminating. She was shivering with her back to me, and then she turned, and I saw that her eyes were wild and her lips trembling. So I gave my swarthy ravisher's growl, swept her up in my arms, and then down onto the mossy floor. She gave a little frightened moan, opened her eyes wide, and whispered, "'You're sure you're Jewish, not—not not Indian?' "'Un, Memsab,' says I, thrusting away respectfully, and she gave a contented little squeal and grappled me like a wrestler. We rode to Allegout quite frequently after that, studying Indian social customs, and if the forty-fifth position eluded us, it wasn't for want of trying.' She had a passion for knowledge, did Mrs. Leslie, and I 
can think back affectionately to that cool, dim, musty interior, the plump white body among the ferns, and the thoughtful way she would gnaw her lower lip while she surveyed the friezes before pointing to the lesson for today. Pity for some chap she never remarried, aye, and more of a pity for her she never got the chance, for by now April had turned into May. The temperature was sweltering, and there was a hot wind blowing across the Mirut parade ground and barracks that had nothing to do with the weather. You could feel the tension in the air like an electric cloud. The sepoys of the 3rd N.C. went about their drill like sullen automatons. The native officers stopped looking their men in the eye. The British officers were quiet and wary or explosively short-tempered, and there were more men on report than anyone could remember. There were ugly rumours and portents. The 34th N.I., the executed sepoy Pandy's regiment, had been disbanded at Barakpore. A mysterious fakir on an elephant had appeared in Mirut Bazaar, predicting that the wrath of Kali was about to fall on the British. Chapatis were said to be passing in some barrack rooms. The Plassey legend was circulated again. Out of all the grievances and mistrust that folk like Ram Mangel had been voicing, a great discontented unease grew in those few weeks, and one thing suddenly became known throughout the Murut garrison. Without a word said, the certainty was there. When the new greased cartridge was issued, the third native cavalry would refuse it. Now, you may say, knowing what followed, something should have been done. I, with respect, will ask, what? The thing was... While everyone knew that feeling was rising by the hour, no one could foresee for a moment what was about to happen. It was unimaginable. The British officers couldn't conceive that their beloved sepoys would be forced to their salt. Damn it, neither could the sepoys. If there's one thing I will maintain, it is that not a soul, not even creatures like Ram Mangal, thought that the bitterness could explode in violence. Even if the cartridge was refused, well, the worst that could follow was disbandment and even that was hard to contemplate. I didn't dream of what lay ahead, not even with all my forewarning over months, and I was there, and no one can take fright faster than I. So when I heard that Carmichael Smith had ordered a firing parade at which the skirmishers, of whom I was one, would demonstrate the new cartridge, I simply thought, well, this will settle it. Either they'll accept the new loads, and it'll all blow over, or they won't, and Calcutta will have to think again. Waterfield tried to smooth things beforehand, singling out the older skirmishers and reassuring them that the loads were not offensively greased, but they wouldn't have it. They even pleaded with him not to ask them to take the cartridge. I think he tried to reason with Carmichael Smith, but the word came out that the firing parade would take place as ordered. After Waterfield's failure, this was really throwing down the gauntlet, if you like. I'd not have done it if I'd been Carmichael Smith. For one thing, I've learned as an officer is never to give an order unless there's a good chance of its being obeyed. And if you'd fallen in with the skirmishers that fine morning, having seen the sullen faces they put on their belts and bandoliers and drew their enfields from the armoury, you'd not have wagered a quid to a hundred on their taking the cartridge. But Carmichael Smith, the ass, was determined. So there we stood, in extended line between the other squadrons of the regiment facing inwards, the native officers at ease before their respective troops, and the Rizalda calling us to attention as Carmichael Smith, looking thunderous, rode up and saluted. We waited, with our Enfields at our sides, while he rode along the extended rank, looking at us. There wasn't a sound. We stood with the baking sun at our backs, 
Every now and then a little puff of warm wind would drive a tiny dust devil across the ground. Plowden's horse kept shying as he cursed and tried to steady it. I watched the shadows of the rank swaying with the effort of standing rigid, and the sweat rivers were tickling my chest. Nike Kudrat Alley on my right was straight as a lance. On my other side, old Sardor's breathing was hoarse enough to be audible. Carmichael Smith completed his slow inspection and reined up almost in front of me. His red face under the service cap was as heavy as a statue's. Then he snapped an order, and the Havildar Major stepped forward, saluted, and marched to Carmichael Smith's side, where he turned to face us. Jack Waterfield, sitting a little in rear of the Colonel, called out the orders from the platoon exercise manual. "'Prepare to load,' says he, adding quietly. "'Rifle at full extent of left arm.' The Havildar Major shoved out his rifle. "'Load!' cries Jack, adding again. "'Cartridge is brought to the left hand, right elbow, raised, tear off top of cartridge with fingers by dropping elbow.' This was the moment. You could feel the ranks sway forward ever so little, as the Havildar Major, his bearded face intent, held up the little shiny brown cylinder, tore it across, and poured the powder into his barrel. A hundred and eighty eyes watched him do it. There was just the suspicion of a sigh from the rank as his ramrod drove the charge home. Then he came to attention again. Waterfield gave him the present and fire, and the single demonstration shot cracked across the great parade-ground. On either side, the rest of the regiment waited, watching us. "'No!' says Carmichael Smith, and although he didn't raise his voice, it carried easily across the parade. "'Now you have seen the loading drill. You have seen the Havilar Major, a soldier of high caste, take the cartridge. He knows the grease with which it is waxed is pure. I assure you again—' Nothing that could offend Hindu or Muslim is being offered to you. I would not permit it. Carry on, Havilah Major. What happened was that the Havilah Major came along the rank, with two nikes carrying big bags of cartridges, of which he offered three to each skirmisher. I was looking straight to my front, sweating and wishing the back of my leg would stop itching. I couldn't see what was happening along the rank, but I heard a repeated murmur as the Havildar Major progressed. Nahin Havildar Major Sahib! Nahin Havildar Major Sahib! Carmichael Smith's head was turned to watch. I could see his hand clenched white on his rein. The Havildar Major stopped opposite Kudrat Ali and held out three cartridges. I could feel Kudrat stiffen. He was a big, rangy Punjabi Muslim, a veteran of Aliwal, and the frontier, proud as Lucifer of his stripes and himself, the kind of devoted ass who thinks his colonel is his father and even breaks wind by numbers. I stole a glance at him. His mouth was trembling under the heavy moustache as he muttered, Nahin, Avilda Major Sahib. Suddenly Carmichael Smith broke silence. His temper must have boiled higher with each refusal. What the devil do you mean? His voice cracked hoarsely. Don't you recognize an order? Do you know what insubordination means? Kudrat started violently, but recovered. He swallowed with a gulp. You could have heard in Pune, and then says, Colonel Sahib, I cannot have a bad name. Bad name, my God, roars Smith. Do you know a worse name than mutineer? He sat there, glowering, and Kudrat trembled. Then the Havilah Major's hand was thrust out to me. 
his bloodshot brown eyes glaring into mine. I looked at the three little brown cylinders, aware that Waterfield was watching me intently, and old Sardul was breathing like a walrus on my other side. I took the cartridges. There was a sudden exclamation further along the rank, but I stuffed two of them into my belt and held up the third. As I glanced at it, I realised with a start that it wasn't greased. It was waxed. I tore it across with a shaky hand, poured the powder into the barrel, stuffed the cartridge after it, rammed it down. Then I returned to attention, waiting. Old Sardal was crying. As the cartridges were held out to him, he put up a shaking hand, but did not take them. He made a little feeble gesture, and then sings out, Colonel Sahib, it is not just. Never, never have I disobeyed. Never have I been false to my salt. Sahib, do not ask this of me. Ask anything, my life even, but not my honour. He dropped his Enfield, wringing his hands. Sahib, I... Fool! shouts Carmichael Smith. Do you suppose I would ask you to hurt your honour? When did any man know me do such a thing? The cartridges are clean, I tell you. Look at the Havildar Major. Look at Makram Khan. Are they men of no honour? No, and they're not mutinous dogs either. It wasn't the most tactful thing to say to that particular sepoy. I thought Sardal would go into a frenzy, the way he wept, but he wouldn't touch the cartridges. So it went along the line. When the end had been reached, only four other men out of ninety had accepted the loads. Four, and that stalwart pillar of loyalty, flashy Macram Khan, he knew his duty, and which side his bread was buttered. So there it was. Carmichael Smith could hardly talk for sheer fury, but he cussed us something primitive, promising dire retribution, and then dismissed the parade. They went in silence, some stony-faced, others troubled, a number, like old Sardal, weeping openly, but mostly just sullen. For those of us who had taken the cartridges, by the way, there were no reproaches from the others. Proper lot of long-suffering, holy little Tom Browns they were. That, of course, was something that Carmichael Smith didn't understand. He thought the refusal of the cartridges was pure pig-headedness by the sepoys, egged on by a few malcontents. So it was, but... There was a genuine religious feeling behind it, and a distrust of the Sirkar. If he'd had his wits about him, he'd have seen that the thing to do now was to drop the cartridge for the moment, and badger Calcutta to issue a new one that the sepoys could grease themselves, as was done, I believe, in some garrisons. He might even have made an example of one or two of the older disobedience, but no, that wasn't enough for him. He'd been defied by his own men, and by God he wasn't having that, so the whole eighty-five were court-martialed, and the court, composed entirely of native officers, gave them all ten years' hard labour. I can't say I had much sympathy with him. Anyone who's fool enough to invite ten years on the rock pile for his superstitions deserves all he gets, in my view, but I'm bound to say that once the sentence had been passed, it couldn't have been worse carried out. Instead of shipping the eighty-five quietly off to jail, the buffoon Hewitt decided to let the world, and other sepoys especially, see what happened to mutineers, and so a great punishment parade was ordered for the following Saturday. As it happened, I quite welcomed this myself, because I had to attend, and so was spared an excursion to Allegout with Mrs. Leslie. That woman's appetite for experiment was increasing, and I'd had a wearing, if pleasurable, week of it. But, from the official point of view, that parade was a stupid, dangerous farce, and came near to costing us all India. It was a red morning, oppressive and grim, with a heavy overcast sky. 
and a hot wind driving the dust in stinging volleys across the Maidan. The air was suffocatingly close, like the moment before thunder. The whole Mirut garrison was there, the dragoon guards with their sabres out, the Bengal artillery with their British gunners and native assistants in leather breeches standing by their guns, line on line of red-coated native infantry completing the hollow square, and in the middle Hewitt and his staff with Carmichael Smith and the regimental officers all mounted. And then the eighty-five were led out in double file, all in full uniform, but for one thing, they were in their bare feet. I don't know when I've seen a bleaker sight than those two grey ranks standing there hang-dog while someone bawled out the court's findings and sentence, and then a drum began to roll very slowly, and the ceremony began. Now, I've been on more punishment parades than I care to remember, and quite enjoyed them, by and large. There's a fascination about a hanging or a good flogging, and the first time I saw a man shot from a gun at Kabul, that was, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I've noticed, too, that the most pious and humanitarian folk always make sure they get a good view, and while they look grim or pitying or shocked, they take care to miss none of the best bits. Really, what happened at Mirut was tame enough, and yet it was different from any other drumming out or execution, I remember. Usually there's excitement or fear or even exultation, but here there was just a doomed depression that you could feel hanging over the whole vast parade. While the drum beat slowly, the Haldar and two Nikes went along the ranks of the prisoners, tearing the buttons off the uniform coats. They had been half cut off beforehand to make the tearing easy, and soon in front of the long grey line there were little scattered piles of buttons gleaming dully in the sultry light. The grey coats hung loose, like sacks, each with a dull black face above it. Then the fettering began. Groups of armourers, each under a British sergeant, went from man to man, fastening the heavy lengths of irons between their ankles. The fast clanging of the hammers and the drumbeat made the most uncanny noise. Clink, clank, boom! Clink, clank, clink, boom! And a thin wailing sound from beyond the ranks of the native infantry. Keep those damned people quiet! shouts someone, and there was barking of orders and the wailing died away into a few thin cries. But then it was taken up by the prisoners themselves. Some of them stood, others squatted in their chains, crying. I saw old Sardul, kneeling, smearing dust on his head and hitting his fist on the ground. Kudrat Ali stood stiff at attention, looking straight ahead. My half-section, Pierre Ali, who to my astonishment had refused the cartridge in the end, was jabbering angrily to the man next to him. Ram Mangal was actually shaking his fist and yelling something. A great babble of noise swelled up from the line, with the Havildar Major scampering along the front, yelling, Chubario! Silence! While the hammers clanged and the drum rolled. You never heard such an infernal din. Old Sardal seemed to be appealing to Carmichael Smith, stretching out his hands. Ram Mangal was bawling the odds louder than ever. Close beside where I was, an English sergeant of the Bombay artillery knocked out his pipe on the gunwheel, spat, and says, "'There's one black bastard I'd have spread over the muzzle of this gun by Jesus. "'Scatter his guts far enough, eh, Paddy?' "'Aye,' says his mate, and paced about, scratching his head. "'Tis a bad business, though, Mike. Right enough. Damn niggers. Bad business.' "'Ought to be a bleeding sight worse,' says Mike. "'Pampered sods. Listen them squeal. "'If they had a flogging in the nigger army, they'd have something to whine about.' 
touch of the cat and have them biting each other's asses, never mind cartridges. But all they get's the chokey and put in irons. That's what riles me. Englishmen get flogged fast enough, and these black pigs can stand by grinning at it. Somebody pulls their buttons off and they yelp like bleeding kids. Oi, says the other, disgusting and pitiful, pitiful. I suppose it was, if you're the pitying kind. Those pathetic-looking creatures in their shapeless coats with the irons on their feet, some yelling, some pleading, some indifferent, some silently weeping, but mostly just sunk in shame. And out in front, Hewitt and Carmichael Smith and the rest sat their horses and watched unblinking. I'm not soft, but I had an uneasy feeling just then. You're making a mistake, Hewitt, thinks I. You're doing more harm than good. He didn't seem to know it, but he was trampling on their pride. I may not have much myself, but I recognise it in others, and it's a chancy thing to tamper with. And yet he could have seen the danger in the sullen stare of the watching native infantry. They were feeling the shame, too, as those fetters went on, and the prisoners wept and clamoured, and old Sardor grovelled in the dust for one of his fallen buttons and clenched it against his cheek with the tears streaming down his face. He was one, I confess, that I felt a mite sorry for, when the fettering was done, and the band had struck up, the rogues march, and they shuffled off, dragging their irons as they were herded away to the new jail beyond the Grand Trunk Road. He kept turning and crying out to Carmichael Smith. It reminded me somehow of how my old governor had wept and pleaded when I saw him off for the last time to the Blue Devil factory in the country, where he died, bawling with delirium tremens. Damn depressing! And as I walked my pony off with the four other loyal skirmishers and glanced at their smug black faces, I thought, well, you bloody toadies. After all, they were Hindus. I wasn't. However, I soon worked off my glums back at Duff Mason's bungalow by lashing the backside off one of the bearers who'd lost his oil funnel. And then I had to be on hand for the dinner that was being given for Carmichael Smith that night, doubtless to celebrate the decimation of his regiment. And Mrs. Leslie, dressed up to the nines for the occasion, was murmuring with a meaning look that she intended to have a long ride in the country next day, so I must see picnic prepared. And there were the mateys to chase, and the kitchen staff to swear at, and little Miss Langley, the riding master's daughter, to chivy respectfully away. She was a pretty wee thing, seven years old, and a favourite of Miss Blanche's, but she was the damnedest nuisance when she came round the back veranda in the evenings to play, keeping the servants from their work and being given sugar cakes. With all this, I'd soon forgotten about the punishment parade until after dinner, when Duff Mason and Carmichael Smith and Archdale Wilson had taken their pegs and cheroots onto the veranda, and I heard Smith's voice suddenly raised unusually loud. I stopped a matey who was taking out a tray to them and took it myself, so I was just in time to hear Smith saying, "'Of all the damned rubbish I ever heard!' Who is this Haveldar, then? Imtias Ahmed, and he's a good man, sir. It was young Goff, mighty red in the face, and carrying his crop, for all he was in dinner kit. Damned good croaker, you mean, snapped Smith angrily, and you stand there and tell me that he has given you this cock and bull about the cavalry plotting to march on the jail and set the prisoners free? Butter stuff! And you're a fool for listening to... I beg your pardon, sir, says Goff, but I've been to the jail and it looks ugly, and I've been to barracks. The men are in a bad way, and... Now, 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 says Wilson. Easy there, young fellow. You don't know them, perhaps, as well as we do. Of course they're in a bad way. What? They've seen their 
comrades marched off in irons, and they're upset. They're like that. They'll cry their eyes out, half of them. All right, Macron Khan, says he, spotting me at the buffet. You can go. So that was all I heard. For what it was worth, and since nothing happened that night, it didn't seem to be worth too much. Next morning, Mrs. Leslie wanted to make an early start, so I fortified myself against what was sure to be a taxing day, with half a dozen raw eggs beaten up in a pint of stout, and we rode out again to Alligout. She was in the cheeriest spirits, cursor, climbing all over me as soon as we reached the temple, and by the end of the afternoon I was beginning to wonder how much more Hindu culture I could endure, delightful though it was. I was a sore and weary native orderly by the time we set off back, and dozing pleasantly in my saddle as we passed through the little village which lies about a mile east of the British town. Indeed, I could just hear the distant chiming of the church bell for evening service, when Mrs. Leslie gave an exclamation and reined in her pony. "'What's that?' says she, and I came up beside her. She hushed me and sat listening. Sure enough, there was another sound, a distant, indistinct murmur, like the sea on a far shore. I couldn't place it. So we rode quickly forward to where the trees ended, and looked across the plain. Straight ahead in the distance were the bungalows at the end of the mall, all serene. Far to the left there was the outline of the jail, and beyond it the huge mass of Mirud city. Nothing out of the way there. And then beyond the jail I saw it as I peered at the red horizon, where the native cavalry and infantry lines lay. Dark clouds of smoke were rising against the orange of the sky, and flickers of flame showed in the dusk. Buildings were burning, and the distant murmur was resolving itself into a thousand voices shouting louder and ever louder. I sat staring with a horrid suspicion growing in my mind, half aware that Mrs. Leslie was tugging at my sleeve, demanding to know what was happening. I couldn't tell her because I didn't know. Nobody knew in that first moment on a peaceful, warm May evening, when the great Indian mutiny began. If I'd had my wits about me, or more than an inkling of what was happening, I'd have turned our ponies north and ridden for the safety of the British infantry lines a mile away. But my first thought was, Goff was right, some crazy bastards are rioting and trying to break the prisoners loose, and of course they'll fail, because Hewitt'll have British troops marching down to the scene at once. Maybe they're there already, cutting up the niggers. I was right. And wrong, you see, but above all I was curious, once my first qualms had settled. So it wasn't in any spirit of chivalry that I sang out to Mrs. Leslie, Ride to the bungalow directly, Memsub. Hold tight now, and cut her mare hard across the rump. She squealed as it leapt forward and called to me, but I was already wheeling away down towards the distant jail. I wanted to see the fun, whatever it was, and I had a good horse under me to cut out at the first sign of danger. Her plaintive commands echoed after me, but I was putting my pony to a bank and clattering off towards the outlying buildings of the native city bazaar, skirting south so that I'd pass the jail at a distance and see what was happening. At first there didn't seem to be much— this side of the bazaar was strangely empty, but in the gathering dark I could hear rather than see confused activity going on between the jail and the grand trunk. Shouting and the rush of hurrying feet and sounds of smashing timber. I wheeled into the bazaar, following the confusion of noise ahead. The whole of the sky to my front beyond the bazaar was glowing orange now. Whether with fire or sundown you couldn't tell, but the smoke was hanging in a great pall beyond the city. It's a hell of a fine fire, thinks I, and forged on into the bazaar. 
between booths where dim figures seemed to be trying to get their goods away or darting about in the shadows, chattering and wailing. I bawled to a fat vendor who was staring down the street, asking what was up, but he just waddled swiftly into his shop, slamming his shutters. Try to get sense out of an excited Indian, if you like. Then I reined up with a chico scampering almost under my hooves, and the mother after it, crouching and shrieking, and before I knew it there was a swarm of folk in the street, all wailing and running in panic, stumbling into my pony while I cursed and lashed out with my quirt. Behind them the sounds of riot were suddenly closer, hoarse yelling and chanting and the sudden crack of a shot and then another. Time to withdraw to a safer distance, thinks I, and wheeled my pony through the press into a side alley. Someone went down beneath my hooves. They scattered like sheep, and then down the alley ahead of me, running pell-mell for his life, was a man in the unmistakable stable kit of the dragoon guards, bare-headed and wild-eyed, and behind him, like hounds in full cry, a screaming mob of niggers. He saw me ahead and yelled with despair. Of course, what he saw was a great, hairy, native villain blocking his way. He darted for a doorway and stumbled, and in an instant they were on him. A clawing animal mob tearing at him while he lashed out, yelling obscenities. For an instant he broke free, blood pouring from a wound in his neck, and actually scrambled under my pony. The mob was round us in a trice, dragging him out bodily while I struggled to keep my seat. There was no question of helping him, even if I'd been fool enough to try. They bore him up, everyone shrieking like madmen, and smashed him down on the table of a pop-shop, holding his limbs while others broke the pop-bottles and smashed and stabbed at him with the shards. It was a nightmare. I could only clutch my reins and stare at that screaming, thrashing figure half-covered in the pop-foam as those glittering glass knives rose and fell. In seconds he was just a hideous bloody shape, and then someone got a rope round him, and they swung him up to a beam with his life pouring out of him. In panic I drove my heels into the pony, blundered to the corner, and rode for dear life. It was the shocking unexpectedness of it that had unmanned me, to see a white man torn to pieces by natives. Perhaps you can't imagine what that meant in India. It was something you could not believe, even when you saw it. For a few moments I must have ridden blind, for the next thing I knew I was reining up on the edge of the Grand Trunk, where it comes north out of Mirut City, gazing at a huge rabble pouring up towards the British town. To my amazement, half of them were sepoys, some of them just in their jackets, others in full fig down to the crossbelts, brandishing muskets and bayonets and yelling in unison, Matkaro! Matkaro! Sipahijai! and the like, slogans of death and rebellion. There was one rascal on a cart, brandishing ankle irons above his head, and a heaving mass of sepoys and bizarre wallers pushing his vehicle along, yelling like drunkards. Beyond the road the native cavalry barracks were in full flame. Even as I watched, I saw one roof cave in with an explosion of sparks. Behind me there were buildings burning in the bazaar, and even as I turned to look I saw a gang of ruffians hurling an oil lamp into a booth, while others were steadily thrashing with clubs at the fallen body of the owner. Finally they picked him up and tossed him into the blaze, dancing and yelling, as he tried vainly to struggle out. He was a human torch, his mouth opening and closing in unheard screams, and then he fell back in the burning ruin. I don't know how long I sat there, staring at these incredible things, but I know it was dark, with flames leaping up everywhere, and an acrid reek pervading the air, before I came to my senses enough to realise that the sooner I lit out, the better. Of course, I was safe enough, in that I was to all outward appearance a native, and a big, ugly one at that, but it made no sense to linger. Any moment there must be the sound of bugles up the road, heralding a British detachment, and I didn't want to be caught up in the ensuing brawl. 
So I put my pony's nose north and trotted along the edge of the road, with that stream of mad humanity surging in the same direction at my elbow. Even then I hadn't determined what it all meant, but any doubts I might have had were resolved as I came level with the jail, and there was a huge crowd clamouring and applauding round a bonfire and forming up in their prison dotis. But with their ankles freed were some of the prisoners. I recognised Gobinda and one or two others, and a sepoy whom I didn't know was standing on a cart, haranguing the mob, although you could hardly hear him for the din. It is done! Death to the Gorolog! Sahibs are already running away! See the broken chains! On, brothers! Kill! Kill! To the white town! The whole mob screamed as one man, leaping up and down, and then bore the prisoner's shoulder high, streaming out onto the grand trunk towards the distant mall. God! I could see flames up there already, out towards the eastern end. There must be bungalows burning on this side of the mall, beyond the nullah. There was only one way for me to go. Behind was Mirud City and the bazaar, which was being smashed up and looted by the sound of things. To my left lay the burning native barracks. Ahead, between me and the British town, the road was jammed with thousands of crazy fanatics bent on blood and destruction. I waited till the press thinned a little and swung right, heading for the nullah north of the jail. I would cross the east bridge and make a long circle north past the mall to come to the British camp lines. The first part was easy enough. I crossed the nullah and skirted the east end of the British town, riding carefully in the half-dark, for the moon wasn't up yet. It was quiet here, in the groves of trees. The tumult was far off to my left, but now and then I saw little groups of natives, servant women probably, scurrying among the bushes, and one ominous sign that some of the killers had come this way. An old Chao Kidar, with his broken staff beside him, lying with his skull beaten in. Were they butchering anyone, then, even their own folk? Of course, any native suspected of loyalty would be fair game, including the Gora Colonel's lapdog, as Ram Mangal had charmingly called me. I pressed on quickly. Not far behind me I could hear chanting voices and see torchlight among the trees. The sooner I... Help! Help! In God's name! Help us! It came from my right, a little bungalow, behind a white gate, and as I stopped, uncertain, another voice cried, Shut up, Tommy! God knows who it is! See the lights yonder! But Mary's dead! cries the first voice, and it would have made your hair stand up. She's dead, I tell you! They've... They were English, anyway, and without thinking I slipped from the saddle, vaulted the gate, and cried, It's a friend! Who are you? Oh, thank God, cries the first voice. Quickly, they've killed Mary. Mary. I glanced back. The torches were still two hundred yards away among the trees. If I could get the occupants of the bungalow moving quickly, they might get away. I strode up the veranda steps, looked through the space where a chick had been torn down, and saw a wrecked room with an oil lamp burning feebly, and a white man, his left leg soaked in blood, lying against the wall, a sabre in his hand, staring at me with feverish eyes. Are you? he began, and then yelled, Christ, it's a mutineer! Third cavalry! Jim! And I hadn't got my mouth open when out of the shadows someone sprang. I had an instant's vision of a white face, red moustache, staring eyes, and whirling sabre, and then I was locked with him, crashing to the floor, while I yelled, You bloody idiot! I'm English, damn you! But he seemed to have gone mad. Even as I wrestled his sabre from him and sprang away, he yelled to his pal, who feebly shoved his sabre towards him. The next thing he was slashing at me, yelling curses, and I was guarding and trying to shout sense at him. 
I broke ground, fell over something soft, and realised, as I struck the ground, that it was a white woman in evening dress, or rather it was her body, for she was lying in a pool of blood. I flung up my sabre to guard another maniac slash, but too late. I felt a fiery pain across my skull, just above the left ear, and then the fellow on the floor screams, "'Go it, Jim! Finish him! Finish!' The crash of musketry filled the room. The fellow above me twisted grotesquely, dropping his sabre, and tumbled down across my legs. There were black faces grinning at the window above me through the powder smoke, and then they were in the room, yelling with triumph, as they drove their bayonets into the wounded Tommy, hacking at him, smashing the furniture, and finally one of them was helping me up, shouting, "'Just in time, brother! Thank the eleventh N.I.S.O.R. I Three of the pigs! God be praised! Have you been at their goods, then?' I was dizzy with pain. So he dropped me, and while they ransacked the bungalow, growling like beasts, I crawled out onto the veranda and into the bushes. I lay there, staunching the blood that was running down my cheek. It wasn't a bad wound, no worse than the schlager cut beside it, which de Gautet had given me years ago, but I didn't come out, even after they'd gone, taking my pony with them. I was too shaken and scared. That idiot Jim had come within an ace of finishing me. My God, it had been Jim Lewis, of course, the veterinary. I'd bowed him out of Mason's bungalow only a couple of nights before, and now he was dead and his wife Mary, and I was alive, saved by the mutineers who'd murdered them. I lay there still half days, trying to make sense of it. This was mutiny, no doubt of it, and on the grand scale. The third cavalry were out, of course, and I'd seen twentieth N.I. men under arms on the grand trunk. The fellows who'd inadvertently saved me were 11th N.I., so that was the whole Indian garrison of Meerut. But where the devil were the two British regiments? Their lines weren't more than a half-mile from where I was lying, beyond the Mall. but although two or three hours must have passed since the rioting started, there wasn't a sign of any activity by the authorities. I lay listening to the crackle of firing and the distant tumult of voices and wrecking and burning. There were no bugle calls, no sound of volleys, no shouted orders, no heavy gunfire amidst the confusion. Hewitt couldn't just be sitting doing nothing. A terrible thought struck me. They couldn't have been wiped out. Surely. No. You can't beat two thousand disciplined soldiers with a mutinous mob. But what the hell was keeping him quiet, then? In the long run, I decided I'd have to make a break for it, up to the Mall and across towards the British infantry lines. It would take me past Duff Mason's bungalow and the McDowell's, so I could see what was happening there, though no doubt the people would have withdrawn already to the safety of the British camps. Yes, I could see, when I stood up, that some of the bungalows south of the Mall were burning, and there was a hell of a din and shooting coming from the British town further west. I would have to keep well clear of that. I moved cautiously through the trees and found the little drive that led up to the eastern end of the Mall. There was a bungalow burning like blazes a hundred yards ahead, and half a dozen sepoys standing by its fence, cursing and occasionally firing a shot into it. On the other side of the road, a crowd of servants were huddled under a tree, and as I stole quietly towards them in the shadows, I could hear them wailing. That was Surgeon Dawson's bungalow. As I came level with it, I remembered that Dawson had been down with smallpox. He and his wife and children had all been confined to the house. And there was its roof, caving in with a thunderous whoosh of sparks. I felt giddy and ill at the thought, and then hurried on, past that hellish scene. The drive ahead was deserted, as far as I could see in the light of the rising moon. Our bungalow wasn't burning, anyway. 
but just before I reached it my eye was caught by something on the veranda of the Courtney's place across the way. Something was moving. It was a human figure trying to crawl. I hesitated fearfully, and then slipped through the gate and up the path. The figure was wheezing horribly. It suddenly rolled over on its back, and I saw it was a native servant with a bayonet buried in his chest. As I stood appalled, his head rolled, and he saw me. He tried to lift a hand, pointing towards the house, and then he flopped back, groaning. For the life of me, I can't think what made me go inside, and I wish I hadn't. Mrs. Courtney was dead in her chair, shot and bayoneted, with her head buried in the cushions, and when I looked beyond, I vomited on the spot. Her three children were there as well. It was the sight to blast your eyes. The place was like a slaughterhouse, stinking with blood. I turned and ran, retching, and didn't stop until I found myself stumbling onto Duff Mason's veranda. The place was still as death, but I had to go in, for I knew that in Duff Mason's bottom desk drawer there was a colt and a box of ammunition, and I wanted them both as I wanted my next breath. I glanced through the trees towards the Dawson's burning home, but there was no sign of approaching mutineers, so I slipped through the chick door into the hall, and there I fainted dead away, something I haven't done more than twice in my life. The reason, I'll tell you quickly, Mrs. Leslie's head was lying on the hall table, her body stripped naked. That same plump white body that I'd fondled only a few hours earlier was lying a few feet beyond, unspeakably gashed. And in the doorway to the dining-room, Mrs. Captain McDowell was huddled grotesquely against the jam, with a tulwar pinning her to the wall. Clenched in one hand was a small vase, with the flowers it had held scattered on the boards. I realised that she must have snatched it up as a weapon. I don't remember getting Duff Mason's revolver, but I know that later I was standing in the hall, keeping my eyes away from those ghastly things on the floor, loading it with cartridges and weeping and cursing to myself together. Why? Why the hell should they do this? I found myself blubbing it aloud. I've seen death and horror more than most men, but this was worse than anything. It was beyond bestiality. Gabinda, Pier Ali, Old Sardul, Ram Mangel even. They couldn't have done this. They wouldn't have done it to the wives of their bitterest enemies. But it had been done, if not by then, then by men like them. It was mad, senseless, incredible, but it was there, and if I tell you of it now, it is not to horrify, but to let you understand what happened in India in 57, and how it was like nothing that any of us had ever seen before, and none of us, not even I, was ever the same again. You know me, and what a damned coward and scoundrel I am, and not much moved by anything, but I did an odd thing in that house. I couldn't bring myself to touch Mrs. Leslie, or even to look again at that ghastly head with its frizzy red hair and staring eyes, but before I left, I went to Mrs. Captain McDowell and forced the vase from her fingers, and I collected the flowers and put them in it. I was going to set it on the floor beside her, and then I remembered that carping Scotch voice and her contemptuous sniff, so I set it on a little table instead with a napkin under it, just so. I took one more look round at the wreckage of the place that my bearers had made the finest house on the station, the polished wood scarred and broken, the ornaments smashed, the rug matted with blood, the fine chandelier that had been Miss Blanche's pride wantonly shattered in a corner, and I went out of that house with such hate in my heart as I've never felt before or since. There was something I wanted to do, and quickly. I had my chance in the next five minutes as I slipped up to the corner of the drive and looked westward along the mall. The shots were still crackling in the British town. Were there any of our folk left alive down there, I wondered? 
How many bungalows, burned or whole, contained the same horrors that I'd found? I wasn't going to look, and I wasn't going a step farther either. Burning buildings, screaming mobs, death and wreckage, they were all there ahead of me. As I looked north through the trees, I could see torchlight and hear yelling between me and the British lines. Whatever Hewitt and Carmichael Smith and the rest of them were doing, supposing they were still alive, I'd now decided they could do without me. All I wanted was to get out of Mirut and away from that hell as fast as I could and find peace and safety and rest the hellish pain in my wounded head. But first I must do what I lusted above all things to do. And here came the chance, in the shape of a trooper, cantering along the mall, swaying in his saddle, singing drunkenly to himself as he rode. Behind him, against the distant flames, there were a few parties of sepoys straggling on the mall. Eastward the road was quite empty. I stepped into the mall as he rode up, he had a bloody tulwar in one hand, a foolish animal grin on his filthy black face, and the grey coat of the third cavalry on his back. Seeing me in the same rig, he let out a whoop and reined in unsteadily. Rum! Rum! Soa! says I, and forced myself to leer at him. Have you slain as many as I have, eh? And whose blood is that? I pointed at his sword. He! 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 giggles he, lurching in the saddle. Is it blood? It is. Whose? Why, maybe it is Karmic al-Ismit's. He waved the blade, goggling drunkenly. Or Hewitt Sahib's. Nay, nay, nay. Whose then? says I, genially, and laid a hand on his crupper. Ah, now, says he, studying the blade. The riding master Langley Sahib's, eh? That son of a stinking, mangy, pork-eating dog. Nay, nay, nay. He leaned precariously from the saddle. Not Langley. He, 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 he. He will have no grandchildren by his daughter. He, 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 he. And I chased her, growling, off the veranda just the previous night. I had to hold on to his leather to keep my balance, biting back the bile that came into my mouth. I took another glance along the mall. The nearest sepoys were still some distance off. Shabash, says I. That was a brave stroke. And as he leered and chortled, I brought my hand up with the colt in it, aimed it carefully just above his groin, and fired. He reared up, and I clutched the bridle to steady the horse as he went flying from the saddle. A second, and I had it managed, and then I was up in his place, and he was threshing on the ground, screaming in agony. With luck, he would take days to die. I circled him once, snarling down at him, looked back along the mall at those distant black figures like Dante's demons against the burning inferno behind them, and then I was sundering eastward, past the last bungalows and the sights and sounds of horror were fading behind me. God knows how far I rode that night, probably no great distance. I don't think I was quite right in the head partly from the shock of what I'd seen, but much more from the pain of my wound, which began to act up most damnably. It felt as though my left temple was wide open, and white heat was getting into my brain. I could hardly see out of my left eye, and I was haunted by the fear that the cut would send me blind. I had enough sense, though, to know which way I wanted to go, south by east first to skirt Mirut City, and then south by west until I struck the Delhi Road at a safe distance. Delhi meant the safety of a great British garrison, or so I thought, and since there were telegraph lines between it and Mirut, I felt certain that I'd meet help coming along it. 
I wasn't to know that the fool Hewitt hadn't even sent a message to tell of the Mirut outbreak. So that was the course I followed, half blind with pain and constantly losing my bearings, even in the bright moonlight, so that I had to stop and cast about among the groves and hamlets. I forged ahead, and when I came on the Delhi Road at last, what did I see? The two companies of sepoys, tramping along under the moon, in fair order, singing and chanting as they went, with their muskets slung and their havildars calling the step. For an instant I thought they must be reliefs from Delhi, and then it dawned on me that they were marching in the wrong direction. But I was too done up to care. I just sat my pony by the roadside, and when they spotted me, half a dozen of them broke ranks, crying that it was a third cavalryman, and cheering me until they saw the blood on my face and coat. Then they helped me down, and sponged my head, and gave me a drink, and their habildar says, "'You're in no case to catch your pull-town tonight by. They must be halfway to Delhi by now.' At which the rest of them cheered and threw up their hats. "'Are they so?' says I, wondering what the devil he meant. "'Eh? First among the loot, as usual,' cries another. "'They have the advantage of us on their ponies, but we'll be there too.' And they all cheered and laughed again black faces with grinning white teeth looking down at me. Even in my bemused state, this seemed to mean only one thing. "'Has Delhi fallen, then?' I asked, and the Havildar says, "'Not yet, but the three regiments there would surely rise, and with the whole of the Murut garrison marching to help them, the sahibs would be overthrown and slaughtered within the day.' "'We were only the beginning,' says he, sponging away at my wound. "'Soon Delhi, then Agra,' Cornpore, Jaipur, aye, and Calcutta itself. The Madras army is on the move also, and from one end of the Grand Trunk to the other, the Sahibs have been driven into their compounds like mice into their holes. The North is rising. There lie still, man. There will be Sahibs enough for your knife edge when your wound is healed. Best come with us, if you can travel. See, we hold together in good company like soldiers, lest the sahibs send out riders who may snap us up piecemeal. No, no, says I, struggling up. I'll ride on to join my pultan. And despite their protests, I clambered onto my pony again. He thirsts for white blood, shouts one. Shabas, so are, but leave enough for the rest of us to drink. I shouted something incoherent, about wanting to be first in at the death, and as they hallooed encouragement after me, I put my pony to a trot, hanging on grimly, and set off down the road. The other company was yelling and singing as I passed. I remember noting that they were wearing flower garlands round their necks. I carried on until I had distanced them, my head splitting at every step and swelling up like a balloon, and then I remember swinging off into the forest and blundering until I slumped out of the saddle and lay where I fell utterly exhausted. When I came to, if you can call it that, I was extremely ill. I've no clear idea of what followed, except that there were long periods of confused dreaming and moments of vivid clarity, but it's difficult to tell one from the other. I'm sure that at one point I was lying face down in a tank, gulping down brackish water while a little girl with a goat stood and watched me. I can even remember that the goat had a red thread round its horns. On the other hand, I doubt if Dr. Arnold truly did come striding through the trees in an enormous turban, crying, "'Fashman, you have been fornicating with Lakshmibai during first lesson. How often must I tell you there is to be no galloping after morning prayers, sir?' Or that John Charity Spring stood there four square, shouting, 
Ammo, Amas, Amat. Lay into him, Doctor. The horny young bastard is always ammoing. Hey, new guy in Seria Dunsit Marla, by God. And then they changed into a wrinkled old native woman and a scrawny nigger with a white moustache. She was holding a chatty to my mouth. It felt hard and cold, but it became suddenly soft and warm. And the chatty was Mrs. Leslie's lips against mine. And what was running into my mouth wasn't water, but blood. And I screamed silently while all the grinning faces whirled round me, and the whole world was burning while a voice intoned, "'Cartridge is brought to the left hand with the right elbow raised!' And then the old man and woman were there again, peering anxiously down at me while I slipped into black unconsciousness. It was in their hut that I finally came to myself with a half-healed wound on my temple, having lost heaven knows how much blood and weight, verminous and stinking and weak as a kitten, but with my head just clear enough to remember what had happened. Unfortunately, it wasn't to prove quite so clear about thinking ahead. I've since calculated that I lay ill and delirious in their hobble for nearly three weeks, perhaps longer. They didn't seem to know, apart from being the lowest kind of creatures, they were scared stiff of me, and it wasn't until I'd prevailed on them to fetch someone from a nearby village that I could get any notion of what was happening. They finally drummed up an ancient pensioner, who shied off as soon as he saw me. My cavalry coat and gear and my filthy appearance must have marked me as a mutineer par excellence, but before he could get out of the door I had soothed him with my revolver, held in a shaky hand, and in no time he was crouching beside my charpoy, babbling like the man from Reuters, while the rest of his village peeped through cracks in the walls, shivering. Delhi had fallen. He had been there and there had been a terrible slaughter of sahibs and all their folk. The king of Delhi had been proclaimed and now ruled all India. It had been the same everywhere. Mirut, Barali, Aligarh, Etawa, Mainpuri, all of which were within a hundred miles or so. The splendid sepoys had triumphed all along the line, and soon every peasant in the land would receive a rupee and a new chicken. Sensation! The sahibs had tried to fall treacherously on the native soldiers at Agra, Cornpore, and Lucknow, but there was no doubt that these places would succumb also. Two regiments of mutineers had passed through his own village last night with cannon to assist in the overthrow of Agra. Everywhere there were dead sahibs. Obviously, there would soon be none left in the world. Bombay had risen. Afghan fighters were pouring in from the north. A great Muslim jihad had been proclaimed. Fort after fort of the hated Goralog was going down, with fearful slaughter. Doubtless, I had already borne my part. Excellent. I would certainly be rewarded with a Nawab's throne and treasure and flocks of amorous women. What less did I deserve? Third cavalry, was I not? Doughty fighters. He had been in the Bombay sappers himself, thirty-one years' service, and not so much as a Nike stripes to swell his miserable pinchon. Aye! It was time the mean, corrupt, and obscene Sitkar was swept away. Some of his news would be exaggerated bosh, of course, but I couldn't judge how much, and I didn't doubt his information about the local mutinies, which proved accurate enough, by the way. Half the stations between Mirut and Cornpore had been overrun by this time. Perhaps I was too ready to swallow his gammon about Afghan invasion and Bombay being in flames, but remember... I'd seen the stark, staring impossible happen at Mirut. After that, anything was credible. After all, there was only one British soldier in India for every fifteen sepoys, to say nothing of banditti, frontiersmen, dacoits, bazaar ruffians, and the like. Dear God! 
If the thing spread, there wasn't an earthly damned reason why they shouldn't swallow every British garrison, cantonment and residency from Khyber to Coromandel. And it would spread, I didn't doubt it, as I sat numb and shaking on my chard pie. Coward's reasoning, if you like, but I don't know any other kind, thank heaven. At least it prepares you for the worst, and there couldn't be much worse than my present situation. Plum in the eye of the storm, damnation of all the places to hide in, what malign fate had taken me to Mirhut, and how to get away. My native disguise was sound enough, but I couldn't skulk round India forever as a footloose nigger. I'd have to find a British garrison, a large, safe one. Cornpore? Not by a mile. The whole Ganges Valley seemed to be ablaze. North wasn't any good. Delhi was gone, and Agra on the brink. South? Gwalior? Jahanzi? Indore? I found myself chattering the names aloud and repeating one over and over. Jahanzi! Jahanzi! Now, you must remember, I was in my normal state of great pusillanimity, and half balmy to boot as a result of shock and the clout I'd taken. Otherwise, I'd never have dreamed of Jahanzi two hundred and fifty miles away. But Ilderim was at Jahanzi, and if there was one thing certain in this dreadful world, it was that he'd keep his tryst, and would either wait for me at Bull Temple, as he'd promised, or leave word. And Jahanzi must be safe, damn it. I'd spent weeks with its ruler in civilised discussion and hectic banging. She was a lovely, wonderful girl, and would have her state well in hand, surely. Yes, Jahanzi. It was madness, and I know it now, but in my weak, feverish state it seemed the only course at the time. So south I went, talking to myself most of the time and shying away from everyone and everything except the meanest villages, where I put in for provisions. I didn't stand on ceremony, but just lurched in snarling and brandishing my colt, kicking the cowed inhabitants aside and lifting whatever I fancied. I've never been more grateful for my English public school upbringing than I was then. Whether I was unlucky or not, I don't know, but as I worked my way south past Kurjar and Hathras and Firozabad, over the river and down past Gohad to the Jahanzi border, everything I saw confirmed my worst fears. I must have skulked in the brush a dozen times to avoid bands of sepoys, one of them a full regiment blow me, with colours and band tootling away, but plainly mutineers from the din they made and the slovenly way they marched. I know now that there were British-held towns and stations along the way, and even bands of our cavalry scouring the country, but I never ran across them. What I did see was a sickening trail of death, burned-out bungalows, looted villages, bodies all swollen up and half-eaten by vultures and jackals. I remember one little garden beside a pretty house, and three skeletons among the flowers, picked clean by ants, I dare say. Two were full-grown, and one was a baby. Now and then I would see smoke on the horizon, or over the trees, and crowds of villagers fleeing with their miserable belongings. It was like the end of the world to me, then, and if you'd known India, you'd have thought the same. Imagine it in Kent or Hampshire, for that's how it seemed to us. Fortunately, thanks to my curiously light-headed condition, my recollections of that wandering ride are not too clear. It wasn't until the very morning that I came down out of the low hills to Jahanzi City and saw the distant fort-crowned rock above the town that my mind seemed to give a little snap. I remember sitting my pony with my brain clearing, understanding what I'd done and why I was here, breaking out in a sweat at my own temerity, and then realising that I'd perhaps done the wise thing after all. It all looked peaceful enough, although I was on the wrong side of the city to see the British cantonment. I decided to lie up, during the afternoon, and then slip into Bull Temple, which was not far from the Jochenbach, a garden of little beehive temples not far outside the town. 
If Ilderim's messenger wasn't there by sundown, I'd scout the cantonment, and if all was well, I'd ride in and report myself to Skeen. The sun was just slipping away and the shadows lengthening when I skirted the woods where Lakshmibai's pavilion lay. Who knows, thinks I, perhaps we'll dance another haymarket hornpipe before long, and came down to Bull Temple just after dark. I didn't see a soul as I came, but I was cheered by the sound of a bugle call in the distance, and I was pressing ahead more boldly up towards the temple ruin when someone clicked his tongue in the shadows and I reined up sharp. Who goes there? says I, fingering the colt. And a man lounged out, spreading his hands to show they were empty. He was a pathan, skull-cap and pyjamas and all, and, as he came to my horse's head, I recognised the sowar who had given me his gear and pony when I'd left Jahanzi, Rafik Tamwa. Flashman Huzur, says he, softly, Ildrim said you would come. And without another word, he jerked his thumb towards the temple itself, put his hands to his mouth, and hooted softly like an owl. There was an answering hoot from the ruins, and Tamwa nodded to me to go ahead. Ilderim is yonder, says he, and before I could ask him what the devil it meant, he had dissolved into the shadows, and I was staring uneasily across the tangle of weeds and broken masonry that marked the old temple garden. There was a glare of firelight from the doorway in the half-fallen shell of the dome, and a man was standing waiting. Even at that distance I knew it was Ilderim Khan, and a moment later I was face to bearded, grinning face with him, shaking with very relief as his one sound arm clasped me round the shoulders. The other was bound up in a sling, and he was chuckling in his throat and growling that I must have a pact with Shaitan since I was alive to keep the rendezvous. "'For we have heard of Mirut,' says he, as he drew me into the fire, and a half-dozen sowars crouched round it made space for us. And Delhi, Aligar, and the rest. But what the blazes are you doing here? says I. Since when have irregular cavalry taken to bivouacking in ruins when they have their own quarters? He stared at me, stopping in the act of throwing a billet on the fire, and something in that look turned my blood to ice. They were all staring at me. I glanced from one grim-bearded face to another, and in a voice suddenly hoarse I asked, What does it mean? Your officer, Henry Sahib, has anything? Ilderim threw the billet on the fire and squatted down beside me. Henry Sahib is dead, brother, says he quietly, and Skeen Sahib, and the Collector Sahib, and all their women, and their children also. They are all dead. I can see it now as vividly as I saw it then, the dark, hawk face silhouetted against the temple wall that glowed ruddy in the firelight, and the bright stream of a tear on his cheek. You don't often see a pathan cry, but Ilderim Khan cried as he told me what had happened at Jahanzi. When the news came out of Mirud, that black Hindu bitch who calls herself Maharani summoned Skeen Sahib and says... She needs must enlarge her bodyguard for the safety of her person and the treasure in her palace. These being unquiet times, she spoke very sweetly, and Skeen, being young and foolish, gave her what she wished. Aye, he even said that we of the free cavalry might serve her, and Kala Khan, may he rot in hell, took her salt and her money 
and two others with him. But most of her new guard were the scum of the bazaar, badmashes and cliftywallers and street-corner ten-to-one assassins and the sweepings of the jail. Then, two weeks ago, there was stirring among the sepoys of the twelfth N.I., and japatis and lotus flowers passed, and some among them burned a bungalow by night. But the Colonel Sahib spoke with them, and all seemed well, and a day and a night passed. Then Faiz Ali and the false swine Kala Khan, with a great rabble of sepoys and these new heroes of the Rani's guard, fell on the star fort and made themselves masters of the guns and powder, and marched on the cantonment to put it to the fire. But Skeen Sahib had warning from a true sepoy, and while some dozen sahibs were caught and butchered by these vermin, the rest escaped into the little town fort, and the memsabs and little ones with them, and made it good against the mutineers. And for five days they held it. Do I not know? For I was there with Rafik Tamwa and Shadman Khan and Mohammed Din, whom you see here. And I took this. He touched his wounded arm. The seventh time they tried to storm the wall. They came like locusts, growls one of the sowars round the fire. And like locusts they were driven. Then the food was gone, and the water, and no powder remained for the bonduks, says Ilderim. And Skeen Sahib, have you seen a young man grow old in a week, brother? Said we could hold no longer, for the children were like to die. So he sent three men under a white flag to the Rani, to beg her help, and she, she told them she had no concern for the English swine. I don't believe it, says I. Listen, brother, and believe, for I was one of the three, and Mohammed Din here another, and we went with Mari Sahib to her palace gate. Him only they admitted, and flung us two in a stinking pit, but they told us what passed afterwards. That she had spurned Mari Sahib, and afterwards he was racked to pieces in her dungeon. He turned to stare at me with blazing eyes. I do not know. It is what I was told. Only hear what followed, and then judge thou. He stared into the fire, clenching and unclenching his fist, and then went on. When no word went back to Skeen Sahib, and seeing the townsfolk all comforting the mutineers and jeering at his poor few, he offered to surrender, and Kala Khan agreed, and they opened the fort gates and trusted to the mercy of the mutineers. It was then I saw the tear run down into his beard. He didn't look at me, but just continued gazing at the flames and speaking very softly. They took them all. Men and women and children, to the Jokenbach, and told them they must die. And the women wept, and threw themselves on their knees and begged for their children's lives. Mem Sabs, brother, you understand, such ladies as you know of, groveled at the boots of the filth of the bazaar. I saw it. He suddenly shouted, And the untouchable scum! These high-caste worms who call themselves men 
and will shudder away if a real man's shadow falls across their chattis. These creatures laughed and mocked the memsabs and kicked them aside. I saw it. I and Muhammad Din here, for they brought us out to the Jokanbarg, saying, See thy mighty sahibs, see thy proud memsabs who look on us as dirt, see them crawl to us before they die. There is a furnace thrice heated waiting, says one of the sowars. Remember that, Rizalda sahib. If they burn for ever, it will not be hot enough, says Ilderim. They killed the sahibs first, the collector sahib, Andrew sahib, Gordon, Burgess, Taylor, Turnbull, all of them. They held them in a row and chopped them down with cleavers. Skeen sahib, they slew last of all. He asked to embrace his wife, but they laughed at him and struck him and bade him kneel for the knife. I will die on my feet, says he, with no regret save that I am polluted by the touch of dishonoured lice like you. Strike, coward, see, my hands are tied. And Bakshish Ali, the jail Daruga, cut him down. And through all this they made the women and children watch, crying, See thy husband's blood. See, baby, it is thy father's head. Ask him to kiss thee, baby. And then they killed the memsabs in another row, while the townsfolk watched and cheered and threw marigolds at the executioners. And Skeen memsab said to Faiz Ali, If it please you, you may burn me alive or do what you will if you will spare the children. But they threw dirt in her face and swore the children should die. One of the Sawas says, There will be a red thread round her wrist, as for a Ghazi, and I, says Ilderim, fought like a tiger, and foamed and swore as they held me, and I cried out, Shabash Memsab, and Heep, 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 Horer, as the Sahibs do, to comfort her. And they cut her down. He was crying openly now, his mouth working, and then they took the children, twenty of them, little children that cried out and called for their dead mothers, and they cut them all in pieces with axes and butcher's knives, and there they left them all, in the Jokanbach, without burial. Hearing something, however horrible, can never be as ghastly as seeing it. The mind may take it in, but mercifully the imagination can't. Even while I shuddered and felt sickened, listening, I couldn't conjure up the hideous scene he was describing. All I could think of was McEgan's jolly red face as he told his awful jokes, and little Mrs. Skeen so anxious in case her dress was wrong for the collector's dinner, and Andrews talking about Keats's poetry, and Skeen saying it wasn't a patch on Burns, and that dainty little Wilton girl singing Bobbity Bobbity Bob along with me and laughing till she was breathless. It didn't seem possible. They were all dead, cut down like beasts in a slaughterhouse. Yet what shocked me most, I think, was to see that great Gilzai warrior, whom you could have roasted alive and got nothing but taunts and curses, sobbing like a child. There was nothing to say. After a moment, I asked him how he came to be still alive. 
they put Muhammad and me in the jail, with promises of death by torture. But these others of my troop broke us out at night, and we escaped. Until yesterday we hid in the woods, but then the mutineers departed, God knows whither, and we came here. Shadman and two others have gone for horses. We wait for them, and for thee, brother. He wiped his face and forced a grin and gripped me by the shoulder. But the Rani, then? God send that fair foulness a lover made of red-hot metal to bed her through eternity, says he, and spat. She is in her citadel yonder, while Kala Khan marshals her guard on the Maidan. Perchance you heard his bugles, and sends out for levies to raise her an army. For why? Hear this and laugh. Some of the mutineers chose Sadashio Rao of Parola as their leader. He has taken Carrera Fort and calls himself Raja of Jahanzi in defiance of her. He laughed harshly. They say she will crucify him with his own bayonets. God send she does. Then she will march against Kathe Khan and the Duan of Orkja to bring them under her pretty heel. Oh, an enterprising lady, this Rani, who knows how to take advantage of a world upside down. And meanwhile, they say she sends messages to the British protesting her loyalty to the Sikar, rotter for a lying, faithless female pea-dog. Maybe she is, says I. Loyal, I mean. Very well, I don't doubt your story or what you saw and were told, but look here, Ilderim. I know something of her, and while I'll allow she's deep, I'll not credit that she would have children slaughtered. It isn't in her. Do you know for a fact that she joined the mutineers or encouraged them, or could have prevented them? The fact is, I didn't want to believe she was an enemy, you see. Ilderim glanced at me witheringly, and bit his nail in scorn. Bloody lance, says he. Ye may be the bravest rider in the British army, and God knows thou art no fool. But with women thou art a witless infant. Thou hast coupled this Hindu slut, hast thou not? Damn your impudence! I thought as much. Tell me, blood brother, how many women hast thou covered in thy time? And he winked at his mates. What the devil do you mean? I demanded. How many? Come as a favour to thy old friend. Eh? What's it to you, damn it? Oh, well, let's see. There's the wife, and, uh, and, ah, uh, I. Ye have fornicated more times than I have passed water, says this elegant fellow. And just because they let thee have thy way, didst thou trust them, therefore? Because they were beautiful or lecherous, wert thou fool enough to think it made them honest? Like enough. This Rani has beglamoured thee. Well, then, go thou up and knock on her palace gate to-night and cry, Beloved, let me in. I shall stand under the wall to catch the pieces. When he put it that way, of course, it was ridiculous. Whether she was loyal or not, and I could hardly credit that she wasn't, it didn't seem quite the best time to test the matter with her state running over at the edges with mutineers. Good God! Was there nowhere safe in this bloody country? Delhi, Meerut, Jahanzi, how many garrisons remained? I asked Ilderim, and told him the stories I'd heard and the sights I'd seen on my way south. No one knows, says he grimly. But be sure, the sepoys have not won, as they would have the world believe. 
They have made the land between Ganges and Jumna a ruin of fire and blood and gone undefeated as yet. They range the country in strength, but already there is word that the British are marching on Delhi, and bands of sahibs who escaped when their garrisons were overthrown are riding abroad in growing numbers. Not only men who have lost their regiments, but civilian sahibs also. The Sikar still has teeth, and there are garrisons that hold out in strength, corn poor for one. A bare four days' ride from here. They say the old General Wheeler Sahib is in great force there, and has shattered an army of sepoys and badmashes. When Shadman brings our horses, it is there we will ride. Cornpaw? I almost squeak the word in consternation, for it was back in the dirty country with a vengeance. Having come out of that once, I'd no wish to venture in again. Where else? says he. There is no safer road from Jahansi. Further south, ye dare not go, for there are few sahib places and no great garrisons, nor are there to the west. Over the Jumna, the country may be hot with mutineers, but it is where thine own folk are, and they are mine too, and my lads. I looked at the ugly villains round the fire. Hard-bitten frontier roughnecks to a man in their dirty old poshtines and the big Khyber knives in their belts. By George, I'd be a sight safer going north again in their company than striking out anywhere else on my own. What Ilderim said was probably true, too. Cornpore and the other river strongholds would be where our generals would concentrate. I could get back among my own kind and shed this filthy beard and sepoy kit and feel civilised again. Wouldn't have to spin any nonsense about why I'd disappeared from Jahanzi, either, in supposed pursuit of Ignatieff. My God, I'd forgotten him entirely, and the thugs, and all the rest. My mission to Jahanzi, Pam and his cakes and warnings, it was all chaff in the wind now, forgotten in this colossal storm that was sweeping through India. No one was going to fret about where I'd sprung from or what I'd been doing. I felt my spirits rising by the minute. When I thought of the escape I'd had, leaving Jahanzi in the first place, I could say that even my horrible experience at Mirut had been worthwhile. That's another thing about being a windy beggar. If you scare easily, you usually cheer up just as fast when the danger is past. Well, not past yet, perhaps, but at least I was with friends again, and by what Ilderim said, the mutiny wasn't by any means such a foregone thing as I'd imagined. Why, once our people got their second wind... It would be the bloody rebels who'd be doing the running, no doubt, with Flashy roaring on the pursuit from a safe distance. And I might have been rotting out yonder with the others at Jock and Bark. I shuddered at the ghastly memory of Ilderim's story, or burned alive with the Dawsons at Mirut. By Jove, things weren't so bad after all. Right, says I, corn poor, let it be. How was I to know I was almost speaking my own epitaph? In the meantime, I had one good night's sleep, feeling safe for the first time.